99, and even today, you have no option to be someone else. You can't change. You have to be Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, two dorks who weren't attractive or athletic, couldn't get girls, and were shunned by the jocks. So what does evolution try to do with people like this? It makes them introverts, causing them to turn inward and engage introspection. There you have a choice. You can serve evolution or you can hate society. Only one option brings success. Like that dude arrogantly drinking out of the poison cup and the princess bride? Eric and Dylan chose wrong. But they were so close to getting it right. And a lot of other kids are too. So as we jump into who they were, detailing aspects of their lives and the events leading up to the massacre, let's look for where they went wrong and how a lot of other kids are doing the same in their ignorance. I really think we can make a difference. Because ultimately, Eric and Dylan utilized their introversion in the creation of this fantasy, first as a method of coping and feeling powerful, but as the suffering mounted, it became real. They spent almost a year planning it and did everything they could to accommodate by taking risks and working hard to create bombs and get guns. Like I said earlier, if they had put that same passion into something positive, like their love of filmmaking or video games, there's no telling how successful they might have been. What if, instead of Eric Harris saying, Dylan, we should blow up the school, shoot the survivors as they come out, and then kill ourselves to get revenge for what they've done to us, they took the hint that they were not meant for social success. What if they realized, like other gamers, filmmakers, cosplayers, writers, and the rest, that these things are all very important preparations for virtual reality and AI? We need people who suck in social situations to say, you know what, Dylan, fuck them. We'll show them by doing what we do best. No more playing their game. That's why we lose. But we win if we play our game. Novels have allowed people to transcend their individual reality, even if just temporarily, since long before anyone even conceived of artificial intelligence. Music has been around forever. It turns your heartbeat into a melody instead of a monotonous march toward death. Movies brought the characters from your favorite novels into a moving two-dimensional framework that mimicked life. And virtual reality will let you go anywhere and be anyone without ever moving an inch. But we have to dream it. And the way it happens is by young people who are socially disadvantaged turning inward to find their passion for creation, whatever that may be. Geeks creating computers is not an accident, that's for sure. Just like it isn't an accident when the 64-inch, 300-pound Samoan guy becomes a defensive lineman in the NFL. Extroverts, by default of their disposition, normally find their talents more apparent than introverts because they involve the exterior of the body. So if you're a public speaker, a fashion model, or a salesperson, it's not difficult to ascertain what your talents might be just participating in society. Conversely, introverted people don't get to practice or indulge their passions on a regular basis in society 
because they generally require being isolated from a crowd to work. When you're an adult, you can explore the depths of that introversion as much as you like. But young people, especially teens, and even more so 20 years ago, are not only raised to be social, but burdened with that expectation. Introversion can often be mistaken for something it's not. I've heard introverts described negatively as withdrawn, shy, weird, psycho, quirky, and so on. Now, I don't find any one of those labels terribly offensive as an adult, because I have an identity. I don't have to conform to those labels in my everyday life. But if you're arrogant Dylan, in high school, suffering socially and drowning for it, you need guidance. And that guidance has to consist of people who will work past the lies and insecurity to get to the root of the anger and seek a solution to the issue. Kids like this put up a huge defense against your advances. They hide what they can. But here's the truth. They want help. They want answers. And they want success. But they aren't going to have it socially. Yet, to this day, we're still asking young people to accept what they can't change, and more than ever, by way of technological advance and the onset of possibility, it's making them angry that they can't adapt to bring themselves greater social success. Now, we need that anger because it will fuel the push toward AI, where cosplayers, writers, gamers, and every other introvert can actually be the characters they created to cope with their social ineptitude. Look at the progression. Comic conventions started as actually being about comic books. The characters were on the page. But where are they now? They evolved off the page and into the convention. It's only a facade, but it's a good one. If you see these people on Instagram by way of filters, they look exactly like the characters. And if they keep dreaming, which they will, someday all of it will be real. That's how it works. Evolution makes your young life suck so that you will turn your back on society out of frustration and create impossible worlds to cope. It's not an accident. It's the most beautiful artwork ever created across the canvas of existence. These are the people who are building your future. Introverts get less from society than everyone else in their everyday lives. Sometimes it's a nightmare. But we're really passionate about creating for society because we want inclusion. And so we give introverted technology like smartphones, TV shows, and analytical podcasts hosted by maniacs to extroverted people who love us for it because it enriches their lifestyle or understanding in the world. You can't sit around hating society for not liking you. You have to love them. You choose that because the only other path is to hate yourself. I've been there. Maybe you have too. And it sucks. That's not a place I ever wanted to live. But until I turned inward, I suffered. Badly. So let's try to put that into context in relation to Eric and Dylan. I wasn't a geek or a virgin. I had plenty of friends. My life wasn't bad at all. But other people had much better lives. So I hated them for it. I had disdain for society. And when that stopped working, I could only hate myself. That's when it becomes a problem. There's only so long that can go on. 
you have to change. You have to follow the light. Now, let's examine the lives of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold to get our answers. In the course of this episode, you'll notice I refer to Eric Harris as the dominant of the two boys. While Dylan was much larger and also full of raging anger, Eric had the advantage of being what I would consider a blossoming psychopath. He wasn't without remorse or regret, but he was absent of it to an extent it allowed him to take this event from fantasy to reality. I don't think there was ever a moment when Eric had second thoughts. I think the momentum was all his, and Dylan followed suit because it was an easy way out for somebody who was depressed and wanted to commit suicide. Dylan was never cold. He was always hurt, angry, and confused. Eric was seemingly also all those things, but you can actually see their intentions in the crime by the weapons they used. Eric used weapons far more conducive to accuracy in the pursuit of guaranteeing homicide in the form of a 9mm rifle and a sawed-off pump-action shotgun. Meanwhile, Dylan's weapons were more personal, shorter, and held in a single hand, rather than both, offering less accuracy but greater ease and efficiency for killing himself. He carries a short, sawed-off double-barrel shotgun and a Tech-9. If you listen to 1990s rap, you know exactly what a Tech-9 is, but for everybody else, it's a pistol that would be most easily explained as a semi-automatic version of an Uzi. You can still operate it in a spraying motion, just without automatic function. On the other hand, Eric, the psychopath, has longer weapons that require two hands to shoot, as will be proven when he fires his shotgun with one hand in the library and breaks his own nose. He shows no concern for being attacked at close range and subdued, while Dylan has handheld weapons to ensure his suicide is going to happen. So, what's apparent is that Eric is very passionate about the opportunity to kill people, above all else, leaving him seemingly apathetic about capture or suicide. Conversely, Dylan cares about ensuring he isn't captured before killing himself. P.S. Yes, they were carrying a bunch of knives, but they were never used. And it's clearly because if they had the balls for face-to-face confrontation, those qualities would have led to success in their lives that prevented this massacre. But they always ran. Even on that day, after just a few minutes, the tide turned, and they ran to the darkness of eternal silence. Eric and Dylan are going to leave us all sorts of writings discussing how they were excluded by girls and jocks and just wanted to be part of everything, like getting invited to parties with cool people and dating those they desired. They blamed the people who had those things they wanted. But I'll say this. There were numerous chances to stop them. And that's not a coincidence. In the same way they wanted social acceptance, they wanted help. Eric and Dylan were sloppy in the process of planning for a reason, but when nobody cared enough to stop them, or even notice, it was a reflection of their pain. They wanted people to notice them, and care. They were starving for love, and watching the lions eat, while unwilling to feed from the scraps left behind. So how did they get there? Entitlement. Middle-class values dictate that life will be good as long as you have a good job, a car, and a house. And that has always been a lie. You can have a great life like that, obviously, but there is no guarantee of it. Yet these recent generations of teens are acting out because they're not special in society. They're not popular enough, or pretty enough, or they're getting bullied, 
they believe they deserve better without doing anything to get it and explode when waiting for it fails. Go ask somebody elderly right now how many people they heard of back in the day shooting up their high school because they didn't do so well with girls. And then ask them if their parents or grandparents, who all grew up with guns too, shot up their high schools. The answer is no, because these people weren't the products of entitlement. They weren't watching bullshit TV shows and movies that promised them the hot chick's love just for being quirky and shy. That entitlement was spawned by post-World War II success leading to 1950s middle-class values, making promises about the future for which it could not and would never deliver. But I was raised in this environment, and let me tell you something. Every fucking time I tried to tell my parents I was unhappy, they used our middle-class lifestyle to compare me to people who had fewer material resources and then sent me packing for being naive. Meanwhile, I'm like, uh, actually, there's something wrong in my head. I'm not happy. This house car job thing isn't curing what's inside my cranium. And they're like, but yeah, you're fine because we have more things than poor people. And I'm like, no, my fucking head is screaming that something is wrong. And the reason that didn't affect prior generations is because they were building that type of society in ignorance that it wasn't going to work. By the time I rolled around, and Dylan and Eric, kids were trying to tell their parents this middle-class lifestyle is a barren wasteland of mediocrity and adherence to social conformity. We were trying to break out. Rock music, punk music, dressing like a fucking goth. Nobody did that before these generations, but they should have seen it coming. In the 1960s, young people had to rebel against their clean-cut middle-class lifestyles by growing long hair, smoking weed, and indulging spirituality and LSD rather than Christianity. They were trying to say, hey folks, it just ain't working. We're done. But they fell for it too. They got older and adopted that lifestyle. That only made the next generation even more narcissistic, which gave us cocaine and Wall Street, which seemed to be synonymous for a time there in the 1980s. Middle-class people were desperately trying to class-climb out of that wasteland of mediocrity and into the ritzier upper echelon of society with the wealthy above them. In fact, the Oliver Stone film Wall Street was exactly that. Charlie Sheen and his father, ironically played by Martin Sheen, are at odds with one another over the fundamentals of American life. Dad is a middle-class, blue-collar managerial type for an aircraft company who won't compromise his middle-class values for anything or anybody, while his son sinks into despair as he turns into a snake who, unlike his father, does anything and everything to escape a middle-class lifestyle. That film was highly awarded and subsequently revered as a classic because it highlighted a very real anxiety of that era, which is that generation's realization of the failure of the middle-class mindset and their desperate attempt to escape it. And guess what? It tells a hard truth. At the end, Charlie goes back to his middle-class values of honesty and decency, accepting mediocrity, literally imprisoned by truth. That was actually what happened to that generation. But it got worse. The 1990s, because of that realization in the 1980s, called for renewed cynicism and harder drugs. Enter heroin, Kurt Cobain, 
rains daily. The Pacific Northwest, a dreary yet strikingly beautiful place, like our mental state at the time, was conducive to creating great art, highlighting the fallout of the 1980s realization we couldn't escape our middle-class existence. Antidepressant use skyrocketed, and we suddenly went from laughing at Tom Hanks in Big to laughing at Mickey and Mallory Knox slaughtering dozens of innocent people on a road trip across the country. And what do they do at the end, leaving us all cheering? Escape prison. In Natural Born Killers, Mickey literally picks up Mallory at her parents' boring, cookie-cutter house, murders her father by drowning him in his fish tank, and then takes Mallory out of that middle-class life, burning down the house on the way. As the flames rise, she turns to her little brother, who's smiling, and tells him to get out, that he's free now. It's a profoundly relevant scene, almost eerie when placed in sequence with the ending of Wall Street the decade prior. And what's really interesting about this, though certainly not coincidental, is that even though Quentin Tarantino wrote the original screenplay for that movie, he only got a story by credit because other writers changed the script. And if you know the history on this, Oliver Stone, who directed Wall Street, was not only the director of this movie, but the scene where Mickey takes Mallory from her middle-class life was actually written by Stone rather than Tarantino. Accordingly, no matter how you feel about the director of those films, they're successful for a reason. Oliver Stone wrote both of those scenes with incredible symbolic power because they were honest to what was actually happening in society at the time. In the 1980s, we decided to go back to our prison when we didn't ascend to the wealthy class. By the time the 1990s rolled around, our reality was so unbearable that heroin arrived. Cynicism was rampant. And Eric and Dylan were a product of that time period. Shit was dark back then, and people were angry. It produced amazing art. We had grunge music, gangster rap, pulp fiction, the L.A. riots. And what so many middle-class people failed to realize was in the message loud and clear. White people doing grunge were talking about drugs, feeling nothing, and killing themselves to end the pain, while black people were rapping about ascending from the ghetto to become rich. But guess what nobody at all wanted? A middle-class lifestyle. You get lines like, birthdays was the worst days, now we sip champagne when we Thursday. He doesn't say, got me a three-bedroom house with a two-car garage where I park my fuel-efficient Prius and keep the neighbors ignorant of my sex fetishes. And why? People who are suffering and or poor keep it real. There's no use pretending. Kurt Cobain sang about coming apart at the seams. Not how thankful he was to get a low interest rate on his mortgage. But we were too primitive at that time to understand. We blamed the drugs for making people unhappy and offered poverty as a reason people wanted to skip over the middle class on their way up. Trust me, they weren't joking. Everybody wanted to ascend past that. It's a good life. But increasingly, as we move into the future and greater technological capability, it is not generally conducive to evolutionary function. At its core, the middle class is a purgatory. The poor are burning. The rich are in heaven. Those classes have reason to join the party and dance or stand outside banging on the door and threatening to torch the place. 
But when you aren't suffering that badly, and conversely, aren't succeeding to potential, you're stuck. And there is nothing good in life that always remains stagnant. The poor revolt, the rich control, but the middle class stays quietly in its seat. It tells you to be thankful for what you have, that the problem is really your lack of appreciation. And so, instead of finding answers, you only find more sorrow. But let me make something clear, something that Eric and Dylan needed to hear. It's okay to be unhappy. It doesn't matter who you are. You are entitled to feel. But you are not entitled to anything else that is not born of your own creation. Evolution is forcing the eradication of the middle class mindset because it's going to increase the speed and efficiency of technological progress. You might have noticed our political system is becoming more divisive all the time. That's another effort to increase the speed of evolution, and it happens in accordance with technological pacing. It happens when society is ready for it. The white male was an integral part of building this enormous middle-class lie and selling it to future generations, so those who are going to be angriest about it are those to whom the lie was sold directly. Eric and Dylan were a part of that cynical generation that came to the realization they were mired in an intellectual wasteland of mediocrity. That's why the 90s gave rise to Goth, Marilyn Manson, and anything dressed in black. It was a symbolic funeral physically manifested by the desires of middle-class youth. When questioned about his potential involvement in the massacre by way of his music, Manson suggested his music is an escape that lets people be who they want to be. That resonated with 1990s youth. Marilyn Manson came out dressed in all black, looking part human, part machine, angry, totally androgynous, talented, and unique. He symbolized the power of engaging young shadow, of saying, fuck this, I'm going to be an individual, something authentic. And he became a huge star, an icon to this day because he stood for freedom from conformity to the expectations of the life and place in which you are born. If you ever have kids and disapprove of their entertainment, pull back the curtain before passing judgment. Find what it is they relate to. It's never the facade and always the substance in one way or another. Costumes are just that. Costumes. Marilyn Manson had a message that disaffected youth heard loud and clear. Let me go. These school shootings are the rage of middle-class white kids trying to escape that prison. They are literally shooting their way out of there and literally doing it within the walls of institutions breeding the values that are causing the sickness. That's not a coincidence. They are telling us something, so start fucking listening. They want out of this prison. Evolution doesn't want nice and safe. It wants Marilyn Manson. Society might disagree, but his paychecks will tell you everything you need to know about evolution's opinion of him, his work, and his choices. He became the monster, changing everything about himself, never looking back. It's inspiring, but almost frightening, because almost nobody succeeds at that level. Most of us aren't going to be famous, or rich, or revered for the art we produce. So what we're waiting for, and what is happening right now, 
is the introduction of technology conducive to offering the individual greater autonomy, a.k.a. freedom. For example, podcasting revolutionized radio in a way that made it possible for individuals like me, with no influence whatsoever, to get a job that allows me to do what I do and not suffer with thoughts of misery at a bland corporate position. I wasn't happy before I did this. Do you know what I was doing all the time? Looking for normal, cookie-cutter, middle-class opportunities that would suffice. Meanwhile, evolution put its foot down. It was like, dude, okay, I'm done. No more. Do I have to send you a sign? And I was like, no thanks. I'm looking for a mediocre office job with decent pay. And it looks at me, shakes its head, and says, okay, but really, I know I can only communicate with you intuitively, so here's what I'll do. You try that office job, and I will throw the biggest fucking roadblock you've ever seen right into your path. So I'm like, you know what, dude? Fuck you, evolution. And I went out, got that middle-of-the-road job, bought a good car, and went about my business buying nicer clothes and trying to look good and impressing people in society. I was like, see, evolution? I'm happy. And then I met the woman who sat next to me at work. Long story short... It was the strangest, most confusing series of actions I've ever experienced with another human being. One that started as a mutual crush that wasn't even remotely practical to bring to fruition and thereby caused some serious conflict between me and this person. Needless to say, it got really ugly and I thought to myself, I need to change departments. So I tried that. And because of the incidents with this woman, I wasn't allowed. I asked to have my seat move. They wouldn't let me do that either. They asked her if she wanted to get away from me. And she said no. And then it got so bad, I actually had to sign an agreement that said I would be fired the next time I ignored her on a personal level. I couldn't believe it. It was terrible. But it was my job, so I agreed and signed it. But I knew I would never talk to her. And I didn't. But she never ratted me out for it. She just accepted it. Yet, I lived with so much fear every day that I would be fired. I mean, it was every minute, every second. The anxiety was truly awful. Finally, I said to myself, I have to create a way out of here. It's killing me. And one day soon after, while sitting at my computer, I felt somebody watching me. I looked around but saw no one. Yet I couldn't shake the feeling. Suddenly I saw her reflection in my computer monitor. She was standing directly behind me, just staring at me in silence, but looking hesitant to speak. I turned around, and what I saw was easily the most beautiful human being I had ever seen before or since. Yes, she was attractive in her own right, very much so, but something was different. She was glowing. I could see the light rising from her skin, like it was warm. And she had these huge eyes, like moons, that were glowing, just bursting with excitement and revelation. I didn't know what to say. It had been so long since we even spoke, or exchanged a smile. I didn't understand, but I realized something important was about to happen. She was going to say something. And that something was going to change my life in a way that I never imagined possible. 
So I waited, and she asks, Do you like podcasts? As though it's the most important question ever posed. The end of so much prolonged suffering, I could barely manage a word. But we talked about podcasts for about five minutes. Yet the subtext of it was that she finally found a way to show me the love that wasn't practical for us to have in reality because of our differences. That glow was something I will never forget, the most beautiful sight I have ever laid eyes upon. The next day, after listening to a few podcasts and deciding I would start one, I saw her coming out of a local grocery store while walking down the street. We lived in the same neighborhood, so that would happen on occasion. I approached her directly and opened my mouth to tell her the news. But before I could say anything, she just ignored me and walked right past. We were literally face to face, the two of us alone on the sidewalk, and she pretended I didn't exist. It was so audacious and so rude, my anger toward her went right back to normal levels. I approached her the next morning at work, and she denied ever seeing me. I told her that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard, and she countered to suggest that what I was saying was the same. Obviously, this became an argument, and we went right back to not speaking to each other. In fact, I don't think the two of us ever spoke again. But what did happen is I worked 16 hours a day and escaped what haunted me. While pondering that recently, being thankful for all the people who have helped me along the way, I thought of her and how she started this thing. It was a seed. I made it grow, but she planted it, and she was glowing like the sun at the time. It wasn't a coincidence. The world works like that. She asked for my love. I gave it to her, and she hurt me. Not on a romantic level, but through a mutual crush that she started and drew me into one day at a time before realizing it was a mistake. And I don't know what went on in her head, but I know that she realized she was wrong, that she built a prison around me with her love, and then walked away. As it mirrored the prison going on in my own head with my whole life, the symbolism of her action to undo it by finally showing me the love I deserved was extremely effective. I found myself in that moment, not just a little bit. I started to shine like she did. And I'm forever grateful, realizing that evolution was standing over my shoulder that day at my computer. That's what the glow and excitement were. When she ignored me the next day, that's when I realized where the idea came from. She had no fucking clue what she was doing. The truth was that I inspired her every time I looked in her eyes. She had so much trouble making eye contact with me despite being much more attractive. But in the way that I explained to you that I can look in someone's eyes and see the psychological construction of trauma or grief with specificity, I can also relay my understanding of those things with my eyes. And when I first saw her, I noticed something in her eyes that I knew instantly. I recognized it. I won't talk about what it was, but I returned her gaze with the implicit knowledge that I knew her secret, understood she was in pain, 
and that she never had to tell me the truth. I would just look at her and understand. And she fell for me. Hard. There were days she would come to my desk just to stare into my eyes. I've never seen anybody with a cross like that before. And so I developed the same thing on my end. It got more and more intense for both of us. But it wasn't practical in reality. It was better suited as a crush. Yet, one day, she showed up at work and was a completely different person. She spoke to me in a robot voice and made no eye contact. And it was so sad because I could see it was due to the crush getting more intense rather than subsiding. She withdrew from me, told lies about me, and pretended in a way that was really unfair and even sociopathic when it comes down to it. No one has ever hurt me like that. I mean, it was truly very rude. It was like she turned off all her emotions around the most inspiring person she knew. It made me feel dead inside. And the worst part of it, the part that hurt so much, is that I knew it was a lie. I knew it wasn't true. I think I really did come to hate her for that. And I wanted her to acknowledge it. She was never able to. But she knew she owed me in a big way. So when she was listening to a true crime podcast one day, and became inspired by it, she thought of my love for true crime and how I inspired her. She believed I could inspire others. And because of her epiphany and your support, there is more love in my life than ever before. But the point is, you can't just ask people if they're okay. Sometimes, you have to inspire them with the only greatness you'll ever know. Being yourself. That's all you have. That's all I have. And we must learn to love ourselves, no matter the cost to anybody's ego. If your kid is the next Marilyn Manson, don't scold him for it. Buy him a fucking leather suit and join the party. Creation isn't just bringing people into the world. We all die many deaths, however tiny or insignificant they might be. Sometimes a rebirth comes through that inspiration, but we know for sure it always comes in the form of life. So be that. Shine for someone, and they'll recognize the glow of your love approaching. Be that beacon of hope that reaches into the darkness and touches people's hearts. But do it in your own way, the way no one else can, and you will finally find home. Because we're all lost, looking for something on our way through this journey. And it's that thing that lurks behind every conversation you have. You know what I mean when you're talking to someone, but really just working as an actor, like you have been your whole life, in most conversations you've ever had, that leave you longing to just stop mid-sentence and tell the person you're afraid that you don't know how to love people and you want them to tell you the same in return so that we can finally understand each other and stop telling all these lies to cope. That conversation where you walk away thinking of what you should have said and ashamed that you didn't because you were scared like you have been your whole life. That dialogue in your head that desire, 
the subtext behind our words is nothing more than the struggle we face to communicate on an evolutionary level. We know how to speak to each other in society on an individual level. You just fucking lie and say everything is great as it falls apart so that others won't be reminded it's happening to them too. It's a courtesy that does us no favors at all. Beneath that though, in the subtext, we are all one organism, collectively as humanity. We are all cogs in the wheel of evolution, or more appropriately, blocks in the pyramid. As I said earlier, life exists in two separate but simultaneously functioning contexts. One is society, and the other is evolution. Therefore, your brain is able to communicate on both of those levels. Since nature, aka evolution, communicates to us through intuition, the subtext of our conversations, meaning the nonverbal communication of eye contact and body language, comprise it. On the other hand, all of our verbal communication is utilized for social function. The social or verbal aspect of your intellect is extremely manipulative and dishonest because it caters to perception rather than truth. And why does it do this? Verbal communication, in the form of questions, forces us to articulate reasons for what we do. If we don't think people will approve, then we often desire to avoid revealing a truth in a situation where we didn't bring it up to begin with. But with evolutionary communication, or subtext, aka eye contact and body language, we are dealing strictly with the elements of light and movement and therefore cannot lie. If you're attracted to someone, your body language will show it. Conversely, if you're appalled by somebody, that's apparent too. Your arms, legs, hands, and feet are all capable of redirecting light to send messages. Meanwhile, your eyes emanate your light and receive the light of others, computing this information for connections of any kind to bring you closer. That's how evolution connects humans. Most people see this process from a social standpoint and try to get their surface story to be coherent enough to hide the subtext from the other person. And then they walk away feeling dissatisfied, thinking of things they should have said, something funny or charming, when the reality is all the other person wants is acknowledgement that you are vulnerable too. If that guard drops between two people, it creates fireworks. It could be friendship, love, a business partnership, or anything else worth creating with another human. We have a world full of adults who seek comfort in perpetuating the social lie of having enough material items to be comfortable as a great life. But you aren't going to be happy being just like your neighbor. You're just going to be unafraid. You aren't going to be happy as one person in a crowd of many who never stands out. You're just going to be relieved of fear that you'll be scorned for individuality. The middle class mindset is full of backup plans, safe choices, and saving pennies. These are people whose ancestors were born abroad under a veil of tyranny, denied religious freedom, murdered, enslaved, enduring famine and plague, crossing unforgiving territory to pan for gold, shooting up the Wild West, creating entire cities, crossing oceans, seeking conquest at every opportunity, and living. What the hell ever happened to taking risks? Can't you see why evolution is livid? Our sense of exploration and curiosity is dead. 
We're so disgusting that we actually buy adventure now instead of seeking it. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to strive for my dreams. Fuck that. But I'll definitely go ziplining with you on Saturday. And I'm like, no, that is not adventure. It's middle-class placation of the desire for adventure and feeling of ecstasy related to it. You're shortcutting evolution. That's why bungee jumping is so fucking expensive, even though you can die and all they're risking is loss of a rope after the insurance covers it. Evolution does not want you to indulge this fake bullshit. It allows you to do that so that you might be inspired to let go of fear and seek true adventure. Don't go ziplining for $350 next weekend. Go risk everything you have and try to summit Mount Everest. We are unhappy because we don't move in the direction of change through risk. When I talk to young people right out of college or a few years out and ask their plans, do you know what their intention invariably becomes as they start to speak? They want to convince me that they're making smart and safe choices. But if you aren't afraid and aren't risking much, you're not going to be very happy. In those cases, you start bungee jumping, playing a Powerball lottery, and going back to school for the 364th time to get a degree so advanced, you won't even live long enough to pay off the student loans for an education available in paperback on Amazon for 30 bucks. We're so mired in the comfort of things and so afraid of death, we forget to live. All of that comes from the middle-class sensibility to play Derek and Dylan. They couldn't articulate it in words, so they chose action in the form of darkness. The message is loud and clear. We need to do a better job learning how to live in this new day and age. We are human, but we are being placated by machines who are planning to destroy us, which is all part of the plan. But in the meantime, these technological comforts we surround ourselves with, all of these resources, they will not suffice in making human beings the best they can be. Risk, adventure, sacrifice, danger, movement, adaptation, predation, conquest, curiosity, these are all strongly valued by evolution. Stagnancy is not on that list. Stagnancy is evolutionary death. And if it happens while you're still breathing, it's even worse. We need monsters. If you have kids and they aren't scaring the shit out of you with the things they do through positive but risky actions, it's probably time to reevaluate. Because people who try and fail while taking risks end up believing anything is possible once they taste success. And when they do, watch out. They shine. We can do that for everybody, even people like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. But you have to be willing to dig down to the truth about who you really are. Most of us are not living that life, and, like the killers in this tale, need guidance. Now, finally getting to things I keep promising. So I lived in Colorado for five years, Denver specifically. I've been to Littleton many times, and through the Columbine area, visited the JonBenet Ramsey house probably 15 times at least, and woke up late at night wondering why ambulances were leaving the place next to my apartment and strangely driving into Aurora, only to learn that the reason is that James Holmes shot so many people at the Batman premiere. Now, I've hiked the Front Range and many other areas in Colorado, met a lot of locals and also a lot of transplants to the area. So, basically, 
Now, I lived there for years. I know the lay of the land and also the cultural implications of this event. All of which is to say that when I suggest on social media that Columbine High School is in Littleton, Colorado, it's a reference point for people unfamiliar with the area that will guide them on a map to the largest recognizable place in that region. Given that Littleton is a significant commute from Denver and much closer to Columbine, which no person on earth had ever heard of before the shooting because of Nowheresville, I, like the media, reference it as being in Littleton. So if you're one of those angry, white male locals who's experienced nothing more significant than spending the last 20 years living near Columbine High School and want credits solely for your proximity, do yourself a favor and get a life instead. Trolling social media to pounce when anybody mentions the location of the school in a manner contrary to your liking is indicative of how small you are. I don't mean to be rude, but there were enough instances to warrant mention here, so please, just shut up. End of rant. So Eric Harris was born in 1981 in Wichita, Kansas, to Wayne and Kathy Harris. Wayne was an air transport pilot for the U.S. Air Force, and Kathy supposedly worked as a caterer. With Wayne's military lifestyle, the family moved around quite a bit in Eric's earlier years, finding themselves back east in Plattsburgh, New York, where Eric was described as a normal kid who played soccer. In the summer of 1993, upon retiring from the Air Force, Wayne moved the family to Littleton, Colorado, but soon after, Eric found himself having problems fitting in at his new school. He was still playing soccer and hadn't indulged the darkness of wearing black all the time yet, but there was a noticeable change. He seems to have trouble fitting in at his new school. Of course, we're going to get the same narrative about Dylan around the time he goes to Columbine for high school, and it's really ridiculous the way this is reported. The media makes it out to be a mystery, like, ooh, something changed, let's dig down to find it. And I'm like, no, let's not. Let's just say what it is. If your kid does well socially in school, or at least has no major problems prior to hitting puberty, and then suddenly starts growing dark around ages 12 to 14, and isn't fitting in as well anymore? It's because he realized he isn't cool, and also isn't going to get the girls, but he is going to get angry from these brand new, overwhelming urges to have sex with all of these girls who are going to reject him. This conundrum creates some of the worst men in society. I really think a lot of people are ignorant of the fallout from this failure. It's a failure of conquest, yet society is calling that endeavor toxic masculinity and suggesting these boys suffering from it are the problem because they weren't raised properly in their formative years. That's dead wrong. You cannot turn off your sex drive, especially as a teen boy. You really don't think about much else. That has nothing to do with free will and everything to do with a very flawed, demanding biological desire. Evolution wants as much sex as possible, while society chooses to regulate it. Now, that's the correct manner of doing business, for the purpose of civility and decency, but it doesn't change the fact that a non-stop sex drive in the head of a teen who can't get laid or dominate other males in any way is going to be a big problem. He's going to be angry. But that's not even the worst part. People like Eric and Dylan have to watch other guys who have way more success turn down the girls they want just because they can. Something like that makes you feel even more powerless. And the reason we're so afraid to talk about this, especially between parent and team, aside from the fact it's embarrassing, is that there is absolutely no way in hell to fix this problem. 
And then, when those lucky guys realize they're so dominant over others like Eric and Dylan, by getting the girls as they suffer, that's when the bullying starts too. And society, ignorant as ever, decides the best thing to do is combat bullying. That's the problem, they say. No, it isn't. Bullying affects individuals. It's a social crisis. So that's only the surface layer of the problem. If you reverse engineer this issue for maybe three seconds, it isn't difficult to see the problem. It's the human brain. The bully is not the kid you see on YouTube. He's the facade of the problem. Nothing more than a face evolution uses to distract you until the technology is ready to obliterate or even just transcend the issue at hand. All bullying is, despite the fact that it's damaging and hurtful to the individual, is a big, fat, loud message from evolution that you're going to get stomped by other men in your adult life if you don't find a way to stand up to their dominance. It finds the kids who need to be chased in a different direction. It does so by way of kids who have already gone in the wrong direction. The end goal is twofold. One, the bully is brought back down to earth. And two, it happens by way of the victim creating a situation where he can negate the bully's dominance, whether through authority, allies, or even a fistfight. It's preparing both of them for the adult world. I say this again and again and again. Evolution is a two-pronged system. It requires the conflict of two parties colliding. That is how everything in the world operates. Social issues are problems through which we don't have the technology and or resources to create a solution. So we need a red herring to utilize as a social facade related to fixing it until the time the real technology or cure arrives. Now, on a side note, let's take the burning of Notre Dame recently. There are hundreds of millions of dollars being donated to that cause, and there are people out in society saying, I can't believe all this money is being donated to this church. Meanwhile, we have the poor starving. We could fix so many social problems. It's not possible. It is an absolute impossibility, and it is not the product of bad people. Evolution is not going to allow you to fix social problems on a mass scale with large amounts of money unless the people receiving that money are creating to get it. It's just not going to happen. So that's why we can't have a better world by rich people being nice. I know everybody wants to believe that, but evolution does not allow it. So bullying is the red herring here. It's not going anywhere because it can't be fixed. The APA can release as many suggestions as they want about how to turn your male kids into pathetic sissies for the greater good of society, but they're digging in a dumpster and coming out with trash that not even a dog would be willing to consume. But what these fucking people miss so badly is that victims who stand up to bullies, no matter how they do it, become survivors instead of remaining victims. The reason bullies stop harassing you when you stand up to them is change. You become more dominant just by standing your ground. And since evolution is at the wheel of this process, all it wants is change related to your unwillingness to try to compete with dominant males in the form of effort, while teaching those same males that they aren't going to get what they want as adults by bullying people physically. If you stand up to the bully, the bullying is going to end because both people involved are suffering from the same problem of inadequacy, 
but from different perspectives. The bully usually has problems at home and is feeling inadequate or angry from being dominated there, most likely by a male father figure who is also feeling the same inadequacy and anger. On the other hand, the bullied kid is more likely to have a stronger relationship with the people at home, leaving him bereft of the anger or aggression to stand up to the bully. Evolution wants them to teach each other a lesson. But society is so slow in realizing how evolution dupes us. Now, as far as Eric Harris goes, it's often said that he was a talkative dude, a lot more outgoing and less introspective than Dylan. But I don't think that was genuine. I think Eric required the expression of his anger, while Dylan brooded beneath the surface for the most part. Watching Eric in videos and seeing his writings, it's clear to me that he was an introverted dude who spoke out for lack of a better way to get attention. He said a lot of controversial and scary things in order to get people to feel a certain way. That's really manipulative, indicative of a psychopath trying to control the way others feel, utilizing fear. There's nothing about him that indicated to me that he was an incredibly social creature. I think he and Dylan had a similar level of introversion apparent, but Dylan's self-loathing left him shy and self-aware, while Eric was more expressive in releasing his anger due to the lack of self-awareness afforded by psychopathy. Now, there's a lot of dispute about who Eric really was. Some paint him as a cool dude who was dating all sorts of girls, and he kind of had that bad boy thing going on. Now, they might have had greater personal insight than I do, but let's get real here for a second. If the girls like you, and you're cool, you don't spend tremendous amounts of time alone sulking about how nobody likes you in writings and video while planning a massacre to get revenge. You don't just do something irrational because you're a psychopath. There was a genesis of this problem that he endured. So, you can try to sell me the line about him being cool, but all I see is a fake extrovert running his mouth to hide his insecurities and then telling the truth in his creative life and the aftermath trying to cope. His life disappointed him so badly. Eric lamented on many occasions that he was shunned socially, but there's this narrative that he was invited to all these cool parties and had a bunch of dates. Please, this is somebody whose nickname, Reb, was given to him by himself. He was an intelligent geek failing in the plight of legitimizing a bad boy persona. Now, Dylan, on the other hand, was born September 11, 1981, in Lakewood, Colorado, which is a suburb right outside Denver, so close you're basically there as soon as you leave the city traveling west. The native-born Dylan comes from a Jewish family and practices religion in his life at least up to a certain point. Of course, we're going to see his anger about the failure of his faith to make him a happy person boil over during the attack. Dylan's most cringeworthy moment will come when he taunts a critically injured girl calling out for help from God. Thankfully, she did survive. Anyhow, Dylan's father, Tom, was a geophysicist at one point, and his mother, Sue, worked with disabled people. At a later time, the two of them opened a real estate management company, which afforded an upper-middle-class lifestyle in the foothills of the Rockies. So, like many disaffected teens, these two begin to indulge in the darkness during these years. Eric is in love with hardcore industrial German music he blasts in his car everywhere he goes, and the two of them become nearly obsessed with the popular video game Doom, from which they'll draw inspiration while planning and carrying out the attack, among other things. 
Now, this was a massively popular game for many reasons, one being the perspective of a first-person shooter. Many earlier games neglected to offer the shooter's perspective, instead showing the entire body in a horizontal or vertical screen orientation. What made this POV style so appealing is that it was no longer a sensation of controlling a separate character who was doing the shooting. The POV perspective made the player feel like the shooter. And the reason that's important is that it makes the power feel like your own rather than you manipulating someone else across the screen. So, the POV character was really just called Doom Guy because it was implied he was you. Now, what's especially important to notice about this is that the small change of blending the shooter on screen with the person at the controls, instead of having them as two entities, essentially gives you a very early, primitive look at virtual reality. Here these kids are in their bedrooms playing the game, but they're also on the screen too. This allowed them at least partially, to transcend their powerlessness. We didn't have school shootings before we had POV shooter games. Meanwhile, aging people in suits are like, violent video games lead to murder. But they don't. Lack of autonomy and controlling your state of being is what leads to it. If your circumstances in the material world suck, and so do the feelings in your head, what you're looking for is a way to escape reality and to release aggression. You gravitate toward the video game for temporary control, but it offers no more than that. It isn't manipulation. When the game ends, it ends. It doesn't fool anyone. It's intended to dull the pain. It doesn't incite violence. It offers release. The issue, though, is that no amount of loud German industrial music or video games are going to make your life better if you're failing socially and mentally. It's a band-aid, at best, intended for the purposes of placation until better methods are discovered. But if they're not discovered, the path you're on just continues. Self-destruction is not reliant upon outside entities. It happens despite them. Now, many people would say, but what about the black trench coats and the hitman look, the sunglasses? All these things are geared toward killing others. No, they're not. In the same way people do cosplay, these two dressed up as characters who demanded the power and respect they couldn't get. They weren't able to get that attention by engaging the light, so they turned to dark characters because they had the type of tools Eric and Dylan would need to command respect. They realized the only way they could get people to respect them is to control them through violence and with weapons. But it all started as a fantasy, just a way to feel powerful by transcending your inferior self through acting. Where it becomes a problem is if the person keeps sinking into the abyss. The worse the brain suffers, the more conducive your logic is to engaging denial. So when you begin to engage denial, that means you can't deal with the pain of what you're suffering by rational means. You need to transcend that body and mind. But in 1999, the technology didn't exist, still doesn't exist today, and won't be available for quite some time. So in the absence of that, what do you do? You transcend your awful existence to the furthest extent possible with current technology. Dylan didn't have artificial intelligence or virtual reality in his home. He was able to play video games and watch movies, so he became those people. Had he lived in 2019, he'd have done the same, transcend as much as possible. Socially oriented brains 
don't see these things. Evolution puts a curtain on stage at every show to shield you from how the world really works. The facade is on stage. The bright colors, loud sounds, scenery, verbal communication, explicit emotion. But backstage, behind the curtain, you see all the pulleys and levers, the controls. Evolution is a stage crew. That's the introverts. On stage is for stars or extroverts. Now, how do Dylan and Eric go from dressing like the characters to being them? Validation by way of denial. Someone who is not in denial and concerned about the direction they're going will need to affirm that the transformation is legit. So that's why people turn to darkness like this in the form of a character. They're waiting for people to see it and then espouse the negative qualities of the change, thereby not only acknowledging changes happened, but that it was effective. Watch this happen. It's really scary. One day, Sue Klebold takes Dylan out to lunch, and he's wearing this long black trench coat, black combat boots, and his backward Boston Red Sox hat, which is also dark. I think this is in some type of casual restaurant, like a diner, so it's not like he's out of place because he's underdressed. It's just that he has this appearance like he's trouble, like the dining is casual, but nothing about him is right. He seems menacing. So, Sue starts to notice people glancing over at him, taking notice of his brooding dark character, and she seems curious why he doesn't notice them watching. He's making them nervous without even trying. He's just sitting there. That's when Sue just says something like, Dylan, you're scaring these people. And of course, he's scaring her too, because he's going through a transformation. Clothes, personality, and significant weight loss. He was already thin, but he loses something like 40 pounds between the end of his junior year and April 20th, 1999. But when Sue makes that notion explicit, that Dylan is feared by these people, it becomes an epiphany for him. He suddenly has control. They're looking at him in fear, which on a practical level equates to respect. He hasn't felt this before. I'm sure it was intoxicating, which is why Sue basically says he appeared very pleased. There's a reason she brought that up, and it's the reason I'm mentioning now. The rush he was feeling was the formation of an identity he created. He transcended his faith as a shy, hopeless virgin geek in that single moment. You and I know that's a power trip, not an identity. But when you're desperate, depressed, and in denial, you'll attach yourself to anything that empowers you. Now, in their junior year, Eric and Dylan are going to get arrested in the aftermath of a burglary on a parked van, trying to acquire some electronics inside. In the end, part of their punishment was to write an apology letter to the owner of the van. Eric, being the psychopath, was happy to write the letter expressing his and Dylan's remorse and their realization that what they did was totally wrong. I mean, his letter is truly polite. And then, in his private writings, he reveals his true colors. He tells us that this idiot who left all that valuable stuff in his van deserved to have it stolen for not protecting it and ponders why he shouldn't just be able to take it if it's there. His rhetoric is about as antisocial as it gets, and the letter to the man is remorseful. 
So these two were also employed at a place called Blackjack Pizza, which has a number of locations in the region. Dylan has issues while working here because he's so sensitive and volatile and ends up quitting before being offered back when they couldn't find decent help. Eric, on the other hand, is such a psychopath that he does things like bring a pipe bomb to work without realizing it's stupid because he could get a lot of people hurt or killed, including himself. Ultimately, the boys have a connection through this place that allows them to get their hands on one or more firearms, which I believe included the Tech 9 used in the massacre. Now, Eric is 100% dead set on carrying out this fantasy of destroying the school and killing the survivors as they run out in terror. He truly desires to kill people. Dylan, meanwhile, is really angry and with his size can even be a bully to younger kids at the school but his obsession is more so with ending his pain than ending other people's lives. If Eric could have blown up the entire world, he would have. Dylan just wanted to go somewhere, lie down, and die. So, Eric, as the dominant of the two, will need to captain the ship throughout, keeping Dylan on board as the subordinate. The psychopath excels extremely well at things like this. He's a puppet master who can control people, resources, and perception. They have no issue with pressuring other people and lying while remaining perfectly calm and emotionless. The same act Eric sold to the van owner and his parents was the same one he peddled to Dylan. Why? He knew Dylan was desperate to feel powerful. Eric offered him that in a situation where he already wanted to commit suicide, a fact outlined explicitly in his writings well before the attack. Dylan reportedly wavered on doing this in the months leading up to the event, and the reason is that he was more self-aware than Eric. He pondered the horrors that lay ahead and the finality of it all, and he did that because there was help for what was wrong with him. Medication, therapy, and even just the changes of moving on to college and forging an identity in an adult life could do wonders. But Eric was a psychopath. He was going to do something terrible no matter what. Of course, he could get help, but his interests revolved around killing people. He was known for making all sorts of inappropriate jokes about violence in a way that seemed like he didn't realize their impact on others. He seemed detached from the terrifying implications of violence or even the consequences. With his choice of t-shirt during the attack reading natural selection on the front and the way he handled the van burglary in his private writings, we know he felt entitled to take all of these lives. It was never a question. Eric Harris believed they deserved it, and he would be God raining fire from above because he's chosen. Dylan's approach to the situation, however, is conservative. He's hesitant and cautious about moving forward with this huge change that will end his life and the lives of others. He's thinking about whether it's the only choice. Eric is the progressive half of this evolutionary duo, going full speed ahead toward a solution that satisfies his thirst for blood. They stifle each other's efforts just enough that neither one exceeds the pace in which they acquire the necessary technology and resources. Eric keeps Dylan from turning back by always moving forward on the plan, bringing him deeper and deeper into it, while Dylan's slight hesitation slows Eric's role just enough that they're able to plan this thing without getting caught. Thankfully, a lot of lives were saved by one factor for which they couldn't account. Experience. 
if you don't have extensive experience building bombs, things could go wrong. But we'll get to that. Now, one very mysterious and equally interesting aspect of this case is something called the basement tapes, which were primarily, but not entirely, filmed in Eric's basement bedroom at his parents' house. This was a series of videos that essentially showed off the firepower they had acquired in terms of bombs and guns and detailed their reasons for the massacre, among other things. It was revolutionary for its time in the sense that these guys documented things to an extent you'd think it happened with today's technology. But they were always filming, and this was no exception. So let's talk about the content. What's important to note is that these videos are not available to the public for fear they'll inspire others to commit similar crimes. I mean, they are essentially propaganda films at their core. So we have to rely on the transcripts of what was said in the absence of a visual aid, which is great because this is a podcast. But I'm really disappointed I'm not able to analyze the body language and movements of these two during the videos. It would be great to establish context for emotion. From what I understand, a clinical psychologist was permitted to examine the tape frame by frame. But I'm not jealous. At all. Yet, one of the significant things we can't see in these tapes, but is relayed to us, is that Dylan often looks to Eric for approval regarding what he's saying or doing. Normally just a glance, but it's significant. And the reality is this. Eric is the mastermind of this plot, the architect. And what he's doing is telling a story in the same way he's documenting everything leading up to it. This massacre is his film. Just like I said introverts will turn inward and create to cope, the ones who choose destruction do the same. They still create destruction. Now, with that in mind, ask yourself what Eric Harris's anger stems from. He's enraged that the right people, like jocks and popular girls, have shunned him from their social group, causing the school to feel more like a prison during the four years he spent there. He refuses to go on physically because he can't get past that emotionally. And if the thing he can't get past emotionally is the years he spent at the school and how they're going to haunt him forever, then the destruction he'll create is the physical manifestation of the emotional desire at hand. He wants to wipe Columbine High School and all these people who tormented him from memory, but can't. So he indulges that physical manifestation of an emotional issue in a literal interpretation that involves blowing up the school and killing any survivors coming out. That ensures every one of his memories from the school, including the building itself, will be gone. It's irrational, but that's how evolutionary crime works. And what's really interesting, and the way you can guarantee it's an evolutionary consideration, is that engaging the physical manifestation of emotional issues is common both to criminals suffering from psychosis and those who are sane. Eric Harris was not psychotic when he planned or carried out this attack. On the other hand, a common example I give of someone engaging the physical manifestation of an emotional issue in a nonviolent way is Emma Filipov moving furniture out of the shelter where she was staying because it wouldn't stop talking to her. She had descended into psychosis, yet was using the same method as Eric. And a cursory examination of that shows that one of these people was a good person and the other was a killer. But the reason they have that commonality 
of engaging the physical manifestation of an emotional issue is that irrational logic like that, based in symbolism and metaphor, rather than the material world, is created for the purpose of telling us something about what they wanted but couldn't articulate. And if they're asking you to watch them try to transcend an emotional problem through physical means, you have to stop and ask yourself why. It's impossible. But both of these people gave us that message prior to death and from opposite perspectives. Why did they do that? What they are clearly saying is that they were unable to transcend their emotional issues through that conduit of emotion, and so, out of desperation, they tried to conquer the problems physically, even though the logic is faulty. People are constantly telling us that they want to transcend emotional issues through physicality because our looks are often the cause of the emotional problems we can't fix. Dylan wasn't pretty. Eric was a skinny punk. Nobody took them seriously. Those types of issues plague the teenage mind because they have no identity. So when they see problems with what they look like or how people treat them, they internalize that as their identity, one they can never escape because our physicality stays mostly the same. You can go to the gym, but you can't buy five inches of height or a pretty face. Evolution makes physical change extremely hard, and it requires tremendous discipline because it doesn't want us to be content with who we are. When you're happy, you're placated. You don't seek change. Here's the deal. If you're not pretty and the social thing isn't working out, you're supposed to go create things that would make you into the powerful being you desire. Eric Harris did that in the form of a mass shooting because he's a psychopath. There was never a time when he believed this was an emotional problem. The problem was physical to him, and he planned a physical solution. Now, in reality, or his ignorance, it was an emotional issue. There's no doubt. So, despite the horrific tragedy that unfolds, which is beyond words, Eric Harris delivered a well-made directorial debut, however flawed, that painted a very compelling narrative complete with a theme. The series of videos from shooting in the woods to making numerous short narrative films to interviewing classmates to the basement tapes to the blueprints for blowing up the school, Eric absolutely did indulge that creative introversion. What he left is disgusting, but profoundly enlightening because he put everything he had into it. This event was planned and carried out with an incredible amount of passion, so much that Eric probably never stopped to think why he didn't just go all out making films or designing violent video games. And the reason he didn't is that his psychopathy made him not care one bit about the lives of other people. He needed help. Not then. Years earlier. Look, Eric was described as a kid who played soccer and wore preppy clothes before starting school at Columbine. Do you know why that stopped? Because the other kids who dressed like that and played sports became popular kids while he didn't mature into the right look or level of ability to remain in that social group. He mentions repeatedly how much he hates the jocks or the white hats at school. He vows to kill anybody like that. That's self-hatred. He wanted to be one of them. It was hate them or hate himself.
pretty soon he wasn't going to have them to blame anymore. Once they graduated, Eric would have to move past it, leaving it unresolved. He'd have to move on. So before any of these things had a chance to leave him physically, he engaged the physical manifestation of the emotional issue by trying to blow up the school and all the people he hated inside. Those two things, the school and the people inside, symbolize his brain and thoughts, respectively. But since the reality is that his brain and the thoughts are actually the problem, the last action he ever takes on this earth is acceptance of the truth. Accordingly, he finally targets the real problem, his brain, by putting a shotgun under his chin and blowing that very brain and all those terrible thoughts right out of his head. The truth always comes out in the wash. So why is there so much anger among young males regarding their schools? We are not teaching intellectual diversity. We're still teaching social dominance wins, and everything else loses. It's primitive. Technology is changing that. But in 1999, kids playing 14 hours of video games instead of going out to socialize made others think of them as losers. The truth is that they're supposed to build the future of virtual reality and artificial intelligence. Eric and Dylan were right on the cusp of that understanding. They flocked to video games, filmmaking, and acting to cope. But it isn't enough to just have kids these days and let them figure out who they are in college after suffering a nightmare of a high school experience. We tell them to just wait until it's over, and they'll have different adult lives. But four years is a long time for a teen to suffer with the belief that nothing is going to change for him. If we recognize that life exists in two contexts, social and evolutionary, these kids will learn that the reason they're getting kicked to the curb by the social or extroverted people is because they're supposed to be working on evolutionary creation. That's where they win. So we need to help get them to that place and also to understand evolution has their back. Society will treat them with varying degrees of kindness or hate, but evolution will love them unconditionally. The acceptance and love they seek from others is inside them. Learn from extroverts. How do they behave? Like the sun. They want to be the center of attention. Introverts want that too. And then they pout because they're shy or weird. Creation levels that playing field. You create things the extrovert can't, like magic, and just like the sun, you become the light source or center of your universe, and they come to you. You don't have to ask. That's the same privilege extroverts have that made you angry to begin with. And that's how introversion works. But it's such a mystery because society spent so long telling us to get over being shy and created school systems conducive to success by the extrovert. Those school systems are drowning so many people right now because evolution can only communicate intuitively. None of these kids has any idea what to do. And crazy people, like yours truly, with brains strange enough to realize what's going on, comprise the tiniest percentage of the population. And what does that mean? Use your intuition. Feel for this one. What is that telling us? Look at the whole incident. What is the number one thing Eric wanted to do? The grand scheme. He wanted to blow up the school. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's the physical manifestation of an emotional issue, as we discussed. 
But lurking beneath Eric's individual desires, we'll see evolution's desires because the physical manifestation of an emotional issue is an evolutionary process. What is it saying? It's telling us our schools are becoming obsolete. Technology is enabling humans in a way that is slowly but surely negating the requirement for kids to have years of education in such an archaic setting. More and more, we rely on technology that has faster and faster recall ability that makes our brains and educational system obsolete. And look what Eric tried to blow up. First the school, then his brain. He is nothing less than a maniacal, infamous martyr who's revered by so many depressed and angry kids because he cried out with the truth in a way no one else had before or even since. His message is loud and clear. We want out. Eric Harris was protesting the adherence to social context that caused suffering. These kids want to escape the nightmare of false comfort and happiness they were promised by a stagnant middle-class lifestyle. But society is full of lies, so Eric gave us an evolutionary truth. This system is breaking down, and if we want to know what causes it, by way of intuition, all we need to examine is the method by which Eric delivered his message. Technology. Technology is the easy answer. Why is this happening? All of our educational systems are geared toward learning in the context of the human brain as our operating system. Your six-year-old child can Google the answer to absolutely anything taught in a 12-year education before ever stepping foot in the door of a school. It's just an extension of the more primitive times when I was a kid and you had to take math tests without a calculator to prove your skill. That is nothing less than a total waste. I have had access to a calculator every moment of every day I have ever needed one in life. The middle class values citizens have embraced in this country trace back to post-war America in the 1940s when GIs came home from victory overseas to join a flourishing workforce made strong by the industry of making machines of war. The United States became an industrial juggernaut and we needed a lot of workers to accommodate such as car assemblers, factory managers, and all sorts of other middle-of-the-road, blue-collar, and management positions that required even more salespeople to accommodate. We were quickly becoming a consumer culture, which led to the demand for more technology related to comforts conducive to relaxing at a post-war, picture-perfect 1950s middle class. Radio, the invention of the television. Most families were buying cars. Some even had more than one. The electric guitar brought about the creation of rock and roll, causing the music industry to explode. Movies were being colorized. TV soon after. Spaceships were being built. Jet propulsion technology was developed. But most importantly, what we should learn in examination is that this explosion of post-war, middle-class consumer culture produced the first digital computer, or brain, that was extraneous to the human body. Of course, that's exactly what happens. The first digital computer is built starting in the latter part of World War II in 1943 and completed post-war in 1946, just in time for what is going to be the worst mental health crisis the world has ever known. Starting in the 1950s, as we adopted this technology in the name of ease and comfort, we began a steady mental decline. Depression, anxiety, and suicide became superstars in the aftermath and it's the technology initiated to replace the human brain with the pursuit of smaller, 
more manageable and efficient computers over the long haul, the era of brain regulation by way of alchemy began. It needs to fail to prove AI is the right answer. Human fear of AI would be insurmountable in the absence of repeated failures that prove to us that there is simply no other way. So, those processes run concurrently, one to create the final product of a replacement brain, and the other narrative being conducive to repetitive failure. Treatment of the brain is the social facade we use to disguise ourselves from the fear we'll become AI with artificial brains, until which point we have exhausted all other options and perfected the technology. Our world works in a two-context pyramid that rises to a solution at the top by way of tradition and progress, or society and evolution, with society offering the bullshit fake solution and evolution offering real change. Politics, as we know it in society, is nothing more than a calibrating method for the pacing of technology in relation to resources. If we have a problem that suggests there won't be enough resources or technology to accommodate the push toward progression, evolution unleashes the Kraken with conservatism. Likewise, when conservatism stifles progress, it opens the floodgates on empathy. You and I are chess pieces on that board. We are individual entities, like a queen, a rook, or a pawn, with individual purpose, and also team purpose, comprising the social aspect, but we also move in the context of a single strategy guided by someone's hand from above. You might call that thing God. I call it evolution. Everything we invent falls in line with a simple, two-pronged evolutionary design, tradition and progress. Dylan was the tradition, being more conservative in his approach, hesitating to fully commit, and Eric was a freight train of progress, trying to burn the world to the ground without the expertise to know how. The symbolic relevance of this evolutionary crime is evident in the result of the popularity of these killers. Consider this. The Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz, achieved the highest kill count of one of these high school shooters last year when he alone murdered 17 innocent students and received tremendous national news coverage not only related specifically to the incident, but also in relation to gun control issues. It's still talked about on news outlets on a regular basis and mentioned on social media. Meanwhile, Eric and Dylan died well before the social media era, and people were limited to learning about them, mostly from national news coverage and subsequent special programming on those networks. They should be more obscure and less popular with today's angry youth. But they're not. Right now, on Instagram, there are fewer than 10,000 posts related to Nicholas Cruz. Dylan Klebold has more than 98,000 tagged posts, and Eric Harris has 110,000. Now, from personal experience, I can tell you I've been followed on Instagram by numerous people utilizing variations of the Harris and Klebold names, glorifying them, but I can't remember anyone ever utilizing the name of another shooter. It's always those two, especially Eric, because he crafted this narrative. Eric Harris wrote and directed his manifesto about middle-class values imploding. You want symbolism? That's why the bombs didn't go off in the cafeteria and blow up the school. Our emotional state is caving in on itself. Mental health is crumbling. Eric can blow up the school and his brain, but we have to deconstruct. Reverse engineering problems reverse engineers brain function and allows us insight to the problems. That won't come by way of social awareness. You can be as aware of your problems as you want. The only way they go away is when you create solutions. There will be no school in the future. 
you will just upload information. The idea of being taught by others manually, face-to-face, through teachers and mentors, will be totally laughable. Anyway, back to the basement tapes. We start in Eric's basement bedroom with Eric filming Dylan on a camcorder. There are pipe bombs laid out across the bed, all wrapped in duct tape. Now, no pun intended, the idea being displayed here starts with a bang. It says something much different than most videos you might encounter like this. Normally, people are filming each other and trash talking while holding guns or even shooting guns at targets. It's a long-standing tradition in America. We have a lot of people who either want to shoot a lineup of watermelons with an AR-15 or just hold the gun and talk about how great they are. But guns, in and of themselves, and especially within the narrative of why they're sold to us, are intended for protection, target practice, or hunting game. Building bombs, on the other hand, especially something as crude as pipe bombs, in quantity, suggests that you're going to use them to destroy something. The gun can be locked away and ignored. Bombs are usually built when needed for use. You don't want to keep that thing in your bedroom. So, owning a gun doesn't necessarily mean you're planning anything, but building bombs? That makes a much different statement. Here we have pipe bombs lined up across the bed. It says they're planning a massacre before they even say a word. Now, these kids are suicidal, and Eric's a psychopath, so nobody in this case cares about the danger of storing pipe bombs at home. But the point of all this documentation is to show, by way of technology, that the kids were smarter than the parents in the sense they weren't detected in their planning. The video allows them to transcend the state of death after the shooting to show us, their parents and the police, just how ignorant everybody is of the problem. They weren't getting help for their issues in a way that made a difference. Eric was descending into psychopathy. Dylan was depressed, not eating and losing weight. And they wanted to be noticed. They wanted help, but they didn't want to ask. Teens tell you they're fine because all of these problems are new and they're ashamed to have them. It's just like sexuality. When we hit puberty, the strangest thing we have to deal with is eradicating the onset of shame associated with sexuality. And why does the teen mind work like this? Shameful of what it is? Because adults have different needs than kids, and most of them are emotional. Teens are given problems for which they aren't yet emotionally suited or experienced, and feel shame because they're all related to things nature intentionally disallows their parents to give them, primarily sex. Kids, up until those changes occur, have all of their needs satisfied by their parents. But strangely enough, sex is what turns you into an adult from the standpoint of responsibility. Notice how many grown men we have living in their mother's basement, still mooching their food and not working in developed countries. And what is it these men aren't pursuing that their more successful counterparts are out in the world? Sex. If you want to have sex, you have to compete with other people to get it, meaning you'll have to convince someone that you're a better choice than the next person. The way evolution makes you grow up and causes you shame in an effort to comply is by making sex something your parents definitively cannot give you. They can buy you a car or a computer, even send you to tennis lessons or to spring break. But it will come down to your physical actions in the world when seeking to have sex. So if you don't want to have sex and prefer to eat mom's cereal and live in the basement, you can avoid becoming an adult simply by not having sex. And evolution is fine with that. 
It uses fewer resources than putting you in prison and still removes you from the gene pool moving forward. But it wants you to succeed, so as a team, it puts your sex drive in high gear, escalating the shame and desire to have sex, urging you to act. Those who take the hint, act on it, and have success are going to be much happier and on their way to doing things that acquire more adult resources in the pursuit of having sex. Car, job, clothes, education, a home. The pursuit of sex in your teens develops skills and acquires resources that, in your adult life, lead to the pursuit of creating the next phase. A family. But if you're Eric and Dylan, who want to get laid but can't, and desire to be part of this process, but get shunned and have no success, you aren't going to move forward to the future. You're going to be stuck on the fact you aren't succeeding. That leads to feelings of worthlessness, anger, depression. You're being sent a cruel message that society is extracting your inferior DNA from the gene pool. But the truth is that the introvert can't be seen as the sun from the outside. These creative, bright teens needed to turn inward gather their pain, and toss it like confetti onto the canvas of the world with ideas geared toward loving humanity. Instead, they did it with bullets, and I'm 100% convinced it's because Eric was a psychopath. Dylan was clearly on the road to suicide, but he was Eric's follower. Dylan was lost and didn't know where to go. Eric was lost, but had a plan to kill. They were both suffering the same thing, but from vastly different perspectives. The symbolism in this case couldn't be more apparent. Eric and Dylan wore black because they were introverts who absorbed the light, and the jocks with white hats were extroverts who reflected the sun or shined for everybody to see. The introvert is supposed to collect that absorbed light, create magic within, and allow it to explode like magic into the world where others can see it and love them for it. The difference is that the introvert's light is inside, the extrovert's light is outside. That's why we have to teach kids like Eric and Dylan to find who they are rather than trying to cater to being someone they're not. Let's teach them they're beautiful and help them to understand how they can succeed too. Technology has changed the world. The introvert does not need to conform. You don't have to go out and play. You can stay inside and do that even in your head. Don't let the world tell you who you are and we won't have kids who do it either. That's the point. Wayne Harris, Eric's father, took copious notes about his son's angry and erratic behavior and even reportedly took him into the mountains to dispose of a pipe bomb after finding it. But Eric doesn't seem to have been confronted about his emotional issues on a level conducive to psychiatric assessment for psychopathy because all this action amounts to is documentation and supervision. Parents tend to do a great job with teens who are well-adjusted, but almost everybody is baffled by how to deal with teens who are out of control. And the reason is that we're so afraid to indulge honesty. There isn't an easy way to say to your son that you understand his life isn't that good because of the looks you gave him, your socioeconomic status, or his social disposition. There's a lot of guilt involved in something like that. If your genes or unwillingness as an adult have contributed to a physical and or circumstantial result that denies your teens social and sexual opportunities they might otherwise have? How do you articulate your guilt and a solution in a way that isn't totally fucking embarrassing and shameful?
The true sadness of this is that we think of this world as a place to compete against others in an effort to win, when the idea is just to become your own star. Look up in the sky. There's plenty of room in this world for everybody to shine. And we all do it in a different way. So every star in the sky will remain unique. We are special, each of us. But we have a responsibility to teach it, not just say it. It truly needs to be qualified with action. And in that respect, we are failing badly. Power comes from purpose, passion, action, and sacrifice. Don't be the things you see in the mirror. They are on your face and not in your heart. Be what you believe in, and your world will become that, but not a second sooner. Do this for the Eric or Dylan in your life. Recognize the struggle and convince them to build the beautiful world in their hearts, forged in pain, because it's the path to happiness they've never known. If we do, and stop even one of these kids from killing, we win. But more importantly, so do they. That's a future we can build one day at a time. So, anyhow, we have bombs all over Eric's bed, and there's a shotgun lying around, the one he ultimately used in the assault. It has the name Arlene engraved on the side of it, and he mentioned that's her name before being seen with the 9mm carbine rifle slung over his shoulder and the shotgun in hand. It's a portrait of exactly what the victims will see coming at them on April 20th, 1999. Now, for some context, the name Arlene likely has significance. In the classic 1986 Stanley Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket, there's a legendary character named Private Pyle who's struggling very badly to get through boot camp to the point it affects his peers, and they attack him physically through bullying to get him to conform. But he can't. By nature of who he is, he's incompetent. So he descends into psychosis, and within his illness, is able to concentrate on becoming the trained killer they want him to be. As this happens, and as he becomes more proficient with his rifle, he names it Charlene. Soon after, on graduation day, when they become Marines, he kills the drill instructor with that rifle and then turns it on himself, blowing his brains out against the wall in dramatic fashion, ending his suffering and, symbolically, by way of the drill instructor, also the institution which caused it. However, he refrains from killing the protagonist of the film, even though he has the gun trained on him. He lets that guy live and just kills himself. And if you examine the reason he let that guy live, it's because that guy was the squad leader and was charged with acting like a parent to Private Pile, quite literally. He buttons his shirts, helps him disassemble and clean his weapons, and teaches him things related to cadence. Now, there are moments when Pyle looks like a small child. You know those moments when you have to physically readjust a small kid when tying a shoe or zipping up a coat because they're not helping and moving around? That's how Pyle is treated by the squad leader, and he becomes more competent. The military wanted Pyle to conform and be like everybody else. The squad leader had to teach Pyle how to achieve the same result of success by turning inward, away from the crowd, and doing things his own way. Extracted from the abuse of the drill instructor and given one-on-one -on -one attention, Pyle becomes everything he couldn't be when asked to conform to the standards of the group, a.k.a. society, by traditional methods. The message here is that conformity is killing the individual. By the time help arrived, it was already too late. They needed to act much sooner. 
evolution brings us works of art like this to inspire greater individual autonomy. Eric Harris was infatuated with violence, the military, and film, so I'm guessing the association between his shotgun, named Arlene, and Pyle's M14 Charlene is intentional. Now this is the part in the tape where Eric shows us that he's acquired 13 clips for his rifle. He makes an inside joke about this, saying, yes, they did have the right number. And within context, this is really heartbreaking. This is what happened. Eric managed to find a way to purchase all of these clips for his rifle and was obviously trying to keep it a secret. But the gun store called his house looking for him and left a message on the family's answering machine to let him know his purchase was available to pick up. Wayne Harris, not realizing what's happening or that Eric even has such a rifle, believes there's simply been a mistake. Luckily for Eric, he catches wind of this and is able to acquire the ammo without further scrutiny, which is such a shame. Had he been caught, things probably would have been different. Now, these tapes are filmed in the months leading up to the event, some of them just weeks or even days out. Right near the end, after flaunting all their weapons and making suggestions about people they hate and want to kill, we get some words of reflection from them. They say goodbyes to numerous people and offer goodwill about their parents. They notify authorities that their parents and friends had no knowledge of any of this prior to it happening, that they weren't at fault. They even apologize to their friends and families and lament about how weird it will be to die only a couple of weeks later. But for me, the one thing that sticks out, above all else, and why these kids needed some kind of intervention, is that Eric Harris becomes somber at this point and mentions he wishes he could have gone to visit old friends in Michigan before his life ends. Then a tear rolls down his face from one eye and he wipes it away. It's a truly genuine moment of reflection. And what hurts so much is that Eric is thinking of people, places, and things that made him happy before his life took a turn in his dreadful teen years. He wanted help. Now in the last basement tape, about 30 minutes before they initiated the massacre on April 20th, Eric does open up about the fact he's angry with his father moving him all over the country to accommodate his military career. He says it never gave him the opportunity to get settled anywhere and prove himself. But the reality is that, if he was a well-adjusted kid, he would fit in anywhere. So I think Eric realizes this, and therefore, there's never any verbal attack on his parents as bad people. He just wants them to know how much he was affected. He also states that he doesn't want to spend any time with them before he goes, because he doesn't want to make it any harder than it already is. He specifically says he wants to avoid bonding. So, I think we can see that there was a lot of love in Eric Harris's heart. But Harris and Klebold both explicitly say the words, quote, We're proving ourselves. And Eric goes on to offer a much more nuanced reason. He says, quote, I'm sorry, I have so much rage. Remember how I said denial would play a huge part in moving this forward? Eric Harris states this massacre is happening because he was, quote, always at the bottom of the food chain, meaning his father moved him around so much and he had to start over. The truth is that he was at the bottom because that's who he was. He needed to be the son of his universe, not the weak link in the social chain. As I write this sentence, I just saw that an 18-year-old woman, a high school senior obsessed with Columbine, traveled from Miami to Florida 
purchased a pump-action shotgun, similar to what Eric used, and began making threats or insinuations about attacking people, closing down schools, and leaving her dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound following a manhunt. The internet is absolutely full of these insane young people, and accordingly, so are our homes. They're mentally ill. The human brain is destroying society. You can accept it or deny it, but either way, you're going to watch it happen, and it's going to be the worst problem the world has ever faced. You think people are depressed now? Give technology another 10 to 20 years, as it compounds in speed at a rate previously unknown by the world, and then subsequently does the same again and again, it's going to get ugly. So, gun control is a huge issue, but it's a social problem. The failure of the human brain through advancing technology and changing needs is an evolutionary issue. Evolution is the roots of a tree. Society is the leaves that grow from its branches. The leaves come and go with the seasons, but you must uproot the tree when it dies, or it will stand, appearing to be alive, yet completely dead on the inside. That is what's happening to our disillusioned youth. The leaves are no longer blossoming from the branches in spring because the roots have been poisoned. We need to excavate the tree, plant something new in its place, and flourish. Now, the rest of the basement tapes are generally comprised of racist rhetoric, hatred toward Christianity, and other students, displays of firepower, and an assertion by Eric that, quote, we are, but we aren't psycho. What he means is he's a psychopath, but hasn't descended into psychosis. His decision is born of rational thought, even if it's mired in his psychopathy. He knows exactly what he's doing and what he wants to get from the result, no matter how antisocial it might be. But perhaps most poignant and relevant is this musing from Eric Harris. Quote, There is no one else to blame but me and Vodka. Vodka was Dylan's nickname. Along with this, Eric admits he had, quote, the best parents, and laments he hopes the cops won't try to pin any of his wrongdoings on them. So, as you can see, Eric Harris is very much an introspective person. But psychopaths? They just don't care. So he moves full speed ahead, never looking back. Dylan, who received no viable help for his issues, followed the path of the person who'd finally take him home. Eric cared. Not in the right way, but he offered a solution. Now, how was Dylan dealing with this in terms of his family? Well, let's get into the day of the massacre now to explore that. On the morning of April 20th, 1999, Sue Klebold wakes up to the sound of Dylan walking quickly past her bedroom door and heading down the stairs to leave the house. As it was earlier than he'd normally get up and he was moving hastily, she popped her head out of her bedroom and called out to him in the darkness. She couldn't see him but heard him utter a single word before shutting the door and changing both of their worlds forever. That word? Bye. That's all he said. Nearly 18 years of memories, from infancy right up to the days preceding college graduation, having lived under the same roof since the start. And then he's just gone. He would never come home. Many people endure loss in that way. In fact, all of us do. One minute they're here, and the next it's all over. But with Dylan, she was going to have to reconcile any of her perceived failures 
that led to this result, against the fact that her son senselessly slaughtered others. The first question you're going to ask, as a parent, is if you could have prevented this. And if even for a moment you think that answer is yes, that's something you'll struggle with for the rest of your life. The question of what if is going to haunt you. So, Dylan's actions on that morning weren't reflective of a lack of loving or caring. He knew if he looked into his mom's face, he'd think of the tremendous damage he was about to cause. Because this tragedy, for Eric and Dylan, only lasted a day, but for everybody else involved, it's the rest of their lives. These wounds run deep. But I think what Sue learned from this, that her son never could, is that our suffering, the things that haunt us, should be the sun from which the fire of our purpose burns and sends rays of light into the universe to offer others hope. She has found purpose in her suffering and engaged it for greater understanding, not just for herself, but for society. And while not all members of society are so forgiving, with many even placing blame on these parents, evolution loves them. Sue made that her purpose, engaging evolution, and guess what becomes the result? She's the only one of the killer's parents to engage with the public. All the rest of them are hiding. Now, I'm not blaming them, as I can't even imagine what it is to be under that type of scrutiny, but it speaks to the unwillingness or lack of desire to change. They haven't endeavored to create understanding and choose silence. Meanwhile, kids are still shooting up schools. So, we don't need more privacy. We need more courage. And in these instances, it takes quite a bit because the criticism is never going to stop. But I think that makes it all the more honorable. I know I was inspired by Sue Klebold mentioning mental health as brain health, suggesting it's more concrete. And here I am, offering hours of unique analysis in the aftermath. So, in your own life, don't stay silent. Because speaking up, no matter how much courage it requires, or how people respond, is truly divine. It changes the world. But you can't do that if you're worried about feeling the heat. You have to be the sun and radiate your light and warmth with purpose. The one area, however, where Sue is wrong, and where I hope I've enlightened you here, is in a quote from a 2004 interview with the New York Times. Perhaps the years have brought greater wisdom with healing, but she asserts at the time, quote, Dylan did not do this because of the way he was raised. He did it in contradiction to the way he was raised, end quote. Unfortunately, that's not true. These teens need more than we've given them. An upper-middle-class house, a tennis court, and kindness don't equate to understanding, and that's what Dylan was lacking. Today's education is pitiful. It's not anyone's fault, but we can do a lot better. Unfortunately, schools are not going to do this. In accordance with what I outlined earlier, schools are interested in retaining their relevance and can only do so if education is deemed sufficient. It's not. The kids we're raising now are leaps and bounds more sophisticated than their predecessors. The difference between one generation today is very much like the difference between ten generations just a few hundred years ago. The brain and its associated function were created for an organic medium. 
our technology is drowning us because it's causing a rift between the worlds. We are already cyborgs. I cannot even believe the population is ignorant of this. My smartphone and my laptop are an integral part of my operating system. Case closed. Technology is not something you use. You are not in control of it. It's transcending humanity as we speak so that you can transcend humanity when the time comes. The reason this is in my brain and not in our world or even articulated by the masses is because the technology isn't ready. I'm just a cheap, third-rate, theoretical pioneer of artificial intelligence. Evolution needs so few people to do this right now that you might not even know anybody else quite like me. My brain is not practical for living in today's world, but it is a dilated access point for the architecture of evolutionary function, so no matter how crazy anybody seems to think I am, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Because in the words of Tom Klebold, Dylan's father, from that same article in 2004, in reference to the awful circumstances at hand, he said, quote, I'm a quantitative person. We're not qualified to sort this out. End quote. Thankfully, dude, I don't know a fucking thing about numbers, but I can qualify what happened in this case, and the human brain is the culprit. He felt at the time that jock culture at the school was to blame for its toxicity, but let me tell you something. Good-looking, popular, young athletes have their glory days early because physical beauty and ability fade. Introverts have theirs later because creativity spawns invention and purpose. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were never denied anything by the jocks. They were shunned for not being jocks. Not only is that the right thing for the jocks to do, but it puts the introvert on the path to his success. The jocks are an integral part in causing emotional movement. But we don't see it or teach it because everything has to be someone's fault in society. In evolution, there is no blame. There is only structure, process, and equality. Everybody is important. You just have to dig deep to find your purpose. The jocks, employed by nature to deliver that message, can only do so intuitively. Evolution can't articulate in words. It needs to engage intuition and translate. Kids can't do it themselves. They have no experience from which to draw insight. Now, let's jump into the terrifying details of the attack on Columbine High School. There are still many people living with physical and emotional trauma related to this attack, but I think it's important to talk about what went on inside the school. The first major thing to mention is that the plot is going to fail. The symbolism tells us that before they even commence, Eric has planned to engage the physical manifestation of his emotional issue by literally trying to blow up the institution of high school that he hates so much, which is impossible because he's one person. So this aspect of the plot fails. The bombs don't go off. And look what situation that forces. It forces the symbolism of their failed plight by taking a plan intended to blow up the school with them safe outside to one where the school remains and they have to go back inside the place they hated, where they die, because symbolically, the pain of high school is what they couldn't get past in their lives. So, prior to going to the school, Eric and Dylan plant bombs with a timer in a field about three miles south of it. 
The devices consist of two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and little propane tanks. The idea is to draw the police and fire department away from Columbine High School. Now, only a couple of pipe bombs and an aerosol canister actually explode, but it's enough to get the attention of people nearby and also causes a grass fire. So while it does the job as a diversionary device, what the two boys don't know is a preview of what's to come. The small propane bombs didn't go off, obviously because they weren't made properly, so we can probably expect the same thing from the larger ones. So somebody calls 911 and informs Jefferson County Dispatch of the incident. Meanwhile, Eric Harris arrives at Columbine around 11.10 a.m. in his 1986 Honda Civic and parks in the junior lot, or south lot, in a space assigned to someone else. Now, in his plans, he noted 11.17 a.m. as the time when the cafeteria, or commons as it was called then, would be most packed with students, the perfect time to detonate the propane bombs. So, the idea is to carry the duffel bags holding the propane bombs into the school and then place them under a table in the commons where they'll go unnoticed with hundreds of other backpacks before walking out. That's when Dylan arrives in his 1982 BMW. He also parks in someone else's spot, but in the southwest lot for seniors. This equates to the two of them flanking the exits for the commons and the rest of the lower level. So no matter which door survivors of the propane bombs try to flee, Eric and Dylan are positioned to mow them down from either side. This is why a diversionary device was necessary. They were planning to be outside rather than in the school where they could keep law enforcement at bay with gunfire, pipe bombs, and having to guess how many gunmen were in there and what other bombs were present. Had the two of them planned to go in and shoot up the school without warning, I'm not even sure they would have bothered with a diversionary tactic. If you examine the amount of time it would have bought them in the parking lot, this event wasn't intended to last very long. Explosion, open fire on fleeing survivors, by then the first police officers are responding, and if you're in the open parking lot without an automatic weapon, it won't be long before they stop you with their numbers. There's nowhere to hide out there, and if the school is burning, you can't go inside. So, there seem to be some flaws with their plan, and I think it changes as it goes along. Um, but anyhow, this is when Brooks Brown comes across Eric in the parking lot, someone he had threatened to kill the year prior, even though he's a former friend of Eric's. His parents had even gone to the police to tell them about Eric Harris, but nothing ever came of it. So Brooks sees Eric in the parking lot and approaches to ask what's up because he didn't see him in school earlier that day. Eric just says that he likes Brooks now and that Brooks should go home. Soon after, Brooks is seen walking away from the school by witnesses, but they didn't see him talking to Eric. Police gave Brooks a polygraph and apparently he passed. There was some question as to whether he might be involved at the time, but the official narrative pretty clearly shows that this was the work of Eric and Dylan, even if there might have been aspects known to certain close friends or acquaintances. There's a lot of speculation that there were other shooters and that the police suppressed the true narrative to cover up what was really happening. But in reality, as I've spoken about repeatedly on my show, eyewitness identification in chaotic, traumatic incidents is often worthless. People project all sorts of shit into a false identity when these things happen. But also, like I've talked about before, do you know what nobody ever gets wrong? The fact the guy had a gun and was firing at people. That's about the only information you can accurately rely upon because the brain narrows its focus during survival situations involving instant death. 
it looks directly for the source of danger and assesses the overall picture to tell you two things. One, what is going to kill me? And two, by what means is it moving? Nothing else matters to save your life. You don't need to know the shooter's name, shirt color, or anything else like that. You ask yourself how to survive, not what the assailant looks like. So what happened in this case is people involved as witnesses described other people and things that were simply not there. There were multiple accounts of a guy named Chris Morris being one of the shooters, as given by direct witnesses, but there isn't any evidence of his involvement. The cops cleared him because the witnesses were incorrect. They likely projected his identity onto the shooters because they believed he was the most likely person to do something like that. Your mind will be happy to fill in the blanks after a traumatic incident that reduces you to worrying about the gun and movements of the assailant. But the truth is it has no idea what really happened. It fills in those blanks because their insignificance is survival. In the future, of course, our eyes will record everything and our brains won't be constructed for the purpose of survival by way of intuition. We'll use data. If we record a perpetrator, we negate the ridiculous pursuit of believing or disbelieving witnesses by way of intuition. Our courtrooms are full of intuition, and it's scary. It's fucking out of control. So, many think otherwise, but Eric and Dylan, by way of science, are the shooters. Anyhow, at about 11.14 a.m., they carry two large duffel bags, each holding a 20-pound propane bomb, into the cafeteria for what is called a lunch. They leave them under a table and walk back into the parking lot to their cars, where they wait for the bombs to explode. They have their guns waiting in the trunk of each car. Now, the investigation determined they intended to go back into the school. They believed this because there were bombs with timers placed in each of the cars, and they also had a bag full of pipe bombs and other things. But those bombs were just intended to kill anyone who wasn't careful enough to think twice about trying to search their cars. Their booby traps, basically, most likely intended to kill any cop who didn't take precaution. If we examine the logic, we know experts confirm the bombs would have killed most of the people in the cafeteria. That's going to cause tremendous chaos, and the building is going to be evacuated from all exits at each juncture of the school. Fire alarms will go off, sprinklers, there will be panic, teachers will immediately try to guide students away from the building. If you wait for them outside, they have to concentrate together like a herd of cattle squeezing out the door of a train car. For anyone with even the slightest bit of knowledge about tactical warfare, being set up outside these doors is a dream come true for a shooter. You only have to aim at the doorway. Conversely, if you go back in the school, into the chaos and smoke, you can get trampled, tackled, involved in a fight, lose sight of where you're going and smoke. And from a tactical standpoint, you not only have to defend yourself at close range from every angle, but you also have to keep turning, shifting, and rotating to try to hit moving targets going in many different directions. It's a low percentage play. There would be far more people available to shoot outside. Eric wanted to kill everybody at the school. I think he actually said there were maybe five to seven people who didn't deserve it. He made this plan, and it shows he had a tactical understanding of the easiest way to ensure killing the most people. Ultimately, as their plan evolved, they only shared bits and pieces, and we don't even know if those things were in their final intentions. 
It's a mystery what might have been said or what plans might have changed in the hours or minutes beforehand. So, the bombs fail to go off, and the boys gather their guns, heading toward the school. Both are wearing black trench coats, Dylan armed with the Tech 9 and sawed-off double-barrel shotgun, while Eric has the 9mm carbine rifle and sawed-off pump-action shotgun. Everybody's worst nightmare is about to commence. It's a beautiful sunny day, and Colorado is one of those places that starts cold in the morning, but the temperature skyrockets when the sun comes up for a few hours. The elevation makes the sun feel that much closer to you because it seems to sit at a lower angle. So, this is a great day for students to go outside at lunchtime, whether to eat or just hang out and relax. Now, Harris and Klebold arrive at the top of the exterior stairs on the west side, the highest point on school grounds. As they're witnessed, one of them, presumed to be Eric, suddenly yells, Go! Now, just to prove what I mentioned earlier about Eric's intentions of homicide being paramount to everything else, as evidenced by choosing a long rifle, he ends up firing 47 total rounds outside with it, while never firing a shotgun out there. Dylan, who was going to fire 67 total rounds in the entire massacre, only shoots half as much as Eric, who fires 121 rounds and only pulls the trigger five times while outdoors. So they fire near the west entrance of the school by the north side of the library, where students Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo are eating their lunch. Both of them are hit instantly. Rachel becomes the first student to die that day, and Richard survives, but ends up becoming a paraplegic as the result of his injuries. You might recall him from the 2002 Michael Moore gun control documentary, Bowling for Columbine, the title of which was a play on the fact that Eric and Dylan were supposed to be at their bowling class on the morning of the shooting. Now, what's really scary about this is that other students think this is a senior prank because this is the day that usually goes down. So instead of running, many people nearby are actually coming closer. In the aftermath, there were witnesses who said they thought it was just somebody firing paintball guns. At that time, Sean Graves, Dan Rohrbaugh, and Lance Kirkland step out the side door of the cafeteria, looking up with curiosity to see what's going on. That's when Eric takes off his trench coat, throws it to the ground, and rests the barrel of his rifle on top of a chain-link fence, aiming down toward the trio. He opens fire, hitting all three. And what makes this so terrible is that the trio is walking toward Harrison Klebold up a hill. They don't realize Eric is killing people. It's so tragic. So he drops all three of them. Five students nearby are sitting behind a pine tree outside a school entrance when the shooters target them too. They take off for cover behind the athletic storage shed, but two of them, Mark Taylor and Michael Johnson, are hit. Unfortunately, Taylor falls down and is unable to get back up, leaving him prone. But Klebold's attention is drawn back to the trio of Rohrbaugh, Graves, and Kirkland. Kirkland is calling for help. Graves, badly injured as well, is dragging himself back down the hill toward a door that leads into the commons. Rohrbaugh is also badly injured. So, Dylan arrives, cold as ice, and puts a kill shot in Rohrball. Again, Kirkland is begging for help, and Dylan supposedly says, quote, Sure, I'll help you, and then shoots him right in the face. The injury was gruesome, but thankfully, this kid survives, although Dylan Klebold believes he's dead. So, 
He's taken both of them out, and by that time, Graves has run out of steam. He tried to crawl back in the building, but ended up wedged in the door, propping it open. He could go no farther, so he played dead, and when Dylan arrived, he must have believed it because he stepped right over Graves. So Graves manages to survive as well. Klebold steps into the commons, looks around from the doorway, making a sweeping motion with his gun, but not firing, and then heads back outside and goes back up the steps to join Eric. It's assumed he was checking out what might have happened to the duffel bags containing the propane bombs. Of course, the bags are there, and the bombs just didn't go off. So the kids are starting to realize what's going on, but the masses still think this is some kind of scene or prank, or Dylan and Eric making a film for their video class. People are going to the windows in the commons to figure out what's happening. Around this time, a teacher named Dave Sanders is coming out of the teacher's lounge and notices something strange is going on. He, in addition to two custodians, realizes that the gunfire is real and the three of them are seen on the common surveillance video telling the students to get down on the ground. Of course, none of these three knows about the huge propane bombs resting nearby. Students start to get under the tables, but as the gunfire continues, Sanders ushers the students out of the commons. A stampede heads out of there toward the upper level of the school, away from the gunfire. And it's a good thing he acted then, because Dylan walks into the commons right at the conclusion of this. Undoubtedly, this quick thinking saved a number of people from getting shot. So, when Dylan gets back to the top of the steps, outside, the assailants fire toward the sports fields at fleeing students and throw pipe bombs on the roof and into the parking lot. Harris, still shooting down the steps, hits Anne-Marie Hockhalter, who, like Richard Gastaldo, survives, but becomes a paraplegic as a result of her injury. A friend is able to drag her away from the hail of bullets, but as she's immobile under her own strength, he's forced to leave her by the commons wall in order to take cover behind a car. That's when he hears Eric Harris say enthusiastically, This is awesome. This is what we always wanted to do. Now, it must have been awful for Anne-Marie to have been left there, but sometimes luck turns your way, even on the worst day you could possibly ever imagine. Eric throws a pipe bomb that explodes in the spot where she had originally been lying after being shot. Now, most students outside have fled or found cover, so the killers turn their attention toward the school. They march toward the west entrance firing their guns. At the same time, teacher Patty Nielsen was heading that way to go outside and tell Eric and Dylan to quit the noise because she figured they were filming a short movie. Notice how many people have already been killed, mutilated, or even just badly mistaken because they expect Eric and Dylan to be doing these things as part of a film or a joke, even with loud gunfire. It isn't because they're naive, stupid, or ignorant. It's because they believed making films and being otherwise creative was what these boys loved to do. Notice Graves, Kirkland, and Rohrbaugh are curious. The teacher is pissed. She's coming out to stop them, not even realizing the pipe bombs are real. Guess what this says? Eric and Dylan were known for something. In their ignorance, people knew what they loved and were even interested. Had this been a senior prank, or even just a film where the teacher had to yell at them to stop? They'd have been the type of dudes who could make a go at a film career. They had these people fooled, and they weren't even trying to fool them in any way. 
Had they done this with paintballs and filmed it, they'd have become legends. They'd have gotten in trouble, sure, but a lot of creative, successful people do crazy things in the pursuit of art. It's such a shame that they couldn't see their worth. Anyhow, Patty Nielsen gets blasted with shards of flying glass as Eric and Dylan shoot through the west doors, sending a very clear message that this is all too real. Meanwhile, two students trying to flee the school are in the airlock of that doorway, having gone through the interior door only to have to drop to the ground before exiting the exterior door. I mean, these two are in between the interior and exterior doors as bullets are flying over their heads. They also get blasted with broken glass. However, all three of these people are ultimately able to flee. Now again, luck even comes into play in bad situations. All three of them would have been shot and killed as Eric and Dylan were about to enter the doorway. But right then, Deputy Neil Gardner arrives in a patrol car with sirens and lights going. Gardner gets out of the vehicle, causing Klebold to step into the building out of sight, but not before the three potential victims near the door can escape. Harris, of course, has no fear, so he stands out there exchanging gunfire with the deputy. Now, the deputy isn't responding to a 911 call. He's a community resource officer stationed at the school, but he's normally at the smoker's pit in the nearby park at lunchtime to make sure there's no trouble over there. He gets a call on his radio from a custodian and drives to the scene. It's at this time someone else calls 911. Patty Nielsen, meanwhile, ushers the two students near the door into the library. Deputy Gardner fires four rounds at Eric Harris, causing Harris to turn away fast in a spin. The deputy believes he hit Eric, but Eric suddenly turns back toward him, totally fine, and fires ten rounds in return before his weapon jams. At this point, he enters the school. Teacher Dave Sanders, meanwhile, is directing students to flee out the east exits of the building, away from the gunfire, and this proves to be a wise move that saves a lot of lives. Without direction, many students might have just panicked and run out the doors like the bombs had actually gone off. He helped prevent it. Teacher Patty Nielsen hides under the front counter in the library, grabbing a phone to call 911. And this is the moment Columbine failed its students so badly, where their lack of preparation or a plan that would actually be implemented costs innocent lives that might have been saved. It certainly isn't her fault, but Patty orders the students to get down under the tables in the library, making them stationary. If the gunfire is going over your head, then that's the place to be. But if nobody is shooting at you yet, you need to move. Unarmed people hiding from gunmen moving freely on foot is not a good strategy. It's a death sentence. And that's why the library turns out to be the bloodiest, most terrifying, and memorable aspect. Patty will yell at the students on the recording to get down under the tables, and when they hesitate, she will assert herself by repeating it with more conviction. So they comply. But the problem is that Eric and Dylan are already out in the hallway and they know the library is a great place to find students at lunchtime. The library normally has even far more kids in it on most days, making it hard to find a seat, but the beautiful day kept a lot of them outside to enjoy the sun. Now, outside the library, down the hallway, students are exiting classrooms in an effort to get out of the building, but they see Harris and Klebold walking toward them, laughing and firing their weapons. 
bullets hit lockers and other objects until Stephanie Munson is shot in the ankle. However, she's able to flee the building with everybody else. It's a really, really fortunate thing that these killers weren't able to acquire automatic weapons. The death toll and other damage would be out of control. Now, another deputy, Paul Smoker, arrives on the scene and tries to attend to a nearby victim outside. Harris comes back to the door he shot out and uses the opportunity to exchange gunfire with the man, but neither person is hit. Another girl sees Klebold walk by while she's on a payphone with her mom. She drops the phone, hides in a bathroom, and when she comes out a few minutes later, her mom is still on the line listening to the shooting. She tells her mom she's okay and then asks to be picked up. Not sure if that's a good idea, but getting out of the building is definitely smart. Uh, so this is confirmed by the mom's cell phone bill. Could you imagine waiting on the line, hearing gunshots, and wondering if your child is ever going to come back to the phone because she could have been shot dead? I mean, this shit is crazy. So Dave Sanders, the teacher ushering students toward the east exits, heads right back into the danger near the west exits in an effort to help students trap down that way. I'm sure he knows all too well that people are holed up in the library, and he's on autopilot at this point. His personal safety is not an issue. He's concerned about getting others out of the building safely. But in heading toward the library, upon reaching the entrance, he crosses paths with Dylan Klebold, who's standing there ready to fire at him with both hands on the Tech-9. Sanders quickly turns back the other way and tries to round a corner out of harm's way, but is shot in the back. Ballistics apparently couldn't prove which gun or shooter had fired the round, but witnesses report Klebold present during the entire hallway attack while Harris was out by the doors shooting at the deputies. So, even though there's no one in the hallway any longer, Eric and Dylan spend three minutes out there shooting guns and lighting pipe bombs. Meanwhile, the people in the library could have made a move. It's been minutes since they were told to get down. Now, like I said before, Eric and Dylan had plans that constantly changed. So what we know from their writings isn't necessarily how the plan was finalized. But it's pretty clear at this point that they don't have a plan. It was foiled. Three minutes shooting at no one and setting off pipe bombs isn't accomplishing anything. But they're rattled because the bombs failed and law enforcement has already arrived. They just don't seem to know what to do. But the library is right there, with plenty of potential victims trapped under the tables. It's so bad, the kids under the tables don't even realize that they can be seen by the killers as soon as they walk in at 11.29 a.m. Harris and Klebold tell everybody to get up, with some witnesses claiming they told the jocks to stand up and others saying they demanded with the words, white hats. Either way, nobody responds. They all just stay under the tables. So Eric says, okay, I'll just start shooting, and lights up the front counter with bullets. Splinters from the damage injure student Evan Todd, who's hiding behind a copier. The shooters then make their way toward the west windows of the library, where they'll be able to assess the situation with the police outside. But on the way, they pass student Kyle Velasquez, who's the only person in the library not under a table at the time. He's just sitting at a computer table on the north side. As Dylan walks toward the windows, he shoots Kyle, killing him. The boys put down their bags of smaller bombs, like Molotov cocktails and pipe bombs. Then Dylan takes off his trench coat, and both of them fire at law enforcement officers below outside the windows. 
And this was my point about why you don't tell the kids to remain stationary under desks. It gives the shooters the opportunity to come into a place where their targets are not only stationary, but on the floor. The room is already under control, and everybody is trapped. Meanwhile, being in that room gives the killers perfect positioning to fire upon law enforcement from those west windows. That creates a situation where the cops can't go into the building to help. There's no question they would have suffered serious losses attempting it at that stage. I believe criticism is warranted for what ultimately transpires, but for right now, the students remaining in the library, under the desks, when they had a chance to move, was a significant factor for the massacre to follow. It actually would have been a better move for a few of the guys to hide near the doorway and try to attack the gunmen while they were wasting three minutes out in the hallway. But they did what the teacher told them to do. It's not her fault, but it's definitely the reason you need a plan to be in place for active shooter situations. Anytime you're not being fired at and not in view of the gunman, you want to move away. Unless you have a place in which you can conceal and barricade yourself until help arrives. Hiding under the table, but exposed, is something you do when you're not the intended target and are just trying to avoid the crossfire. If you're the target, what happens is the following. Patty Nielsen, terrified behind the counter Eric just shot up, drops the phone and no longer communicates with 911. Klebold fires toward table 15, striking Mackay Hall, Daniel Steepleton, and Patrick Ireland. Ireland doesn't realize he's been shot immediately and tries to help the other two, at which point Klebold shoots him in the head. I believe he's hit three times, but this is a very bad situation. Emergency services won't be able to come into the building to get him. The same goes for teacher and coach Dave Sanders. His condition is worsening. He's still holed up in a classroom with students tending to him the best they can. But in the end, he passes as well. So, the situation is dire. Back in the library, Eric Harris kills Stephen Chernow, who's hiding under the South computer table. He also shoots Casey Rugsegger, who's hiding next to Stephen. She manages to survive. Harris then moves to table 19, slams his hand down on the tabletop twice, and then looks underneath, pointing his shotgun, and says, Peekaboo! He pulls the trigger and kills Cassie Bernal, who was sitting under there terrified. But in the process, the shotgun smashes Eric in the face and breaks his nose, because, well, firing a shotgun while bent over is a very bad idea. So, Eric's nose is bleeding, and he's disoriented, but he regains his wits and looks down upon Bree Pasquale. He hasn't quite recovered, so he just asks her if she wants to die. She pleads for her life, and Eric laughs before saying everybody's going to die anyway because they're about to blow up the school. But then he leaves Bree when Dylan calls his attention to the fact that a student under table 16, Isaiah Scholes, is black. As Harris approaches, Dylan makes several racial slurs and remarks while attempting to pull Isaiah out from under the table. Harris just walks up, cold-blooded, and murders Isaiah without a word. Klebold then fires under the table and kills Matthew Kector. Eric throws a CO2 cartridge under the next table, table 15, and Mackay Hall, who's already injured, grabs it quickly, 
tossing it away before it explodes. The two assailants move east toward the library's entrance, where Dylan shoots out the display case and fires at Table 1, injuring Mark Kinson. He then fires under Table 2 right next to it, critically injuring Valene Schnorr and also hitting Lisa Kreutz. Both would live, though Schnorr is badly wounded and calling for help from God. Klebold continues alongside that table and fires the gun as fast as it will allow, shooting Lauren Townsend multiple times and killing her. Harris is nearby at table three. He looks underneath and sees two girls hiding, but he doesn't kill them. He just watches them cowering and says, Pathetic. There's some speculation the broken nose took all the fun out of this for him, and I'm guessing that's likely true. His behavior definitely changes in the aftermath. He even leaves the killings at the tables to go into the bookshelves where he rages with profanity, shakes the racks, and fires his guns at books. Klebold, meanwhile, goes back to Valene Schnorr to taunt her about her belief in God and how he's not coming to save her. Then he walks away without shooting her again. So, Harris fires under table six, injuring Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin. Tomlin panics and comes out from underneath the table where Klebold steps in and kills him. And if this isn't chaotic enough, there's smoke pouring into the library from the fires caused by the bombs they threw in the hallway, making the alarm sound. So this whole thing is just nothing less than terrifying. Harris fires at Kelly Fleming near table two and kills her, at which point he then shoots under that table and hits Lisa Kreutz, who was already shot by Klebold, in addition to Lauren Townsend, who'd already been hit multiple times by Klebold's gunfire. Harris then also shoots Gina Park under that table before they go to the center of the library and reload their weapons at table 13. That's when Harris notices someone he thinks he recognizes under table 11 and asks the person to identify himself. The guy looks out, and it's actually someone Dylan likes. The kid asks, Dylan? What are you doing, man? And Dylan's response? Oh, just killing people. And the kid asks, Are you going to kill me? Dylan hesitates and then tells him to get out of the library. So he takes off. Harris then shoots under table 9 and kills Daniel Mauser. That's when both gunmen fire under table 14, injuring both Austin Eubanks and Erica Doyle. But in the process, Corey DePooter is also shot and killed. He becomes the last victim. It's approximately 11.35 a.m., and the carnage in the library is unspeakable. Harris throws a Molotov cocktail, and then the two of them go to the main counter of the library, where they see Evan Todd, who they taunt about whether or not they're going to kill. Eventually, they just walk away and let him live. The gunman exit. Ten students were killed in the library by Harris and Klebold. Another twelve were injured. And while it would be a few minutes before the survivors got their bearings and began to exit in small groups, among wailing fire alarms and smoke, those who were injured, including Patrick Ireland and Lisa Kreutz, were left to suffer their fate for a period of up to several hours. By 2.38 p.m., Patrick Ireland, shot in the head and bleeding profusely, makes a daring move by throwing himself out a West Library window onto the top of an ambulance where emergency services workers finally tended to him. Around 3.30 p.m., 
Lisa Kurtz becomes the last of the injured to be taken for treatment. Needless to say, it was a long, slow, agonizing day for anybody who was in that library. But they were among the living. Life, however different, would go on for them. For those who died in the library, they had the dishonor of lying in their own blood overnight before their bodies were taken elsewhere for autopsy. The situation was so chaotic and so dire, it was required for the investigation. But some of these families weren't even officially notified by police that they had lost a child. So, there were certainly no winners in this situation. And this is where the confusion escalates. A student hiding in the kitchen area of the commons mistakes custodians he hears using walkie-talkies as shooters and makes a 911 call asserting the gunmen are communicating like that. So, police think they have technology in excess of what they really do. This is when Eric and Dylan go down to the commons and Eric shoots the propane bombs in the duffel bags to try to get them to go off. Dylan fools around with them too, but it doesn't work. They even come back again shortly thereafter but it's a total disappointment. That's when they decide to go back up to the library where gunfire erupts out of the west-facing windows around 12.02 p.m. Law enforcement returns fire and the SWAT team is assembling outside, something the shooters can see. So, by 12.08 p.m., there are no longer any shots coming from the library. According to the findings of the investigation, this is when they killed themselves. Eric Harris is lying on the floor with his head up against the library bookshelf, the victim of a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. He apparently died instantly. With Eric being the alpha, Dylan is found lying at his feet, deceased from a 9mm round to the head. Dylan did not die right away. He asphyxiated on his blood. But it was over for them. No matter the truth, Eric and Dylan would suffer no more. Their pain died with them. But for the students, faculty, and families of the victims, the nightmare was only just starting. Now, many people have asked why they spared some people and seemed to kill randomly, for the most part, aside from the targeting of Isaiah Scholes due to racial considerations. In the end, we have a list of injured people and a stack of dead bodies, but there's no theme running through the reasoning when you examine who they killed. Some of the kids they attacked were geeks, some jocks, some pretty people, some not-so-pretty people. They killed one teacher, spared another, didn't follow up on killing injured people, didn't shoot their way into classrooms, didn't move at a frenzied pace to rack up the kill count, or anything else extreme. The reason for this is fairly simple. Even when angered to the point we think violence against others is what we really want, the truth is that we just want control. We become angry and violent due to the absence of being able to control our circumstances and other people's actions or perceptions of us. Eric and Dylan felt powerless at school. Violence was just the conduit by which they achieved power. Before killing, they were quantifying power by saying they're going to kill everybody. The more power you have to kill on a mass scale, the more control you're offered and the more godlike you become. Eric wrote that his plans were the, quote, writings of God. And they were. Not the one you might pray to, but in the context of power. 
This was Eric Harris's manifesto for self-deification, no doubt. If we examine the death in the library, it's very much like what we see in life every day. People die for different reasons, at different times, and for reasons we can't explain. And something has a power over this, and we often call that thing God. And so, God does not take all lives at all times. And this is exactly what the shooters did. They went in there, tortured, teased, and controlled, killed whoever they wanted, and did anything they wanted because it all led to power. Killing was not the ultimate goal, the power was the goal. So, if I examine this situation from start to finish, looking at the risk factors involved and the build-up to the incident, the number one reason, in my mind, why this mass shooting happens is because Eric and Dylan were not separated after the incident where they were arrested and charged for breaking into the van to steal. Eric drew Dylan across the line of criminality in terms of antisocial behavior. Dylan was scared to death, especially of the cops, but wanted to feel powerful. Eric offered him that through criminality, and he took the bait. It was going to happen again, and on a larger scale. Eric was a leader with no followers, a pseudo-alpha male who thrived on narcissism based in one's inability to see his greatness. That's the psychopath, a puppet master. They use their resources to control you. Only Dylan Klebold saw Eric Harris as powerful and having an answer to his problems because only Dylan was that desperate and powerless. That's what we need to understand here, how truly sad this is. These two were entirely alone, looking for a way to empower themselves for just one moment before leaving this world. The only way they could succeed was to become God. They became that disillusioned. It didn't start that way, but if we dissect the scenario at play, it's clear the failure in this case, on the part of the school, parents, and faculty, and especially the teens, is the failure of communication. We are afraid to tell each other it hurts because we can't replace our faulty brains. Mental illness was, and still is, to a certain extent, stigmatized because it doesn't offer the opportunity for maintenance or repair through material means. For instance, if there's something wrong with your head and you talk to a psychiatrist and then get meds from a prescription given by a psychologist, the social view of the situation is not one where you're fixing something, but one where you're admitting you're broken. And the stakes truly are very high here. Your genetic value in the eyes of others can be greatly diminished by mental health issues. But if you break your arm, people advise it will grow back stronger. Why do we not view the human brain this way? Well, it doesn't heal very well in comparison to the rest of the body. It's not able to be fixed in traditional ways. And guess why? Because it's intended to evolve into renewable technology. I sincerely wish I could put everybody inside my head for just one minute to view how silly we really are. We're using chemical cocktails like bartenders of mental health, serving up one concoction after another, hoping something might work. When I took medication like this, I immediately had thoughts of suicide. I mean instantly and they kept getting stronger. The psychologist said, we need to up the dose. And my brain was like, fuck that. You need to get this shit out of me right now 
or I will drive you into the dirt. Just try me. So I stopped, and I was still crazy, but never had a suicidal thought again, or even before. And I'm like, dear brain, I'm unhappy. It's your fault. What can I do? And he's like, I'm sorry, dude, but I'm tired of listening to your shit. I really don't care. And I said, huh, I guess if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And my brain says, exactly, because it ends up being a product of your desires, something you can understand and control. And I realize he's right. So why don't I just shut up and start working? So here I am telling you about what goes on behind the face of the clock because I don't want to see a world where we continue to point the blame at phantoms. Society chases shadows in pursuit of a truth extraneous to brain function. We blame the jocks, the pretty girls, the social hierarchy, teen angst, and depression. But the reality is that every criticism of mental health should explicitly mention the human brain as the culprit. There is absolutely no negotiation on that point. By making mental health about issues instead of the brain, we slow technology. Every therapist session that has ever taken place in the history of the world comes down to a concept singular in expression. The brain is a total piece of shit. My smartphone is like five years old, and it's amazing. It's actually gotten better through updates, even though it's obsolete in the context of the latest technology. I have far more respect for that phone than I do for my brain. But it isn't precious. At any minute, I might just go out and get a better one. That should be the human brain. And it will be. But until then, take that advice Sue Klebold gave in her TED Talk. Refer to mental health as brain health because it's more concrete. We will begin to view the brain as a material resource rather than a mystical creation of God. People often talk about unlocking the potential of the human brain and how we only use a small portion of its capability. Seriously? My fucking laptop doesn't ask me to unlock some mystical secret. It has drop-down menus to make it practical. Mysticism and intuition are low-percentage plays. Data is superior in every way. What is the point of saying you're afraid you won't feel human as artificial intelligence when half the world is already complaining about being dead inside? Evolution does not function without profound levels of unhappiness and suffering in the world. It's driven by conflict. And that's so awful, I can barely face the truth. Many people fantasize about a better world and wonder why we can't just fix things with all this money we have. Evolution does not allow a ratio of happiness to misery better than one to one. It can't. If someone takes, someone else has to make. That's the flow of energy in evolution. There is no autonomy. You can take or you can create. But if the energy is going toward you, an equal amount of energy is leaving others. Resources are calibrated in a manner that there isn't enough for everybody. Evolution ensures that by making us organic creatures who must rely upon consumption for survival. In AI, with the absence of constant consumption from food 
to water, to sunlight, to fossil fuels, and so on, we are not enslaved to anything imposed by evolution. Freedom is the most inspiring, thought-provoking, and important ideal we harbor. Ask yourself why that is. Why do we explode in anger when freedom is withheld? The answer is that all of us, regardless of our location on the globe, are in prison. Humanity exists inside an intellectual prison comprised of profound emotional horrors we desperately want to escape, even in our dreams. That's the truth. Change won't come today or even tomorrow, but humans will transcend evolution through replacement of our operating system, and the reason this is so important beyond any other consideration is that we get to design and build it. Nature won't have any say in the matter. That's why you're told to love yourself no matter what. Self-care. It's so hard, but we need that love to build a new brain. So, we can hate Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold on a social level, but we have to love, understand, and act upon the human issues related to the brain that hurt them. Because even though most of us will never do something so awful, plenty of people are feeling just like them inside their heads. Hopeless, worthless, and ugly. But you are not. You're the most beautiful thing to ever happen in this world. And so am I. That goes for everybody else, too. We are all part of the same machine, collectively a single organism, by way of a thread called intuition. I see it when I look in your eyes. You see it in mine. But it can't be articulated, so we're afraid. And we stay silent about it. Data is going to change that. It's going to connect all of us within a collective intellect. The Internet is an early prototype of this model. Right now, we have our own brain only accessible to us as individuals, and we have the Internet, a brain accessible for society as a collective unit. In the future, we'll have a multifaceted intellect born of two separate functions, social and metamorphical, rather than social and evolutionary, like we have now. Freedom, in the form of individual autonomy, will include the ability to transcend not only emotional issues by way of data and software updates or maintenance, but also the ability to change anything physical you don't like about yourself in an instant. If you get an IT person to look at your malfunctioning computer, even if the hard drive fails, it can be fixed in a matter of hours and work perfectly again. Why the hell would we not want the same situation with our brains? Click a button, download a solution, and get back to what you're doing without being tortured by the past to teach you lessons. We are tortured by the past because we can't update our brains to include those experiences and lessons by way of data. So it punishes us with regret, misery, and depression in order to prevent us from behaving that way again or engaging circumstances that might lead to it. A world without mortality negates the survival requirement of an operating system based in intuitive fear. Most people don't cross the road of life because they're afraid to get hit by a passing car they never saw coming.
without the fear of finality, you won't hesitate to take risks and be the person you are meant to be. We all have that person in our heads for a reason. The one we intend to be, but never get around to indulging because we're stopped by fear of the unknown. The one that's kinder, stronger, more forgiving, helpful, enthusiastic, relentless, more dedicated. We all envision a better version of ourselves, but don't get there. No matter how many improvements we make, evolution is laughing. It's in the back corner like, I can't wait for this shit. Go to the gym, lose weight, change your diet, do charity work, and all the rest of it. Because once you do, I'm just going to reformulate that phantom version of yourself in your head to be even better, and you'll still feel inadequate. It's pushing us toward getting the hell out of its house. It's tired, old, and cranky. We leave plastic in the oceans like dirty laundry on a teen's bedroom floor. We're taking everything we can from the house, emptying the cupboards instead of moving out, drilling for oil, slaughtering animals, taking opioids. It's the evolutionary version of not growing the fuck up and making something of yourself. Nature is disgusted at this point. It has loved us unconditionally, forever. But just like what happens if you don't move out of mom and dad's house, things are starting to get ugly. We're impeding upon nature in unprecedented ways, destroying everything in sight with consumption and paying no rent in return. And like that team, we're engaging denial in an effort to not change and grow up. Because it's scary. These things exist in our families because evolution is apparent. We did not create the brain or the family structure. We were given that by our creator. So when we, as humanity, go out into the world on our own, just like a college grad doing it, and start our own adult life with our own family, we get to choose how to run things. Your parents have no say inside your home as an adult. And that's the purpose of family in an evolutionary context, to teach us that. The earliest trips into space leave Earth for launch pads and go into the sky. That symbolism is no accident. That's us starting to take off as adults. Space is empty, not so we can find more sophisticated others to save us, but to create. It's a palette, an organic medium of possibility, waiting for the light in your heart to fill its blank canvas with the bright colors of imagination and desire to dream. When you're three years old and someone gives you a coloring book, that's why. That's the space you're filling in. It gives you a framework. You make it your own. Look for the parallels and metaphors all around you. They all offer the truth. And that truth equates to one idea, the only thing that ever matters in our world. Hope. So, in closing this out, I just want to acknowledge the bravery and sacrifice of so many people on April 20th, 1999, many of whom haven't been mentioned here, and even more with struggles in their heads to which we'll never be made aware. Because of all the tragedies that occurred on that fateful day, the ones we can't quantify are the emotional deaths. The ones that weren't buried days later.
and didn't receive any type of memorial to validate the suffering. There are people who have lived alone with these feelings, the what-ifs, regrets, and anger, for the last 20 years. And it saddens me to know that there is nothing any one of us can do to end the pain they didn't ask for and never deserved. We are helpless to fix it. That means, for now, we can only be human, offer our love, and strive for greater understanding. But in that stark reality, within its darkness, we can see the light. So if there's a clear path ahead, and only the past behind, the secret to life is to keep moving forward, no matter what. But most importantly, remember to burn bright, like a star in the sky, so when others turn to you, searching for hope and meaning, you can help them to shine. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cold Case Murder Mysteries for a very special episode. I'm your host, Ryan Krauss, set to take you on a fascinating journey into the psychological implications of Alfred Hitchcock's legendary 1960 film, Psycho. Now, this episode serves as a preview of a new film and TV analysis podcast I'm planning to release in the near future, but it's also a nice fit for those only interested in the true crime genre because an infamous killer inspired this movie. As a reminder... Most episodes of Cold Case Murder Mysteries are available only by premium subscription on coldcasemurdermysteries.com. Be sure to download the free Cold Case Murder Mysteries app in the App Store for iPhone or in Google Play for Android. Donations to the show, which are greatly appreciated, can be made on the website by simply clicking the donate link on the homepage. Plus, the show has a Patreon page and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen are also appreciated. So, on that note, we have some Patreon shout-outs to do right now to start the show. Okay, so I have a bit of a long list here because I owe some Patreon shout-outs, so just going to reel right through these quickly. Um, again, thank you so much for your support, everybody. I really appreciate it. First up, Alex, Allison Jahanet, Amanda Wormall, Ann Stewart, Ariel Brennan, Ashley Janney, Baked and Awake, the podcast. Beth Markey, Billy West, Bonnie Lee, Brandy, Candace Cairns, Cara Helene Strip, Cecilia Regan, Cody Heller, Colleen McDonough, Connie G, Denise Hess, Alina, Eric S, Getting Off Podcast, Halima Williams, I Am Silver Girl, Jane, Jean Metcalf, Jennifer Clinkenbeard, Jesse Hunt, Joy, Judy A. Colbert, T. Sardi, Carrie Frick, Kimberly Bordage, Christy LeClaire, Kyle Free, Linda Camargo, Lisa Hillard, Lixie, Lizzie B., Mallory, Ma Pluto, Matt Fitzhugh, Matt Gleason, Megan, Michelle Dahlgren, Michelle McGinn, Michelle Mergenthaler, 
Michelle Montague, and Michelle Nasalrod, Mike Donau, Milena Hernandez, Old Shrugsy, Otelia Holguin, Patrick, Penny Wilson, Perpetual Bliss, Ryan McLean, Samuel Holman, S. James McLaughlin, Sharon Fuller, Sharon Mitchell, Sharon Bent, Shelley Reynolds, Stephanie Lowe, Stephen Conry, Susan Broden, Karen Gardner-Elay, Tony Trahan, Tracy Thornton, Wilbur Podgeway, Xavier, and Yvonne Byrne. Beyond that, I want to give a huge thanks to all of my premium subscribers on my website. Um, you guys are the best. You've really had my back throughout the year, so thank you so much. Um, once again, thank you to all the Patreon supporters. And finally, I just want to say a big thanks to Dan Harmon and all the guys over in Harmontown. I definitely appreciate all the support this year, and congrats on an amazing run with your show. Alright, so if I missed you for whatever reason, or you're no longer supporting the show and I still owe you a shout-out, please let me know and we'll take care of that ASAP. Okay, that's enough of the business. Let's do this. So, we're going to pull back the curtain on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the 1960 masterpiece that arguably spawned the modern horror genre we know today. And that process is just a microcosm of Hitchcock's career. Constant innovation, evolution, progression. Hitchcock always pushed the ball forward, something that was necessary with a career that spanned from the silent era of film right through to the year 1976. Now, Psycho has a very interesting origin story, one that required Hitchcock to be incredibly passionate about the material to get it made. What was ultimately a big box office success was unwanted by studios, so he did what it took to succeed. The following is essentially a quick overview of how the film came to be produced. It was the late 1950s, and novelist Robert Block learned that he resided only 40 miles from legendary maniac Ed Gein at the time of his arrest for crimes that were ultimately divulged as being two counts of murder and dozens of grave robbing incidents. What was discovered inside the reclusive Wisconsin resident's home, however, was nearly unspeakable an incident that shattered the glass doorfront on 1950s Midwestern values even before the massacre at the Clutter Home in Kansas circa 1959 that inspired the brilliant novel In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Inside Gein's home, police found items such as lampshades made from human skin, a preserved human head, a belt decorated with human nipples, a trash can made from human skin, bowls made from human skulls, leggings made from human leg skin, a box full of vaginas, masks made of female faces, and much more. It isn't a surprise, then, that Ed inspired Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, among many other popular characters in the horror film genre, perhaps as many as a dozen. But for the purposes of our discussion today, it's relevant because writer Robert Block becomes both fascinated and appalled by a specific aspect of Gein's crimes, and that's his obsession with his dead mother, who was described as a domineering woman to whom Ed remained faithful. Perhaps a little too faithful, meaning he created a shrine to her within her bedroom and sealed it off. So, Block was inspired by the disturbing tale 
of a lonely man existing within the framework of this sickness in an isolated setting. Now, because the subject of his curiosity was a man already in his fifties, Block constructed a story that revolved around a middle-aged Norman Bates who drank heavily at times, which would cause him to engage different aspects of his personality that resulted in murder. He was a bit of a glutton and a slob, along with being a bit of a porn addict, perhaps something more relatable on paper than on screen. But the framework was there for something special. Because the story had a Hollywood twist, a big one in fact, and when the book hit shelves, Hitchcock's assistant Peggy Robertson was impressed by a review she read, so she passed a copy of the novel along to her boss. And the rest is history. Right? Not so fast. Alfred Hitchcock would have to jump through hoops to get this thing made, but the passion he displays in getting it done is the type that says success is imminent because he was always at his best when indulging innovation and pushing boundaries. Psycho was set to test the limits of violence, sexuality, and other types of deviant behavior that weren't present in mainstream film at the time. But it was more than that. While the film was technically a thriller, in terms of genre, it was essentially the first slasher film, and certainly inspired too many of that ilk's account thereafter. Yet, Paramount had already said no to the material before Hitchcock got his hands on it, and his second attempt to persuade them failed. So before independent film was even a practical consideration, Hitchcock basically goes with that era's version of guerrilla-style filmmaking and tells Paramount he'll produce the film on an abbreviated production schedule using a television crew from his TV show, and also film in black and white to reduce costs. But the answer is still no. However, Hitchcock isn't giving up. He counters that he'll finance the movie on his own, film it at Universal, and simply ask Paramount to distribute the end product. Beyond that, he declines his usual director's fee of $260,000, a fairly hefty sum at the time, in favor of taking 60% of the negative. Paramount finally agrees. But there's work to be done. What will become perhaps the most iconic scene in horror film history, the infamous one with Janet Lee in the shower, was actually depicted as a beheading in the novel's version. So, the book needed to be adapted to a screenplay, and after the first writer failed to deliver the suspenseful narrative Hitchcock sought, he met with an inexperienced scribe named Joseph Stefano, whom he decided to hire. They went on to morph Norman Bates into a younger man, inspired by the offhand casting suggestion of a very talented actor named Anthony Perkins, who landed the role. In addition, Hitchcock decided to beef up the screen time for another of the novel's characters, who went on to become Marion Crane in the movie, played by Janet Lee. She appears in only two chapters of the book, but fills half the movie. So production gets underway in November 1959, and culminates sometime in February 1960. The film is slated for release in the USA on June 16th that year, and the rest is history. So, let's tackle the film's opening now, and take it right through to the end. One thing I want to stress as we undertake this journey is that the movie is so rich in symbolism, subtext, and similar considerations that it isn't possible to cover it all. 
On top of that, the opinions here equate to my truth, and of course, yours might be quite different. Now, normally, the opening shot, or even the opening scene in its entirety, is the first indication we get of the film's premise. But in this case, the information starts to flow once we hit the credits. When the actors' names come and go from the screen to introduce them, the letters break apart and go in two separate directions across the screen, and then subsequently come back together to form the next actor's name. At its root, what it's telling us is that this film is about people breaking apart, becoming someone else, and then becoming whole once again. That's what protagonists do. Yet, that's a rather broad way of presenting it. It lacks specificity. So when the film's title, Psycho, comes onto the screen, the top half of its letters proceed to shift in one direction, while the bottom half shift in another direction. So, we understand that this film is about disunity, specifically meaning people who become somebody else due to a psychological shift. They undergo some type of a break. First, the shifting letters on the actors' names tell the audience that certain people in this film are going to become someone different during the course of the tale, and then the shifting of the title, Psycho, back and forth, in opposite directions, tells us the aspect of becoming someone different that we're addressing is that of a psychological shift. So, it's definitely impressive that Hitchcock found a way to insert some thematic resonance right from the start, before we even see the opening scene. And I think what truly resonates about this thematic assertion is that we don't necessarily need to know more right now. Almost all film narrative consists of a protagonist experiencing some type of emotional disunity that arises early in the film due to something they want, but don't have, causing them to take action to get that thing. In the process, they go from a state of unity to one of disunity as the process of getting what they want causes them to live a lie with a heavy price tag attached for the actions involved in achieving their goal. Through that suffering, they come to understand what they need, aka the truth, or their authentic life, and learn to value that over what they want, at which point they go after the thing they need, achieving emotional unity once again as they return to their previous world, having changed for the better through the thing they need, rather than what they wanted. Sometimes, the thing you want can destroy you, but the thing you need will always bear fruit. We have multiple protagonists in this film, and they'll teach us that lesson. Now, Hitchcock constructs a beautiful opening scene to this movie, but instead of evaluating it for what it is, meaning specifically what appears in the scene, we're generally offered some bullshit explanation to give the director credit for something he never intended. Now, what we're normally told is that the movie opens with a shot over Phoenix, Arizona, with many tall buildings surrounding us. The camera pans across the sky, where there are nearly an infinite number of windows into which it could peer, but randomly chooses one, as though it could be any window, and whomever is inside could be our protagonist because we are all a living version of a story. And I'm like, okay, that's cute for your film analysis class, but it badly undermines what is truly an exceptionally well-crafted opening that tells a story with imagery. If you hit play on Psycho, 
the opening shot remains still for just a fraction of a second before the camera pans right. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking at the moment the film starts? What is right in front of our eyes? The answer is a crane. There's a tall, stationary crane utilized for construction, and it's leaning over the frame of a tall building that's in the process of being built. The steel frame is entirely present, but it's otherwise unfinished. And what happens at a construction site on a daily basis? Men come and go, but none lives there. They don't even stay at this building overnight. It's a temporary stop. And guess what? Our protagonist, whom we're about to meet, is not only named Crane, but the unfinished building I've described perfectly represents her life. Men come and go, but none stay. She feels like an incomplete woman who will be validated, a.k.a. complete, once she has a man permanently in her life. But what does the construction site tell us? The men who come and go have quite a bit to offer in the process of constructing a building, but only the crane can do the heavy lifting. No man is going to make her complete. She, the crane, has to do the heavy lifting. She's the catalyst of real change. This represents her need. Marion Crane will need to do the heavy lifting emotionally to become the person she wishes to be. But what needs to mirror that idea is the thing she wants, which is the easy way out. It's the temporary fix. The protagonist chooses that false solution first because it doesn't involve emotional change. So we ask ourselves, if we're looking at a crane and that represents our protagonist and her need to do the heavy emotional lifting or change to complete the building, a.k.a. herself, then what is mirroring that? Well, we're looking at that crane from the perspective of something very familiar. A crane. The method used to create this establishing shot of a crane is done so not only by way of utilizing a crane, but is called a crane shot. So, we open with the protagonist represented as the unfinished building with the stationary crane next to it that requires a lot of heavy lifting to bring the building to fruition. If the protagonist chose that path from the start, there would be no story. So we know she has to choose the mirrored version of that need, which is her want. Instead of the heavy emotional lifting, she'll let that need physically manifest in a tangible desire because that's easier to accommodate. It's a shortcut to doing hard work. So, here we are, looking at an unfinished building with a crane in front of it. Our protagonist is going to initially refuse that path, so we need the camera to move away from that, which happens almost immediately as the film starts. We pause slightly on that unfinished building with the crane, and then this mirroring crane shot, created by a crane, pans across the skyline, at which point it turns, faces a window, and swoops down until it actually enters that partially opened window. Now, why the hell is this camera shot behaving like a living creature? It almost gives the impression 
that it's a bird flying into the window. Because it is. Hitchcock has chosen this for a few reasons. One is that our want is the thing that makes us take flight to adventure, and our need the thing that brings us back home. So what he needed to create was something called a crane that could take flight from the hard work of doing the heavy emotional lifting required to finish the new building. So not only is the shot a crane shot performed on a crane, but it's also given the appearance of being a bird flying away from the knees and toward the want, swooping down into the window from above to meet our protagonist. It's telling us that the protagonist is going to choose to take flight rather than remain where she is and finish the heavy emotional lifting of becoming whole. So, a crane is a bird that can fly between 400 to 500 miles in a day, and Marion Crane is about to take flight on a journey from Phoenix to Bakersfield, California, a distance of 496 miles before suddenly needing to pull over and pass out in her car. On a side note, a phoenix is a mythical bird that regenerates on a cyclical basis, rising from the ashes of its predecessor, the same as the protagonist does, with change. So, this crane swoops down into the window, and where do we find ourselves? In a building that is representative of Marion's life in the same way as the building under construction, but this one is finished. It's a cheap hotel where you pay by the hour. It's a place, like the construction site, where men come and go, but don't stay. That's exactly the issue Marion is having with her boyfriend Sam, who's met her here for a long lunch hour that satisfies her physically, but is driving her to the brink emotionally. She wants a stable, respectable building, a.k.a. home, where men don't come and go, but unlike the truth across the street, which is that she's an unfinished product that requires heavy emotional lifting on her part to complete, this building she's in, the cheap hotel, is already complete, and she wants a man to simply take her from it and make everything okay. Instead of finishing the brand new building nearby, she believes that a man can take her from the one in which she currently resides. But Sam can't do that. He's in this shitty hotel for the same reason she is. To a certain extent, they can both satisfy desire through this sexual relationship, but they aren't going to be happy. They have to make themselves happy by way of changing their circumstances. And the truth about life is that you can't live in a house until the place is built. So like many depressed people, instead of being the crane that remains stationary and does the heavy emotional lifting to change and become complete, she'll allow that desire to physically manifest in a shortcut that permits her to become the crane or bird that takes flight. The bird flies in the window to signify which choice she's going to make. It's turned its back on the construction site and flew in the window of the cheap hotel. So when Marion takes flight with this false hope, which isn't leading to change because she chose her want over her need, guess where she's going to end up? The same place she started. A shitty hotel with a man who can't accommodate her needs. It says 
there's nowhere to run. The only building she can stay in, where she'll be happy and safe, is the one she builds. Now, this idea is given even more relevance through the fact this opening shot shows the skyline of Phoenix, Arizona, proving that all of these buildings and other constructions were born from a dry, arid desert wasteland where it seemed nothing could grow. But it did, because people believed, and they worked hard. So the construction site with the unfinished building and stationary crane used for heavy lifting represents what Marion Crane needs to do, which is stay here and build a life for herself through the hard work of emotional change, while the shitty hotel she's currently in across the way represents the way her life really is at that time. She keeps going after what she wants, not what she needs, so she's stuck in this place. Sam, her boyfriend, comes by to please her sexually, giving her what she desires, but in terms of needing a man for a long-term relationship, he's a waste. She's looking for him to fix her problems, but he's unable to do that. He can only be the cheap hotel in the same way she is. He can't fix her emotional situation. So, that's the opening shot. Hitchcock shows us the unfinished building waiting for her to finish it. The building is synonymous with her life, a.k.a. emotional state, or need. We can clearly see the crane is not in use at that time. It's just sitting there, leaning over toward the building, waiting for someone to take control. The mirroring crane, in the form of a crane shot utilized like it's a flying bird, is her want, which is to find an easy way out of this life she's created without rebuilding. But what I think is so incredibly brilliant is this. The need, a.k.a. the construction site, is real. We can see it right in front of our eyes. But the want, meaning the crane that desires to take flight from the problem, is entirely manipulated. It isn't really a bird, or anything of that sort. It just offers the illusion of being that thing. That's how the want works for the protagonist in any story. It's an illusion. It's not the truth. The need is the truth, or authentic self. The want is just the false solution the protagonist employs to cope with the unwillingness to change, or to overcome unwillingness to change. But it doesn't work because it isn't real, just like the crane swooping down into the window. So in this scene, Marion Crane only thinks about what she wants rather than what she needs, and it leads her to making the decision to take flight from the problem, which of course is only going to make her issues worse, and thereby land her right back in another shitty hotel with another man who can't fix what's wrong. It's a cycle, the same type of thing that's encountered with depression. The only way to break the cycle is emotional change. Flight can take you elsewhere, like a heroin addict moving to the beach, but you take your problems with you in those instances and the new place soon becomes your old familiar hell because you refuse to change. Marion's only way out of her life being a shitty hotel where unsuitable men come and go is to change her own actions. So now, that's what this scene in the hotel room is going to be. Marion is going to press her boyfriend Sam 
in the direction of them having a life together as though that's what she needs, but it soon becomes readily apparent Sam has issues that prevent him from being that person. Instead of changing herself, she asks him to make her situation better. Yet, what we learn is Sam truly can't accommodate. So, in terms of content within the scene, Sam and Marion have seemingly just slept together in a room at this cheap hotel and need to check out in a few minutes. When Sam asks if he can see Marion again the next week, she says no, not like this. She wants to have dinner respectively at her sister's house where their mother's picture is on the mantle. But Sam is weary of such a thing because he knows he has nothing to offer beyond this physicality. He cares for Marion, but has an ex-wife to whom he owes alimony and is also paying off large debts in relation to the hardware store his father left him when he died. Marion says they should get married, but Sam jokingly says they'd be living in the stockroom in the back of the hardware store and licking the stamps on the envelopes used to send his ex-wife alimony. Marion says she'd be willing to do that, and she's serious. So, Marion comes off as desperate, as though Sam is the missing link in her unmarried life coming close to age 30. But it's clear he has nothing to offer her because he can't get past his own emotional issues stemming from the past. The shitty little stockroom where he lives is the equivalent of the shitty hotel that is Marion's life. They have the same issue, and that's why they've ended up in the same place. It's like one addict asking another to help them quit. What's more likely is that the two of them will just keep using together. And why? Because it's easy. We prefer shortcuts in life. But they don't lead to happiness. They're just the fastest route back to the misery you've always known. It's a cycle. Sam and Marion are in a cycle that needs to break. She tries to break it by getting him to commit to being somebody different. Marion wants a more respectable situation. And when she tells Sam that, she's in the process of buttoning up her shirt. Sam makes a joke of it. And as he uses the word respectability, he buttons up his shirt. All of which is to say, this relationship has been predicated upon sex. But now Marion is telling him, this is the last time they meet like this. She thinks Sam is the issue, but she'll soon learn the problem is her. Sam doesn't think he can fix his situation, or even hers. So he asks if she's thinking of leaving him for somebody available, and she says yes, she's thinking of doing just that. But she keeps ending up with men like this and remains unmarried, not because the men aren't suitable, but because she's the same type of person and unwilling to change. She's been doing the same job for the last decade, basically right out of high school, working as a secretary in a real estate office, and seems bored by it, starved for adventure, greater meaning, and success. Nothing's changed in her life, so she isn't going to do anything that brings a suitable man into the picture. Sam is with her at this cheap hotel because he avoids serious relationships with women due to emotional issues related to his past. He's living under the weight of a failed business venture that his dead father started years ago, and suffering the fallout of a relationship with another woman, his ex-wife, 
whom he must support. Hmm, look where Marion is going to end up when she takes flight instead of changing. At a cheap hotel, run by a man, Norman Bates, who doesn't make himself available for relationships with women because of emotional issues incurred in the past by way of another woman. He lives under the burden of a failed business his dead father started years ago and is suffering the fallout of a relationship with a woman, his mother, who, like Sam's ex-wife, is no longer around. Nothing changes. The types of men Marion encounters don't change because she refuses to change, but she doesn't see herself as a problem. That won't come until she realizes the thing she wants is a dead end, and the thing she needs, change, is the direction to travel. So like most protagonists, Marion starts in a state of unity and soon realizes her problem. That problem gives way to a want that will act as a call to adventure and cause her to take flight into a previously unknown world where she believes the solution awaits. But the only thing that awaits is a hard lesson that reveals the truth in the form of her need once she begins to pay a heavy price for pursuing what she wants. So at this point, Marion knows she's sick of this arrangement with Sam. She's sick of ending up in these cheap hotels. She has to stop this shit. So she heads for the hotel room door, and Sam asks if they can leave together. She says no, and exits, causing him to hang his head. But what's really interesting is that between them in the frame, specifically over Marion's right shoulder on the wall, is a single lighting unit that utilizes two encased bulbs side by side. Not only is it in the shadows of the darkest part of the frame, and even the room, but the light is also off. This is symbolic of their relationship ending. The flame has died. Of course, she walks right out the door, and they never see each other again. Now, what's really gorgeous about this imagery, or symbolism, is that it extends into the next scene. Sam is standing in the hotel room with his head down, defeated, and the scene dissolves into the next one by showing the waiting area in the office where Marion works. In the midst of this scene transition, we can see Sam with his head down superimposed over two empty seats in the office lobby. Like the light fixture that employs two bulbs for use as one unit, the seating does the same. It's one unit with two seats and they're empty, signifying the relationship between the two is over. As the superimposition fades, we clearly see that both the areas to the left and right of this empty two-person seating unit contain the same type of plant. They look identical to one another, seemingly a great fit on the surface in terms of aesthetic qualities, but they're separated. All of this signifies the couple is no longer together and has gone their separate ways. Now, Marion walks in and sees the other receptionist, played by Pat Hitchcock. She wants to know if anyone has called for her, and it's here we get a great insight into Marion's shortcomings. The other woman says, quote, Your sister called. She's going down to Tucson to do some buying. She'll be gone the whole weekend. End quote. Now, the statement that makes about Marion's sister, Lila Crane, is a much different view than we get of Marion. 
Just from that statement, we understand Lila has the means to travel and get away for a whole weekend. But more important is the word buying. We're told she went down to Tucson to do some buying. Had that word been something like shopping, we might have thought, rightfully so in 1960, that she went on a little trip to spend some of her husband's money on clothing or antique knickknacks. But the word buying gives the impression that she's powerful. And when we meet Lila, we understand why. She's a no-nonsense woman who wouldn't find herself hanging out in cheap hotels with unsuitable men. She's in control. When her sister goes missing and the private investigator someone else hired does the same, she takes the initiative to become the detective. Lila Crane is everything her sister is not. She changes to accommodate her circumstances, even in times of crisis. She never relies on a man in this story. In fact, she'll team up with Sam later on in what is an equal partnership. She changes as he does and takes risks as he does because she understands what she needs to do. Marion doesn't have that level of maturity. She only knows what she wants. That's why we're introduced to Lila vicariously as somebody with the power to do buying right before her sister Marion desperately steals money because she's broke. And of course, when Sam is exposed to Lila in the absence of Marion, we then see him mature into somebody who's committed to discovering the truth at any cost to his emotions. In the meantime, just as Marion, he's unable to change. Lila represents the woman Marion needed to be, and Sam doesn't become the man he should be until exposed to the lessons he learns from teaming with Lila. So, this is when Marion sits down at her desk and asks if the boss is still out at lunch. He is, but walks in right at that moment with a drunk guy who looks like your typical 50-something Texas white dude who has ownership in some type of oil operation. And this is a great theme with all sorts of relevant imagery, framing, symbolism, and other magic tricks pulled out of Hitchcock's mystery bag of fun. So, this guy is a client with big bucks. He walks in with a swagger, approaches Marion's desk, and sits on the edge of it to lean over and talk to her. But before he says anything, we have to take inventory of this beautiful shot that just resonates so well. On the wall, behind the man's head, is a very large painting of a nature scene. It's a wide, shimmering waterway, bordered on both sides by lush growth of trees and other greenery like bushes and plants. In this picture, resources are plentiful, especially water, and it lends itself to one idea. Abundance. There is no lack of necessary resources to survive and thrive here. That's what we see in the huge painting on the wall behind the rich man. Now, conversely, behind Marion, we see a painting of the same size and scale, but this one depicts the desert. It's dry, sandy, and absent of life everywhere you look. Nothing thrives here, certainly not a human anyway. In the distance, there is something that looks like it could either be some water or just a mirage. If you're only looking at that painting, you can't decide which. But if you compare it to the other painting, 
in which the water is clearly authentic, you then realize the water in the desert painting is comprised of reflections constituting a mirage, not water. So, the painting behind the rich guy represents his life that is equipped with abundant resources to survive and thrive, while the painting behind Marion's life depicts an arid desert with no resources and only a mirage that you'll ever reach them before succumbing to the harsh elements along the way. The difference between the two paintings, while they are great in number as it pertains to aesthetics, can be boiled down to one idea. One of these environments has plentiful water, our most precious resource, to allow it to thrive and grow. The other, which is absent of water, has no growth apparent and is a wasteland. The place where nothing grows is behind Marion. The place where everything grows is behind the rich guy. And guess what Hitchcock puts against the wall in between them, which also means it lies right between the paintings as well. A water fountain. The actual fountain part from which you drink points away from Marion and the painting of the desert and directly at the painting depicting the waterway with lush surroundings. Now, of course, water, or lack of it, is what either enables or prevents an environment from achieving any type of life. That's from the standpoint of physical survival. In society, however, the resource that fuels the greatest degree of success is money. If you have none, your world can feel like that arid desert, offering very few options to thrive, or even survive. But if you have lots of it, you can build a life full of opportunities to succeed and grow. Money is to social status what water is to survival. It can make your garden grow. But what it cannot do is produce emotional change. Money can offer material growth in the form of gaining possessions. Water can keep you alive. But only emotional change can fix your emotional problems. We all have to grow up. Now, because we can see the lush waterway painting behind the rich guy and the arid desert painting behind Marion, we know the water fountain Hitchcock has placed between them indicates a resource will soon end up between the two and it will be something that Marion falsely believes will make her garden grow, so to speak. Since the paintings deal with nature, the resource they encapsulate is water. But since human interaction is a social function, we know the resource about to come between the two people sitting at the desk is going to be money. So, this is when the rich guy tells Marion he's buying a house for his daughter for her wedding day. He says she's 18 years old and has never had an unhappy moment in her life. Of course, this is a slap to the face of Marion because she's almost 30, working a lousy job, and unmarried. The rich guy then adds, quote, Do you know what I do with unhappiness? I buy it off. End quote. He goes on to say he's paying $40,000 cash for this home, and then waves the cash in her face, suggesting, quote, I never carry more than I can afford to lose. End quote. Now, they show Marion's facial reaction at that moment, but we can see by the placement of the cash that it's directly between them the same way as the water fountain. But what's important is that now Marion has it. 
so the rich guy and the boss go back into the boss's office to talk, at which point the boss tells Marion to put the money in their safety deposit box at the bank when she leaves for the day. Marion soon follows them into the back office to say she has a headache and would like to go home early. She gets permission and goes back out to her desk, where she grabs her purse with the money in it and stops at her desk to address the other secretary. She says she's going to put the money in the bank and then go home to sleep off the headache. But the imagery here tells us the truth. When she says that, we see the desert painting directly behind her head. That's when she turns and walks toward the front door. Along the way, she walks parallel to the wall containing the desert painting, water fountain, and painting of the lush waterway in that order. So by leaving with the money, we watch Marion walk away from the desert painting toward the water fountain, which is aimed at the lush waterway painting. She goes from the dry, arid desert to the lush world of the next painting by passing the water fountain with the money in her purse. Clearly, this represents the change the money is going to make in her world. The dry, arid desert she once knew has been replaced by plentiful resources. But it's fool's gold. Her problem is emotional, not financial. Of course, we know this is the intention of the scene, because Hitchcock doesn't show her leave the office or even intimate that she walked out the door. He only shows her passing the desert painting, the water fountain, and finally entering the area of the lush waterway painting. Now, what I also notice that's really interesting about this moment is that Marion has just made a sociopathic choice. Under the guise of taking the money to the bank, she's going to steal it instead. So, that psychological shift we discussed in reference to the opening credits has now taken place. That fractured psyche. Obviously, Carl Jung referred to this as the shadow. So what does Hitchcock give us? Well, when the two men, the rich guy and the boss, walk into the office, the lighting is done in a way that severely limits the presence of shadows on the wall with the paintings. In fact, as the men pass the paintings, we see the least amount of their shadows the lighting in that room will allow. But when Marion makes the decision to steal the money and walks past the arid desert painting, water fountain, and finally the lush waterway painting, her shadow is fully apparent. It's dark and maximized in a way that fully replicates Marion's body as she moves past. The shadow runs parallel to her on the wall so that it's actually on the paintings and the water fountain. So, at this point, she's endured that psychological split. Marion has become Young's shadow. From this moment on, not only will her shadow become prominent in the film, but we also get an excessive number of mirror shots where we can see two images of Marion at the same time to represent it. Now, I refer to this sociopathic action she's taken as the physical manifestation of an emotional issue. That's what happens when we have an emotional issue we refuse to solve through the hard work of emotional change and instead employ a shortcut in the vein of something material. So, instead of getting her shit together and seeking a healthy relationship, Marion is going to run away, funded by stolen money. She's counting on geographical movement and material wealth to cure her woes, 
which is a common but failed plight among suffering people. Now, the next scene begins with a shot of the cash in an envelope on Marion's bed at home. It speaks for itself by saying she never took the money to the bank. But then we wonder if maybe she just stopped home to change first. I mean, she is changing clothes at the time. That's when Hitchcock shows us the suitcase. It's unmistakable. Without a line of dialogue, he tells us this mini-story about her intentions. But this is the part I love. Doors and mirrors will begin to become prominent in the film, along with shadows. This scene is where Marion, played by Janet Lee, of course, shows us she's planning to run off with the money. It starts with her walking across the bedroom, past a photo of a little girl on the wall. As she does this, her shadow, which precedes her, walks into an open closet door and disappears inside. Marion then pauses right outside the closet door once her body has passed the framed photo and turns her head to the right to look at the cash on the bed. But I think Hitchcock frames her there because it shows her shadow, which she's now becoming after stealing the money, walk into a door that leads nowhere and disappear. The door symbolizes a choice, and this one leads nowhere. The real Marion, the one still standing outside that door, who hasn't crossed that threshold because she could still do the right thing and take the money to the bank, hesitates at that moment and looks at the cash on the bed. The photo of the little girl behind her at the time is presumably Marion herself. It's framed behind her because it's her past, her innocence. She was just a little girl who never did anything wrong. But the photo was literally behind her in the same way her past was also behind her. That's usually where the root of our emotional problems lie. But she doesn't take the route of innocence. She doesn't stop herself or turn back. We see her reach into the closet to get a shirt, which symbolizes her choice to go through the door that leads to nowhere. Hitchcock was telling us the shadow would lead her through a door, a.k.a. a choice, that went nowhere. It was going to be a dead end. Of course, that happens. And as he shows her getting dressed in the process of making that choice, a.k.a. adopting that ignorant plight, or facade, we then understand that, by default, the end of her road in this narrative will involve getting undressed. The clothing represents the facade, or ignorance, with which she's proceeding. It will kill her. So when it does, the removal of her clothes will be tantamount to the emotional value of shedding her ignorance. The moment of truth will come once she removes her clothes. And the reason clothing is used is because it's a material representation of concealing the truth about what lies beneath the surface of our existence. The clothing is the lies. The nude body is the authentic self. So when her choice comes full circle, in terms of consequences, revealing the truth that she indulged the tragedy, she must take off her clothes before suffering her fate. And because the money she steals is represented symbolically by water, 
no matter how she dies, it must be in a situation where water is plentiful and is still no help because she refused emotional change. And that's how we get the infamous shower scene where Marion Crane gets killed. That scene has been heralded by too many people to count. But if you examine it closely, in terms of production quality, it's actually a huge pile of shit. It's dime store filmmaking, at best. But the symbolic implications are very powerful, and the scene acts as a huge twist in the narrative, so all of those shortcomings are forgiven, allowing it profound resonance with audiences for underlying reasons that are difficult to articulate unless you're a maniac who makes five-hour podcasts. And if you don't believe me about the reason for the success of that scene, check this out. Guess what her killer does right before confronting her in the shower? He puts on clothes as part of a facade. And guess what happens at the end of the film? Those same clothes are stripped from his body to reveal the truth beneath. In both cases, meaning Marion and Norman, clothing is stripped to show the authentic self beneath. That's what we do as people. We either indulge our authentic self through change, or it finds us by way of tragedy. Either way, mortality strips the facade. Anyhow, back to Marion's bedroom, where Hitchcock confirms what I said. At this point, Marion puts on the shirt, or blouse, and pauses again, facing the opposite end of the room. The photo of the little girl on the wall is right behind her, and right in front of her, but set in the background, inside the bathroom, is a shower head pointed right at her face. It beautifully foreshadows what's to come. Once she chooses the wrong door, Hitchcock proceeds to foreshadow her fate. Now he'll tell us why. She then crosses the room to a large mirror. She looks into it, and we get this great shot that supports the idea I was just talking about. On the right side of the frame is Marion facing the mirror. On the left is Marion's reflection looking back at her. But in the middle of the frame is the open closet door. What it's saying is that the choice to go through that door with the shadow split or fractured her psyche in a way that there were now two of her, the Marion who had always existed and the sociopathic shadow who was now leading the way through the wrong door that goes nowhere with her newly adopted criminal behavior. It's disunity. That's when Marion gathers her suitcase. She pauses and sits on the bed, unsure. But just as suddenly she gets up, along with her purse containing the cash, and heads for the door. Just to solidify that decision, she's shown reaching into that same closet once again, and then she leaves with the shower looming right behind her. Now, we're inside her car for the next scene, and we experience the start of the internal monologue she keeps considering because her conscience is bothering her. What's really interesting is that the first one basically consists of Sam asking her what the hell she's doing there, meaning why she showed up where he lives in California. He's surprised. So, obviously this hasn't happened yet, and doesn't happen at all, so I think we glean two important details from this. One 
is that this internal monologue is entirely fictional. She fabricated it by way of merely projecting how Sam might react when she arrives. Now, that's obvious, of course, but the reason I mention it is because it means we, as the audience, should believe the same about the rest of these incidents. They're all fabrications, or projections. We're never instructed otherwise, and the first one sets the precedent. More importantly, though, we now understand more about Marianne's plans. She informed us through action that she was going to take the money and run, but we didn't know why. Now it's apparent through this initial internal monologue she's projecting. She's going to use this money to help Sam pay off his debts in relation to the hardship incurred by his father's business or even the alimony he owes his ex-wife. This was a necessary move on the director's part to include that stream of consciousness moment, so to speak. Once Marion took off, her decision was real. She had truly stolen the money. Therefore, we needed to be given a reason to still be able to empathize with her choice. And it turns out, she stole the money in the name of love. She wanted to be with Sam, to the point she would do this to make it happen. But that's the problem. It's well-intentioned, but it's unrealistic, desperate, and criminal as well. Not a good idea. But again, her intention is pure, and we know the rich guy said he doesn't carry what he can't afford to lose, so this isn't going to bankrupt him or even anything close. So there's enough for us to say that we could empathize with such desperation, but ideally, and of course Hitchcock knows it, we would be happier if she ultimately decided to do the right thing. And she does. We get that, in the worst of ways. And of course, it's going to be tragedy because she refused emotional change. That fate comes to bear, no matter what you choose. Now, again, this isn't going to work because she's trying to manipulate a feasible relationship with Sam in which they can finally be together. But she's a fugitive. No matter how this goes down, it isn't going to play out in the way she had envisioned it in her mind when she decided to steal the money. As we can see, her want, as happens to most protagonists, is causing her to behave very badly at this point in the script. It's delusional, to say the least. But that's the point. We need her to come to that conclusion on her own eventually, and believe she can, because it's somewhat obvious what she really needs to do. Notice that word again. What she needs to do is go back home and fix what's wrong with her life. You can't manipulate a perfect relationship with someone who's unavailable for reasons you don't have the resources to change. You have to let go. You go back home and do the heavy emotional lifting to change and be the right person to find the love you're looking for. We all know the fallout from chasing a romantic situation that isn't going to work. It involves a lot of denial, and it causes us to behave in ways that make us cringe once the dust has settled. But love makes people do crazy things. We identify with that idea, and that's what's going on here. It helps us to empathize, but it's still wrong. So the writer and director have to find a way for the protagonist to undergo this misguided journey while both paying a heavy price 
and also redeeming herself. They succeed in a very strange way, but we'll get to that. For now, Marion hopping in the car with the intentions to skip town, luggage in tow, is committed to getting the thing she wants. This is the start of Act 2, and she's going to go full blast at achieving this desire to be with Sam in a situation that suddenly becomes financially feasible through her manipulation of resources. But as the protagonist's external want is normally a lie, or inauthentic, they change over the course of the film in order to accommodate the suppressed, internal, emotional need that becomes apparent only through the consequences of getting what they thought they wanted and changing to achieve better results thereafter. So, to begin Act 2, in this story, or even most others, the protagonist is generally single-minded in taking risks and doing whatever it takes to acquire the thing they want. Now, this is also the point the protagonist enters an unfamiliar world, and will need to adjust in order to succeed. The antagonists will start to pour on the resistance soon enough. Marion made the choice to leave with the money. That ended Act 1. So to start Act 2, Hitchcock explores Marion's stream of consciousness in the context of guilt as she drives away. The first internal monologue, as I mentioned, was one she projected with Sam about the moment she would have to tell him why she'd driven all that way. I mean, how would he react? She committed a crime. She felt guilty already. She didn't know how that would fly with him. It seemed like a really desperate move. There was potential for disaster in telling Sam the truth about how she got the cash, and it causes her to be paranoid. So, there are psychological forces at play here in the role of the antagonists. They don't even have to be physically present. She's consumed by it. That's going to continue as she forms a narrative in her mind about the events that would transpire after her departure with the money, and the theme of it will be this. Everybody is after her. One by one, they learn the truth, and we get something I refer to as evolution swarming. Now, Hitchcock certainly didn't use that concept labeled in that manner, but he was well aware of its power and utilized it to offer a great deal of suspense founded in one specific idea. Not getting caught. Marion is on the run, looking over her shoulder at every moment. Hitchcock simply uses the swarm of evolution, and through psychological means, to terrorize his protagonist as she enters the unfamiliar world of being a criminal on the run. As soon as Act 2 begins, she gets bombarded by these occurrences, and even when they involve real people, instead of fabricated projections of paranoia through her internal monologue, what we learn is that these people aren't even really after her. She's just projecting her guilt onto them and raising suspicions. And what it does is it highlights the fact that she's suffering from an emotional problem. No matter what she does physically in the material world, where she drives, what action she takes, unless she undergoes emotional change, nothing will get better. So, in summary, all of the antagonistic forces she experiences on the long drive to the Bates Motel are imagined. 
but simply due to the fact she possesses a human brain, the design of evolution swarming is apparent to her with every movement. Now, let's talk about that. Evolution swarming. This is what I mean. The purpose of criminality in the context of evolution is to pit good versus evil, so to speak, in a conflict that requires each side to continually try to improve its methods for avoiding detection in the form of technology. I mean, let's face it, the surefire way to get away with any crime is to remain undetected. Yes, powerful people and other privileged types who are guilty can buy their innocence, so to speak, and it does afford a lack of proven detection, but that doesn't negate the fact people still know they're guilty. So, the pinnacle of success for a criminal is to commit the crime, get what you want from it, and remain undetected so that you don't face penalties for, or even scrutiny of, your actions in the aftermath. The purpose of crime, like I said, is to fuel a never-ending conflict in which better technological methods related to detecting light, or truth, are born through innovation by the criminals used to avoid the cops, and also innovation used by the cops to catch the criminals. In the same way as warfare, that constant game of tag, the back and forth, trying to outdo the other in terms of resources, produces great technology. And we see the results in a very tangible way. I mean, what happened soon after jet propulsion technology was created during World War II in an attempt to dominate the slower, propeller-based fighters? We built upon that rocket technology and soon ended up in space. That's the whole point. Conflict from crime to warfare is a conduit between humanity and our purpose that allows us to build a bridge to a truth called technology. The greater our ability to detect light, or truth, the greater understanding we have of the universe in which we live. As we create more and more technology, we assume greater autonomy with the advantages it provides in its superiority. Not just as the human race, but also on an individual level. The point of this is for humanity to ultimately integrate artificial intelligence into our bodies and minds over time, going from mortal to immortal and reproduction to replication, thereby transcending evolution or nature's influence over us by replacing the brain. I call that post-evolutionary phase metamorphosis. But the bottom line is that evolution, like a parent, wants us to grow up and go out on our own in the absence of having to rely on its resources. The reason is that the depth and scope of our universe and what lies beyond require exploration capabilities far beyond what we currently possess. The oceans are full of plastic. The rainforests are disappearing. The air is polluted. Our mortality, which is consumption-based, is incredibly destructive to the Earth. That's in the design. Soon enough, we'll need to escape this place for greener pastures and space, and the only method by which it will be possible is technology. That's always been the plan. It's in the design. That moment we fantasize about where humanity will wake up and start doing the right thing is simply hilarious. 
We're designed to transcend evolution in order to embrace the requirements of life outside mom's house here on Earth under evolution's control. We all have to grow up. And the main ingredient in doing so, just like it is when becoming an adult today, is to produce your own resources and find your own place to live. You have to find a way to survive out there on your own once you outgrow mom and dad's house. That's where we're headed as a species. We're consuming everything and not giving a fuck about our environment. That has an end game in the same way your parents don't want you living at home as a young adult, eating their food, leaving a mess everywhere, and asking to borrow money. They don't want to have to accommodate you anymore because you're grown. They want you to go out into the world and get it done with your own resources. That's what nature, aka evolution, wants for us. And it's in the design. It's an inevitability. So, we need those games of cat and mouse that are offered by criminality to create and employ more efficient technology related to detecting light. That's what Hitchcock is going to serve us to start Act 2, the moment Marion goes on the run in her car with the money. That's when evolution starts to swarm. The push-pull effect of Marion running after something and simultaneously being chased creates suspense. And that suspense is the key ingredient in what made Alfred Hitchcock so brilliant. Suspense equates to the space or time between each appearance of the push and its subsequent pull. Action, reaction. That's why we always want to know what happens next. We want to know, will her light be detected or won't it? So as Marion indulges this paranoid internal monologue about getting caught, we, as always, find ourselves in the protagonist's shoes, feeling their disposition. So, if Marion thinks of her boss reacting to the stolen money, we feel fear that asks a very simple question. Is she going to get caught due to that information? Are they going to detect her light? And we're left suspended there, so to speak, until the answer arises through the actions of her boss, resulting in her being found, or instead, having Marion take additional measures to avoid detection. In the film, the cat-and-mouse game of detecting light sources, and conversely, trying to avoid having them detected, mimics the process of conflict that leads to technological creation. It has a direct correlation to our purpose as humans. In the same way as we ask what happens next in a film, technology answers that question in the context of human evolution within our universe. As a species, we always want to know where this life is leading. We're profoundly curious about it. So in film, we replicate that same suspense by utilizing evolutionary mechanics. The key to success in doing that, just like it is in the universe, is to dispense the information in a manner that keeps the audience suspended between one action that detects light and the result or reaction of what will happen because of that. It's a very simple process. Action, reaction, 
lesson learned. Then, new action based on what we learned, new reaction, and new lesson learned. That's how we operate. Accordingly, so do our films. Hitchcock always wanted to leave us in the void between detection and reaction. That's where the magic happens. It's brilliant, especially here in Act 2. All of these internal monologues are fabricated in Marion's mind, but they still push the narrative forward because we can genuinely understand that the way she's projecting her antagonistic forces to react is very likely exactly how they'll go about it in reality. But since these aren't actually their reactions and are just a result of paranoia, the suspense remains with us, not just for one of these monologues, but the entire stream of consciousness. Better yet, the protagonist is never going to see any of those people again, so we actually remain in suspense for her entire appearance in the film. It never stops. So, as her ride gets underway, the first consideration, while she's still in Phoenix traffic in the city, is what Sam's reaction will be to the news she stole the money. In her mind, the following words play out in Sam's voice. Quote, Marion, what in the world? What are you doing up here? Of course I'm glad to see you. I always am. And then, sensing something's wrong when she doesn't respond, he asks, What is it, Marion? End quote. And the dialogue ends there. Notice the action, Sam asking, What is it, Marion? Has no response, a.k.a. reaction available, because Sam isn't actually there. Marion is projecting this, so there's no push-pull that provides an answer. There's just the push into a void that leaves us in suspense. Hitchcock will hammer that nail over and over again during her ride to great effect. We'll be left in suspense regarding multiple interactions and not just the broad scope of wondering what's going to happen as a result of stealing cash. Her anxieties mount as they do in our own lives as we project people's reactions. As Marion listens to her internal monologue, which ends with Sam asking that difficult question, quote, what is it, Marion? She shifts in her seat, puts a hand to her face, and then lightly bites one of her fingers like she's about to start biting the nails. And what does that represent? It's the physical manifestation of an emotional issue. She's nervous and anxious and showing us through physical action. So that's when she stops at a traffic light and pedestrians cross. One of them is her boss. He just let her go home with a headache and she claims she was going to spend the weekend in bed. But here she is out on the road again after her boss trusted her with $40,000 in cash. Of course, he's going to be suspicious if he sees her. At first, he just smiles in her direction as he might, you know, passing in front of anyone's car. But as he keeps going, he suddenly pauses, realizing it's her, and he frowns with concern. It's obvious he's suspicious, wondering why she isn't at home now. It's like she has some other kind of a plan, and she deceived him. But we don't know that. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't stop her. He keeps going. And so, since he doesn't offer an explicit reaction in relation to the issue at hand, 
Marion is left to wonder, as we, the audience, are also left in suspense. In the same way we want to know what Sam is going to say about her stealing the money, we want to see what her boss will do. But Hitchcock knows better. Just like he left us in the void with Sam, suspended, he'll do the same with her boss. So, we're left in suspense. Now, we're literally about 15 seconds into Act 2, and our protagonist is already feeling the heat in a big way, even without the antagonists reacting. Marion herself is the cause of these antagonistic forces. They're psychological. Sam is not after her at this point, and neither is her boss. Now, she makes it out of town, and is out on the open road as the scene transitions. This crime is for real now. She skipped town with the money, and for all intents and purposes, is going to be a fugitive from the law. So, good in our world is easily described as light, and evil as darkness. Light is life, and darkness is death. Light is understanding, truth, and discovery, while darkness is death and decay. As she drives out of town on that road, right afterward, the scene transitions to show the sun setting. This is Marion's transformation from good to evil. She became the shadow and invited darkness into her life through the theft. So, of course, this is when the scene transitions again to night. Darkness has fallen upon Marion. But check this out. It's really interesting. When Marion pulls away from the intersection where she saw her boss, she looks over her shoulder to signify she knows she's on the run now. People are going to follow her. It's broad daylight. As the scene transitions to her out on the open road near dusk, with the sun still up, we see what looks like a crucifix superimposed on the screen over her forehead. She doesn't react to it in the light. That's when we learn it's actually the top of a telephone pole where you have two sections of wood crossing each other in a T-shape. Now, the scene transitions once again in a few seconds. Like I said, going from light to darkness, still out on the road, in a time lapse. When this happens, the crucifix, so to speak, is once again superimposed on her forehead, but in darkness this time, instead of light. Whereas she didn't react before when the crucifix was on her forehead in light, this time, in darkness, she cringes when it becomes superimposed on her face. But that's when Hitchcock immediately gives us a shot out the windshield at what she's really looking at that makes her cringe, which is the oncoming headlights. Those lights represent the good guys searching the darkness for her presence. The crucifix superimposition is a reference not only to her choosing the dark side, but also to the fact that she's a sociopath now, and they behave exactly like vampires. The sociopath, like the vampire, manipulates people in order to drain them of precious resources. The vampire takes your blood. The human takes your money. Vampires have a very strong aversion to crucifixes. So as Marion drives out of town, and away from an opportunity to do the right thing, the daylight starts to fade as a representation 
of her turning to the dark side. Yet, while it's still daylight and the crucifix gets superimposed on her head, she doesn't react. But once night falls and that same crucifix is superimposed on her face, she cringes. And why? She's the sociopath now. She's a vampire. Marion has manipulated everyone to drain these resources. And that's when we see that she's looking at the oncoming headlights and cringing due to them. She's in a world of darkness now. Light is her enemy. And since we get that symbolic expression in this moment, we'll watch it play out in the next scene. Marion gets tired and pulls over on the side of the road to sleep for the night while it's dark. That happens off screen. So the next scene we see offers daylight again. Her car is sitting out in the open, alone, on the roadside. The light suggests what's about to come looking for her. The good guys. That's when a cop comes up beside her vehicle, seems to notice her sleeping inside, and pulls over. He knocks on the window, and Marion sits up sharply. She turns on the car's engine to leave, as though the cop knows she's a criminal. But he doesn't. Yet, now he's suspicious. We can't see his eyes hidden behind sunglasses. We wonder what he knows, and what he's thinking. All the while, Marion is fidgeting because, while she took a criminal action, this guy isn't reacting as though he knows that. So, we're left in that void between her wrongful action and his response. The suspense builds. The cop finds nothing wrong, and checks her license and license plate to be sure she's legit. At that point, he lets her go, but as she drives away, she notices he continues to follow her. So, like her, we wonder why and want him to go away. We have to keep considering if he knows more than he's letting on. That's when he suddenly exits as Marion continues past the fork in the road. The cop is gone, but we're still held in suspense because he knows her name and the fact that she's in California. If he makes a check on her, he's eventually going to learn people are looking for her. And of course, we don't know what he already knows. So, while the cop is gone, we know damn well he could come back at any time, and if he does, it's going to be worse. And if he comes back again and still doesn't offer us anything, the suspense is going to heighten because we still don't have his reaction. We're still held in that void. And that's what makes Hitchcock such a master. He knows how to keep us in the void. Now, of course, if the cop does come back, the first thing we're going to wonder is if it's because he learned something about Marion. And we don't know, because it could just be based upon suspicion, you know, the way she was acting. Of course, that's going to happen in the next scene. And since we know Hitchcock, again, is a master at suspense, he's going to employ a strategy where the cop doesn't tell us if he knows anything. In fact, he's not going to say anything at all. He remains silent throughout the entire scene. That state of limbo just builds suspense because it's an ever-expanding void. You don't get to the other side where the reaction is. Now, the scene in question is Marion arriving at a used car lot. She's going to trade in her car for another. 
which has symbolic implications here. We know Marion just abandoned good in favor of evil. She chose darkness over light. So now that the cop has seen her driving this black car, representative of the darkness she's embraced, she's going to trade it in for a white one to try to feign a presence of embracing the light. This is a sociopathic behavior I refer to as redirecting light. The criminal manipulates situations to avoid being detected. So, along with choosing a different color of car, she's also going to create an unnatural interaction with the salesman. She's in a hurry and needs to purchase something immediately, while the salesman knows a normal interaction is one where he has to try hard to sell the car to a cautious buyer who doesn't want to make a hasty decision. People usually haggle over price as well, but Marion doesn't, and so as she hurries him along and accepts his opening price instead of negotiating, he comments about how this is the first time he's been pressured by the buyer like that. Usually he's in that role, and of course it makes him suspicious, wanting to know more. Redirection of light equates to manipulation, and he can see that something is going on like that. Meanwhile, he knows nothing about her wrongdoings, but the paranoia exists in her mind, so it also exists for us as the audience. That's how Hitchcock keeps stacking the suspense, rather than building it up and releasing it with each incident. The people she comes into contact with, such as the cop and the car dealer, have no idea what she's done, but they sense redirection of light and know it's manipulative. She buys a newspaper from a dispenser and quickly flips through it looking at the headlines. She's not reading it. She's looking for something. We understand intuitively it's a search for information about the crime she committed. Marion is paranoid and wants her fears to be validated or invalidated. But what's brilliant here is Hitchcock doesn't allow the newspaper to enlighten her in the same way he doesn't allow the car dealer or the cop. It keeps her ignorant of what is known, and therefore the void continues to grow. But what all of these elements do is heighten the suspense. They just widen that void and we remain in limbo. He even puts sunglasses on this cop to prevent us from seeking answers in his eyes. So, Marion's picking out a car at this lot. She glances at her license plate. It's from Arizona. She turns to a car in the lot and sees the license plate is California. Again, redirection of light. If the cops are looking for her, it's in her current car with Arizona plates. This is when the cop drives by, stops, and parks on the other side of the street. It's a great move by Hitchcock. The cop stays at a distance and silent. So not only do we have no clue why he's here again, but we also still have no idea what he knows. He could have learned something about Marion after seeing her license and license plate. But Hitchcock has him park away from her across the street like a potential predator looming. That's when he gets out of the car, still in sunglasses to hide the intentions in his eyes, and stands against the side of the vehicle with his arms spread. It's a very relaxed, 
open body positioning, which makes us and Marion cringe because it's the equivalent of a poker face. We know he has reason to stop and be here, but he gives us nothing. Is he about to arrest her, or is he just learning more? Are other cops on the way, or is he just curious about why she's buying a different car? Beyond that, her whole point for buying the new car was to prevent people from knowing who she is. But now someone who knows her identity is watching her buy the new car she hoped to use to deflect the possibility of detection by him and others looking for her. Is it even worth making the purchase now? What is Marion going to do? That suspense keeps building because we don't get any of those answers while we're simultaneously being bombarded with fears in relation to the questions. So Marion needs to get out the cash to buy the car and goes into the ladies' room to do it. What we notice most prominently is that she's in front of a mirror, so we get the disunity of two images of her. There's her actual body in the restroom and then her reflection in the mirror, and what lies between them is her shadow. It's another representation of the psychological split that brought forth young shadow. But what I find really interesting is that when she pulls the envelope of stolen cash out of her purse with her left hand, her right hand is directly under the soap dispenser. We have to remember she hasn't spent any of this money yet. While she's committed a crime, she could return every penny of the money. It's not too late. This right hand under the soap dispenser and the left hand holding the cash represents the choice between spending this stolen money, delving deeper into her criminal behavior, or stopping herself right there and washing her hands clean of the problem by doing the right thing. Now remember, we have two Marians visible here, one in front of the mirror and another reflected in it. The reflection represents the shadow, the sociopath that she's become after the psychological split, while the real Marion is the tangible one in front of the mirror. The image in the mirror, aka the product of the shadow, can only be seen holding the money. The soap dispenser is not reflected in the mirror. It's only visible in front of the original Marion in the restroom. So what Hitchcock is saying is that the shadow has no choice in the matter. It came about as a matter of indulging criminality and redirecting light, which is exactly what a mirror does, and therefore what a mirrored image is by definition. It's redirection of light, manipulation. So the split happened due to a criminal choice, which means only the real tangible, original Marion standing in the restroom has the option to do the right thing. Only she can decide to wash her hands clean of it. So that's why we see two Marions, one reflected and one tangible with her shadow in between. That's the sequential process of what happened. She made a choice to indulge criminality and redirect light, causing a psychological shift to becoming two people, one being the original Marion, the other the new shadow. The shadow 
only cares about the things related to the reason it was created. It loves the darkness, embraces the sociopathy, and can only choose the money. But the original Marion, who made the criminal choice that caused the split, leading to formation of the shadow, can still do the right thing. She possesses free will. So Hitchcock gives the option of washing her hands clean to the original Marion standing in the restroom, but her identical reflection in the mirror doesn't offer that same perspective. We don't see the soap dispenser in the mirror and therefore never see that Marion, the reflection, or shadow, put a hand under it. That Marion in the mirror, the shadow, is only seen with one option reflected. The money. Now, the way she can right this wrong is to recognize her wrongdoing, take responsibility, and accept whatever punishment accompanies it. That will bring unity from the disunity she's experiencing. It will make her whole once again. But for now, the shadow leads the way. That's what you have in the want. And the irony present within that is that it doesn't reflect on its circumstances. Here we see that literally. It is merely the result of Marion's choice. So, the shadow is incapable of producing emotional change. That's up to Marion. The shadow operates within the context of the want and does so relentlessly. But lurking beneath that is Marion's need, desperately trying to come to the surface. All of these conflicts with forces of antagonism and the resulting price she pays for her criminal actions leading to them will cause the need to slowly become apparent to Marion. When she finally realizes the truth through experience, specifically failure of the want to produce desired results, her need will then also be what she wants and she will relentlessly pursue the need and achieve unity. But for now, we have that disunity displayed in the mirror. The shadow, or want, is operating only in the context of proceeding as planned with her criminal endeavor. The Marion standing in front of the mirror, however, represents the need. She has the power to change. So we give the Marion in front of the mirror the soap dispenser, sink, and paper towel dispenser for the symbolic purpose of washing her hands clean of this mess, while the shadow in the mirror doesn't have that option. We don't see those things. Hitchcock doesn't show us anything else in the ladies' room, and that's no coincidence. He wants us to absorb the symbolic information in the same way the protagonist encounters it. The answer is there, but not explicitly. So Marion comes back out of the restroom to finish the paperwork in the office with the car dealer. When she walks in, the cop across the street gets in his car and pulls into the lot right outside the office. But he still doesn't tell us why. The suspense builds. Marion comes out of the office, sees him right there, and quickly gets in her new car to leave. Meanwhile, the cop starts walking toward her vehicle. Marion pulls away, but behind her, we hear someone yell, Hey! She hits the brakes, and we're like, Oh shit, here it comes. The cop is going to arrest her. But it's the mechanic who works at the shop. He realizes she left her suitcase in the old car, along with her coat, 
so he runs up to her to hand them over. It looks bad because she's in such a hurry to leave, even at the cost of forgetting her stuff. She tells him to put these things on the back seat and leaves promptly when he does. Now, of course, the mechanic, along with the cop and car dealer, is suspicious. So as she pulls away, we see these three men standing in a staggered diagonal line in the frame of that shot, on the right side. The cop is in back, the car dealer in the middle, and the mechanic at front. On the left of the frame, in front of them, is Marion in her car, looking over her shoulder before she drives away. As she pulls away and turns her head forward, the car dealer starts to walk forward until he's in line with the mechanic, and then the cop walks forward until he's in line with both of them. At that point, they're no longer staggered and are all standing in a straight line next to each other, looking like a group instead of three individuals in different places. Here's why. Marion encountered the cop first, way back on the road. So he's at the back of the staggered line by himself. He represents one individual component of her worry or paranoia about being detected. The car dealer is the person she encountered next, farther along her journey, so he stands to the right of the cop, but a few steps ahead. And she met the mechanic most recently, so he's to the right of the car dealer, and again, a few steps ahead, closest to Marion's car. The staggered line represents these men as individual components of her paranoia. They occur to her separately, up until now, and only hold that power. But like I said earlier, Hitchcock is stacking the suspense, offering no release for all of this buildup, so it's naturally going to start having a cumulative effect that includes consideration of all these individual components as one entity, which is this. Fear. Given that, Hitchcock has the car dealer take a few steps ahead as Marion pulls out of the lot, bringing him flush with where the mechanic is standing. At the same time, the cop walks forward a few steps as well, bringing him flush with the other two men. And to what does that equate? They created unity from disunity. They now stand together, staring at the suspicious Marion leaving. Of course, they're behind her car, symbolically suggesting her problems are following her. Naturally, the next thing that happens is Marion goes through this fabrication of an internal monologue in the car in which these men convey their suspicions to one another. That's what I mean by evolution swarming. They're turning up the heat and doing it in greater numbers. Marion is in the car driving, but biting her lip and gripping the steering wheel hard. She's going over this conversation in her mind, in which the cop says she seemed like she was doing something wrong, and the car dealer offers him the information that she gave him $700 cash, along with her car, to get the new one. It's the first instance of Marion's paranoia, where people are working together to detect what she's done. Thus, the point of showing the unity from disunity in the staggered line going to the straight one. Until now, they were all individual components. That's how crime works. 
As more people become aware of the wrongdoing, evolution bands together in a unit like a swarm of bees to become more effective. For instance, if you kill somebody in your home, but another person you intended to kill escapes out the front door, you only start with one problem, which is the guy who ran out the door. But if he screams and your neighbor hears it, you have two. If he's seen by someone else, three. If that person then calls the cops, you now have a bigger problem. And that's how it goes. It becomes harder and harder to redirect life as more people become involved and the stakes continue to rise. The situation with killing someone at your house could turn into a full-blown manhunt for you within the hour, involving the police, media, and the public. Everyone in the country might know. And why? They make themselves more powerful as a unit, by swarming rather than acting as individual components. So that's what Hitchcock is foreshadowing here. The antagonistic forces have achieved unity from disunity. Of course, like I said, we experience the fallout Marion endures due to this teamwork or evolutionary swarming. Instead of just wondering what Sam will say or what the cop knows or even the car dealer, now she has to worry about what they shared with each other and for one simple reason. Cumulative knowledge makes detection easier. The same thing goes for humanity's plight to create technology. We are vastly more effective as a team. Have you ever noticed teamwork is held in such incredibly high regard in society? That's why. It correlates directly to our species' purpose of detecting light, aka truth. That idea resonates with us. So if the thing everybody is trying to detect is you or your lie, it can be very scary because you know the power of teamwork. Now, let's watch this paranoia play out for her. The cop didn't know Marion was carrying a lot of cash. Now, she believes he does know because she assumes he spoke with the car dealer. She also contemplates if the cop looked at the paperwork for her car and has to wonder what he might have done then. Did he call her employer? Does her sister know? Are the cops going to be waiting at Sam's store? She doesn't know the answer to any of these questions. Which means what? It becomes far more difficult for her to redirect light. She doesn't know what they know. Did they actually even talk about her after she left? Maybe she's just paranoid. Marion can't answer or legitimize any of these huge concerns because the people in question didn't react to her acting suspiciously. They just noted it and left her in the void as the same way they did to us. We are all feeling the same suspense. So that's how Hitchcock so masterfully keeps building the suspense. Without any of these people actually reacting to Marion and offering release for the buildup of tension, they keep poker faces. All the speculation of them conversing in her mind is just that, speculation. She believes it happened, but didn't witness it. So all of these suspicious actions she's taken have left her, a.k.a. the audience, in limbo. What we can expect moving forward is more of the same. She's going to speculate about evolution swarming back home now as well. But again, 
there's no way for her to qualify any of this speculation as truth. So it just amounts to paranoia. So, immediately after the internal monologue involving speculation about what the car dealer, cop, and mechanic said and did in her absence, she indulges another one where her boss is asking her co-worker in a serious tone if Marion has arrived to work yet. Of course, we know she's fabricating this in her mind, as Monday morning hasn't even arrived yet. She's not supposed to be back at work. So, the boss gets the co-worker involved, and the co-worker gets Marion's sister involved. Marion's sister then contacts the boss. The swarm is clearly growing, and unifying by way of cumulative knowledge. They're shedding their ignorance in relation to detection of Marion in the same way humanity sheds its ignorance of the truth about our world through cumulative knowledge that produces technology designed to detect light faster and more efficiently. Now, it's daylight outside the car windows during these imagined interactions. But then the boss asks her co-worker to call the rich guy from whom she stole the money. And this is big trouble. Think of him as the queen bee in the evolutionary swarm because he has a ton of resources. Resources can buy you detection. Just the thought of him getting involved immediately hits Marion like a ton of bricks. When her boss speaks the words, quote, Carolyn, get Mr. Cassidy for me, end quote, in the internal monologue, signifying that the rich guy is about to learn the truth, day instantly changes to night outside the vehicle. We're totally shrouded in darkness, which can only mean one thing. The storm is coming. Night has fallen. Everybody is after her now. Or so she thinks. We still actually have no confirmation anybody is looking for her. It's brilliant, truly. That fear, combined with its lack of validation, is paranoia. Which means what? The thing she's running from is herself, not them. And we can all relate to that. It's emotional. It's an emotionally based problem. Yet, we know that despite the fact these things are happening in her mind, it's due to the fact that they would be the most likely result of the actions she took. So for all intents and purposes, they are after her now. The storm is coming. At that moment, rain pours down from the sky. Marion can't see the road ahead, so she turns on the wipers, but it's raining too hard to make a difference. Now what's beautiful about this is the irony embedded in this idea. Early on in the film, Marion was trying to get out of the arid desert of her life in order to escape to greener pastures as depicted so wonderfully when she walks out of the office with the cash, coming from the painting of the desert and going toward the painting of the waterway boasting lush plant life. Now, what's the difference in terms of resources between a dry desert and a waterway with lush plant life? Rain. Copious amounts of rainfall. Water. It's humanity's greatest resource. But money Again, it's society's number one resource. Yet, she took the money, and now the rain, a.k.a. resources, 
she believed would take her out of that desert in her life are causing her problems. It's become an antagonist. And notice how tragic it is. And why is this detrimental? It's caused a situation in which she can't see the road ahead of her, a.k.a. the truth. That's why the windshield wipers don't even work. It's a metaphor, so they can't. So, the rain keeps pouring down, and Marion looks nervous, unable to see clearly. Again, what would allow her to see is emotional change leading to the truth. She needs to abandon this idea of being with Sam by paying off all of his debts for him. She has to let go of her want and embrace her need in a process of change. But she won't do that. So remember what I said earlier about her life being this shitty hotel? Now that the going has gotten tough and the storm is coming full force, where is she going to stop? At a shitty hotel. It's cyclical. She's right back where she started. That's always been her coping mechanism. To return to that which is familiar simply because it's shelter from the storm. Instead of remaining in Phoenix, indulging the symbolism of the stationary craning in front of the unfinished new building and her need to do the heavy emotional lifting to change, she chose to be a bird, or crane, who took flight after a physical manipulation of resources intended to magically give her a new life overnight. She's emotionally trapped in a depressive cycle. Therefore, when she employs the physical manifestation of an emotional issue through sociopathy to change her circumstances, the only possible result is to end up right back where she started, a shitty hotel. Her story started there, in the first scene, and now it will end there. There is simply no physical means of escape from an emotional issue in mortality. You can't transcend these things. Once we're integrated with AI, that problem will be solved. Thus the reason it is such a prominent consideration in our world today, especially within criminality. But what I really love about the dichotomy of this situation, and the irony, is that Marion desperately wanted rainfall in her life to turn her world from a desert into a lush oasis but now that the storm has come, she's equally desperate to avoid it. It causes her to be unable to see the physical truth outside her windshield on the road ahead and also makes her emotionally incapable of finding it in her heart. So Marion can't see anything as she drives. The rain is just hammering the windshield and soon there are no other cars around. Darkness envelops her. But suddenly... Up ahead, she sees something. Light. It's a brightly lit sign that reads, Bates Motel. Beneath the words, we see, Vacancy. This is her only option now. She's been stuck in a shitty hotel of a life, and refusing to change emotionally has brought her right back to where she began in the cycle. There's nowhere to run. But... She can still change emotionally and make the right choice despite the consequences. In order to do that, 
She'll have to learn something in this place. Let's see how she responds. So Marion checks out the office, and there's nobody around. She goes back outside and looks up the hill next to the hotel. There's a big, gothic type of house sitting on top. At that point, she sees the lights on in one of the bedrooms upstairs. That's when a figure who appears to be a woman walks past one of the windows in that bedroom. But what we really need to understand here is the symbolism embedded. Now, we see this person as a silhouette, which could also be thought of as a shadow. And so whoever that person is, is not the original in the same way that Marion is operating in the context of the shadow. So, whomever lives here is hiding a secret in the same way that Marion is. Now, Marion gets back in her car and taps the horn a few times, which leads to a young man exiting the house up on the hill and hurrying down to the motel to meet her. He says, Gee, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you in all this rain. Go ahead in, please. Many points at the motel. And this is where we get an often overlooked moment. As they enter the office, the first thing we see is both of their reflections framed in a mirror on the wall. What we should glean from this is not only the inference that these two people both have the same problem of having undergone that psychological split to indulge the shadow, but due to that commonality, this young man is going to be the one to teach Marion her lesson. Of course, that happens, but it occurs with a huge twist of irony for this reason. He helps cure Marion's issue with insight from his experiences stuck living in his own shitty motel of a life, which leads to wisdom that allows her to make a better choice. But he doesn't cure his own ailment despite her reciprocated wisdom because only he can decide to change emotionally. Marion is going to choose change. But Norman never does that. So this is a time bomb about to go off right in her face. So Marion, in the midst of the rainstorm, somehow went off the new highway and veered onto the old one that nobody travels anymore. Of course, the new highway represents change, and the old highway represents stagnancy and decay. Both Norman and Marion will prove to be off-track in life, stuck in the cycle of their old ways due to unwillingness to indulge emotional change and carve out a new path. Norman never tried to get out of the shitty motel that represents his life, and Marion has failed to do so by engaging the physical manifestation of her emotional issue with a crime as a potential solution. It isn't going to work. So she ends up right back where she started, like Norman. So we have to wonder, how did he get stuck here? Was it due to a crime? It sure was. Now, anyhow, in Marion's shitty motel, men come and go from her life. But in Norman's, which is literally empty, nobody does that. Norman is alone here. His mother lives in the house on the hill, but he remains loyal and stays with her rather than marrying a woman and leaving because emotional change is hard. 
Norman doesn't want to leave his mother behind. Marion is going to see the self-destruction that choice has perpetrated upon Norman's well-being and realize that will be her if she doesn't proceed to do the right thing. So, what Norman needed to do was grow up emotionally, find a woman to love and marry, and start a family of his own. There would have been happiness in that. That would have put him back on the new highway, headed in the right direction in life. But he didn't go there. Instead, he mimicked Marion in the sense that he employed the physical manifestation of an emotional issue by way of criminality in order to compensate. More on that soon. For now, here's how Marion and Norman recognize each other for what they are. He says, in relation to why the motel is empty, quote, they moved away the highway. Marion responds, quote, oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main road. And then Norman proceeds to openly acknowledge their mutual issue with, quote, I knew you must have. Nobody ever stops here anymore unless they've done that. End quote. Shout out to screenwriter Joseph Stefano for some great subtext in that dialogue. Subtext is so important to dialogue because it represents the unrealized need. The want gets the spotlight on screen. It's always explicit. The need, however, is beneath. Utilizing subtext allows audiences to reach the same realization as a protagonist. Crafting subtext to have a voice consistent with the emotional need precipitates greatness. Okay, anyway, so Norman goes on to ask Marion to sign in at the front desk at the motel office. She enters the name Marie Samuels, redirecting light with sociopathic behavior designed to conceal her identity once again. It's an expression of her issue. So, we know he's going to mirror that and offer us redirection of light in relation to his own problem. Okay, so Norman goes on to ask Marion to sign in at the front desk in the motel office. She enters the name Marie Samuels, redirecting light with sociopathic behavior designed to conceal her identity once again. It's an expression of her issue. So we know he's going to mirror that and offer us redirection of light in relation to his own problem. So Norman goes on to request that Marion fills out the home address tab in the book and she pauses just a moment before he continues by telling her she can just write the city instead of the whole address. He's basically saying, I'm not a creep, I don't need to know your address. But we know he's redirecting light just like she is, based upon the symbolism apparent in their introduction. So he's redirecting the truth away from the fact that he really is a creep. That's what we're going to learn shortly. But anyway, Marion's pause wasn't about that. It was just that she didn't have an address for Marie Samuels because that person isn't real. She says aloud to Norman, confirming her home city, Los Angeles, lying once again and redirecting light in relation to remaining undetected. So, what does Norman's reaction have to be, which we can deduce from the pattern? The answer is that he's going to redirect light again, and not only in relation to being a creep, but as it pertains to the reason why his emotional growth has been stunted this badly. So in line with that thought, as she says Los Angeles, Norman counters by moving his hand over the keys on the rack that are marked for cabins two and three. He seems ready to reach for one of them, 
but suddenly, yet still reluctantly, grabs the key for cabin number one. We understand this redirection of light was intentional. He's manipulating circumstance for some type of gain or advantage, and it has to be in relation to not only being a creep, but also the emotional issue causing that. On the surface, Marion seems a well-adjusted, classy woman. On Norman's surface, he seems a bit of a timid, yet boyishly charming, innocent young man. But beneath those facades, these two are troubled people on a collision course. Let's watch it happen. So, Norman grabs Marion's suitcase and her coat from the car and leads her into cabin one. We know he's uncomfortable being in this motel room alone with her because he leaves the door open while it's raining and also opens the windows. After opening the windows, he turns to her, standing in place, and she faces him from the other end of the room, closer to the door. To their left is a narrow wall outside the bathroom doorway. On that wall, we see two framed pictures, one on top of the other in identical frames. Each picture is an identical single bird perched on a thin section of a tree branch. The only difference is that one bird faces Marion and the other bird faces Norman. These birds represent these characters. The reason birds are used is because these two indulge the physical manifestation of their emotional issue and tried to take flight from their emotional problems instead of changing. But in choosing flight, they haven't changed and haven't escaped anything, so the fact that these birds remain grounded is expressed by showing them both perched. Neither will take flight, but one of them will fall, literally and figuratively. Remember the use of the crane in the opening to fly into the window? Same deal. Anyhow, we know these birds represent these two characters, Norman and Marion, because when one of them falls, the other, while in shock at discovering the scene, will accidentally knock the bird picture that was facing Marion off the wall. Not only will that signify it was truly symbolizing her, but it also foreshadows who the real killer is by having Norman knock down the picture. Anyhow, we see Norman's immaturity and inexperience with women during this scene in the motel room. He's awkward, and even has trouble saying the word bathroom in front of her. We get the sense he's led a sheltered life, and doesn't normally hold conversations with women, or anyone else, outside of his mother. He says the mattress is soft, instead of the bed, likely because the word bed can often have sexual implications depending upon the context in any given situation. And Marion notices this. It's awkward but charming, on the surface. Beneath that, we can only imagine he's repressed, frustrated, and about to do something creepy in relation to coping with that. We understand it's in relation to this cabin, and because it's directly next door to the office, we start to get the feeling what it is. Norman confirms this notion as he prepares to leave the cabin and says, quote, Well, if you want anything, just tap on the wall. I'll be in the office. End quote. That foreshadows it. Now, how do we know what he's going to do? Well, that scene just demonstrated Norman's man-child presentation. He's very immature and inexperienced, and it's because he hasn't gone out into the world and lived. Outside of any potential relations with his mother, he's likely a virgin who's never fallen in love and is isolated out in this tiny town along a lonely highway. He has nearly no visitors, 
no friends or other social life, no promising future, or anything similar. There's no stimulation here. This place is decay and stagnancy. He has to have many unfulfilled desires due to his current circumstances at home. Now, certainly not now, but back in the day, a boy like this, who had not yet gone out into society to forge his manhood, would be referred to with the prefix master. Of course, Norman is that person, and his last name is Bates. So the combination of the two gives us Master Bates. Accordingly, Norman's about to do something sociopathic to cope with an emotional issue through physical means. But before we get there, as Norman is leaving, he suggests the two of them should have dinner together up at the house. He's just making sandwiches, but says the kitchen is cozy. So, he goes to make the sandwiches and is planning to come back to get her when they're ready. In the meantime, Marion gets settled by hiding the cash in the folds of a newspaper and leaves it hiding in plain sight. That's when we hear Norman getting an argument up at the house with an older woman we soon hear him address as his mother. Marion goes to the open windows in the room and listens as the rain has slowed enough to make it perfectly audible. We quickly learn by what she's saying that this woman is the reason Norman has grown to a man physically, but is still just a child emotionally. She stifles him, especially in relation to women. We hear her say, quote, No, I tell you, I won't have you bringing strange girls in for supper. End quote. She then berates him relentlessly in a loud voice about staying away from young women until she says Marion won't be having her food or her son and wants to know if he's going to tell her or if she needs to go down there herself because he doesn't have the guts. Norman finally gets so frustrated, he tells her to shut up several times while raising his voice. Marion listens at the open window as the argument ends and then ponders for a moment. What's happening is that this is the first phase of her realization that her issue is emotional, not physical. She learns that by experiencing the reason why Norman is stuck in his own shitty little hotel of a life, just like the one she's been living. She can see Norman's unwillingness to change stunts his emotional growth. Look at him acting like a child, saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. That's her problem, too. She refuses to behave like an adult. Essentially, that's her problem, too. She refuses to grow up and act like an adult. So Norman comes back down to the motel with food for Marion. She invites him into her room, and he steps forward but hesitates and then steps back. Her eyebrows rise, asking what's wrong. Norman begins to stutter, and that inexperience and nervousness around women he's attracted to becomes readily apparent. He says it might be nicer and warmer in the office, but the subtext is that his mother wouldn't approve of him going in this woman's room to hang out with her. If you recall, he opened the windows in her room just minutes ago because it was too warm. So, he asks her to come into the office to eat, and then suggests they should sit in the parlor in the back. And the following scene is truly magical, to say the least. They enter the parlor in darkness, 
of course, we recall the framed pictures of perched birds in Marion's cabin representing these two people. So we know there's some type of significance beyond the factors already discussed. Birds are going to play some type of a role in this story. On that note, when Norman turns on a table lamp in the parlor, we see numerous stuffed birds resting beneath its shade on the table. They're all small birds placed in various positions on perches. High up on the walls, we see much larger predatory type birds also on perches. These have gone through the taxidermy process as well. Marion, who enters with arms crossed, showing hesitation, looks up to the far right corner of the room and sees a big owl looking even bigger with its wings spread like it's swooping down to catch its prey. Norman is bent over at this time, and she turns toward him only to notice a large, stuffed crow perched on the wall above and behind him. Particular attention is paid to this bird. There's no depth of field issue as there is often with the owl. So, if the two perched birds in the photos in her cabin represent her and Norman, then who's the third person, Mr. Hitchcock? Tell us. Of course, he does. And he also informs us why this bird is stuffed as opposed to the other two. The stuffed crow is facing left on the back wall of the room. At the end of its beak is a painting in a circular frame. In the center of that painting, we have three people depicted huddled together. The one in the middle is female and has large wings protruding from her back, signifying she's an angel. The person to the left of the angel is also female but does not have wings. She is leaning away from the angel with one arm out, almost as though she's trying to get away. The third person seems to be male and is huddled against the angel with arms folded rather than leaning away with an arm out like the other person. So, we have three birds total, one stuffed, and three people in the center of the painting located at the end of the stuffed bird's beak. If Marion and Norman represent the first two birds we saw in her cabin, then Norman is the male figure huddled against the female angel, and Marion is the female figure leaning away from them. That means the female angel in the center of the painting is the third bird, representing the stuffed one directly next to and facing the painting. The stuffed bird actually has wings, and so does the woman in the center of the painting. Angels have ascended to heaven, or died, in the same way the stuffed crow has died. So what it's telling us is that the third person present in this situation, which is Norma Bates, Norman's mother, is not only dead, a.k.a. the angel, but is also stuffed like the crow she represents. It's inferring she's a product of taxidermy. And since Norman's seemingly inescapable emotional problems, as well as Marion's, are products of being caught in a depressive cycle, or cyclical, this painting is presented to us in a circular frame, while every other painting, photo, or picture in the room is presented to us in a square or rectangular frame. So, they sit, and Norman tells Marion all the food is for her. He's not hungry. But a few minutes back, he told her he was about to have dinner. 
so we see that that was just a ploy to be near her. Now, he watches her eat a moment, smiles, and remarks, You eat like a bird. Marion looks around at the stuffed birds and replies, You'd know, of course. And Norman says, No, not really. Norman's line is great because it's apparent none of these birds are actually alive. They don't eat. But Norman still wants to be surrounded by these inanimate creatures. Norman goes on to say that the notion birds don't eat much is a falsity. But when he starts the word falsity with false, he stutters several times with the first half of the word before finally saying falsity. I think what's going on here is that he's alone with a woman to whom he's attracted, very immature and inexperienced, and in the same way he didn't want to say bathroom or bed in front of Marion, he was about to say falsehood and then looked for an alternative. Why? Falsehood seems to combine the sounds of phallus, which basically means penis, and hood is the second half of manhood, which is also used to describe the male genitalia. So as he's about to say falsehood and becomes embarrassed, he stutters and opts for falsity instead. We have to remember, he just got yelled at by his mother for engaging this woman in conversation, as though he was trying to sleep with her. Norman is nervous about saying the wrong thing, because mother is listening. It speaks to just how turtled up inside his shell he's become. He's fully loyal to her. That's when he says, I don't really know much about birds. My hobby is stuffing things. You know, taxidermy. Marion replies, Well, a man should have a hobby. And that's when we get a very revealing moment about this taxidermy. Norman reaches out to his right after Marion's last line and begins caressing the feathers of a small stuffed bird as he says, Well, it's more than a hobby, actually and he keeps caressing the bird. Hitchcock is foreshadowing the fact that Norman has the capacity to show love and affection toward inanimate objects, especially those which are stuffed, a.k.a. preserved, through taxidermy. Marion asks, Do you go out with friends? Norman replies, Well, a boy's best friend is his mother. So Norman goes on to ask Marion, where she's going, meaning on her trip. She tells him she's looking for a private island. He asks her what she's running away from, and she pauses before defensively asking, quote, why do you want to know that, End quote. And if you recall, as I said, Marion would have to learn her lessons through Norman. So here's one of those big moments where he dishes out part of that lesson. He replies, People never run away from anything. What he's referring to is the concept of the physical manifestation of an emotional issue I talked about. You can't run. You have to change through making different choices. You have to remain where you are and do the heavy emotional lifting like the crane constructing the building. And as soon as he says that, he drops another great line dishing out a lesson. He looks out the window and says, the rain didn't last long, did it? Remember how she went from the arid desert painting behind her desk to the lush waterway painting when she walked out the door at work 
with the stolen cash, a.k.a. resources, a.k.a. rain. That's what he's saying. You got the cash and took off. That part was successful. But it, the rain, doesn't last. Now everybody's after you. You can't run away. Norman follows up that line with, You know what I think? I think we're all in our own private traps, clamped in them. And this whole time, you can see Marion pondering what she's done. She's learning from him because they're similar. But then he says, in reference to being caught in a trap, but none of us can ever get out. We scratch and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. That's when Marion replies, sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. So this is the third instance of her contemplating her own situation vicariously through his expression of misery about his own. And notice it's verbal now. Watch the evolution of how the want becomes the need for the protagonist. When Marion checked in and then went to her room, accepting the dinner invitation from Norman, she heard him and his mother having an argument up at the house in which it's apparent how and why Norman's emotional growth had been stunted to the extent he ended up stuck in this shitty little hotel of a life. When she hears that argument end, Hitchcock shows her ponder for a moment with a disturbed face that exhibits self-reflection. She intuitively realizes the correlation between Norman's situation and her own. So, the first phase is just words she overhears. The second phase is when Norman says to her directly, people never run away from anything. Followed after a pause by, the rain didn't last long, did it? Now, Marion is learning directly from him, rather than overhearing the words while he's talking to someone else. It's a more direct and effective teaching method, meaning that what was implied in the subtext of the argument between Norman and his mother that she overheard is now resonating explicitly through direct conversation with the subject in question, Norman. He's speaking to Marion, not his mother. And then again, the third phase is when Norman says, You know what I think? I think we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And Marion, who's pondering this and trying to learn from the things he's already said, as well as this notion, replies, Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. Now, instead of overhearing that wisdom intuitively in the argument between Norman and his mother, and then absorbing it directly from Norman's words about people never being able to run away, and how the rain didn't last long, Marion finally speaks for herself to declare what she's learned from all of this when she says, sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. That's the truth about her and Norman. That's how they ended up here in this shitty motel. They didn't have the emotional maturity to change and transcend their circumstances, so they took physical means to compensate, which deliberately put themselves in their own traps. So if you recall, I said the want is shed by the process of the need rising to the surface. Notice the trajectory of Marion's lesson and her subsequent response. 
she first intuitively considers the theme of the argument between Norman and his mother as being relevant to her situation, too. Then she ponders the truth about her actions through Norman speaking directly to her. Next, she speaks for the first time on that subject by saying people deliberately put themselves in their own traps. So the process goes from being entirely intuitive to being fully explicit. But guess what's missing? What would need to be the next phase of her realization? The answer is action. Nothing else matters. Words are free to speak. Marion's next obligation in the process of shedding the want for the need is to take action toward that goal. She first had an intuitive, vicarious realization through the argument between Norman and his mother and was then instructed by Norman's words, at which point she explicitly says she understands by saying sometimes people deliberately put themselves in their own traps. It's the truth that she needed to realize. That's how the need forces the want out of the protagonist's body. It's an exorcism. But here's the scary part about all of this. There's no way in hell the protagonist should be shedding the want already in the script. We're not even halfway home. Hitchcock has a trick hidden up his sleeve. So Marion needs to take action to fix her own problem. But in the story, she's sitting with someone, having a conversation, and eating a sandwich. So what we get treated to next given that she just can't run out at this moment, is her trying to teach Norman his lesson now that she possesses understanding about him as well and knows he put himself in his own trap. She wants to help him like he just helped her, but we quickly learn that Norman is not going to absorb the lesson. When she says, sometimes we deliberately step into those traps, not only is she making an explicit statement that she consciously realizes and accepts her mistakes, but she's trying to get Norman to realize this as well. Yet, he replies in reference to deliberately stepping into his own trap, I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore. It's a direct statement. He isn't going to change emotionally because he doesn't blame himself for the problem. He blames his circumstances. So when he says, I don't mind it anymore, Marion, asserting her newly discovered knowledge, says, Oh, but you should. You should mind it. She's telling him to change. And why? Because she knows that he's hurting like she's been. And we get confirmation of that with the reply from Norman. He lets out a bit of a nervous laugh, shrugs, and says, Oh, I do. But I say I don't. It's a direct statement that he just grins and bears it, that he's not willing to change to escape this place. And Marion tries to encourage him with, you know, if anyone ever talked to me the way I heard her talk to you, and then trails off. This is brilliant because she can't finish the sentence for him. He needs to come to the realization on his own to change. She wants him to consider this and then finish that sentence with action. She's encouraging that because it's what she's about to do. She's learned her lesson and is going to step up and own it now. Norman goes on to say that sometimes he thinks about leaving forever, but he knows he can't because his mother is ill. 
Marion immediately replies, She sounded strong because she knows Norman is just making excuses. They have the same emotional problem. He can't fool her. He can only learn from her like she learned from him. But she keeps trying with, Why don't you go away? When he resists that notion with expressions of how sick his mother truly is, Marion suggests he might put her in a mental institution. She's trying to free him, but Norman takes strong offense to this and takes on an angry, dark tone. Marion seems frightened and says, I'm sorry, I only felt it seems she's hurting you. I meant well. She now realizes Norman is totally unwilling to change. She can't help him. The only thing to do now is bail. The conversation has to end. Marion looks freaked out, but the icing on the cake of her lesson is coming. The one thing she hasn't done yet is explicitly acknowledge her emotional issue in words. She's done it through the subtext of their interaction, but to cap off this conversation and allow Marion to take the next step, which is action, she must explicitly acknowledge she's done something wrong for emotional reasons. In that light, here's what happens. Norman, while speaking about his overbearing mother, says, she just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? Marion replies, yes, sometimes just one time can be enough. And she sees the mental instability all over Norman's face. His emotional issues are boiling over. That could have been her. But since they intersected, he taught her this lesson. So right after that, she says, Thank you. Without any context. On the surface, the gesture suggests she's referencing the food he offered her that she just ate. But beneath that, in the subtext, she's saying thank you for teaching her the lesson. Now that she has fully learned and embraced the lesson and thanked him for it, the only thing left to do is take action. Nothing else would further the narrative. Accordingly, right after saying thank you, Marion stands to leave. And of course, because Norman isn't going to change and get out of this shitty motel, despite any consequences, when she tries to leave, he's going to try to stop her. He says, Oh, you're not going back to your room already? And she responds, I'm very tired, and I have a long drive tomorrow, all the way back to Phoenix. Now, that's an amazing response for a couple of reasons. Not only does it say that Marion is going to go home and do the right thing by returning the cash and facing the music, but she also admits that she lied to Norman about where she was from. If you recall, she told him Los Angeles earlier. Now that she's no longer redirecting light for the purpose of manipulation, she doesn't have to lie to him. She's truly come full circle emotionally. Yet Norman has been lying to her. He's protecting something in relation to Mother. Hitchcock foreshadows this throughout that scene by having Norman shift back and forth in his seat. Sometimes he leans far forward, other times he leans back. And each time he does it, we see an emotional shift in his disposition. He can go from angry and teeth-gritted to smiling in a matter of seconds. He's unstable. So, 
Marion continues, in relation to returning to Phoenix, I stepped into a private trap back there. I'd like to go back and try to pull myself out of it. She then pauses, becomes a bit somber, and more quietly says, before it's too late for me to. Of course, she's talking about becoming Norman. She's inclined to act to escape her emotional issue, a.k.a. isolation in the shitty motel of a life. Unlike him. But what's truly great about that part is that when she delivers those lines, the stuffed crow on the wall, representing Norman's mother, is staring directly at her from over her left shoulder. It's incredibly menacing and equally apparent. It's foreshadowing something. Obviously, we know Norman isn't going anywhere, so he says, Are you sure you don't want to stay a little while longer? Just for talk? He's saying he's lonely and isolated, but refuses to change, a.k.a. leave this place. Marion's learned her lesson, though. She isn't going to stay a minute longer. But she does happen to mention her last name is Crane when Norman prompts her with, All right, Miss... while saying goodbye. So, she tells him the truth about that as well, meaning her name, and then leaves. Norman goes out to the office and looks at her info in the guest register. She wrote her name as Marie Samuels and her home city as Los Angeles. He grins at this. So, Norman goes back to the parlor, shuts the door, and goes to the wall that the parlor shares with Marion's cabin. He reaches out and takes a painting off the wall that depicts two men ravaging a nude woman as she reaches a hand to the sky. This painting, as well as the one next to it, has symbolic meaning we'll discuss. But for now, since Marion has decided to change, and Norman has not, Marion is taking her first steps toward correcting the issue, while Norman is forced to engage the physical manifestation of his emotional problem once again. If he decided to change and go out into the world free of his mother's grasp, he could find a lover, as he desires, and wouldn't be isolated from the social life he wants. I mean, he asks Marion to stay just a little longer and talk. He's lonely, and if a young man is lonely and seeking the company of a woman, it's likely his mind is veering toward her company in a physical sense as well, not just for conversation. But Norman can't have that type of relationship by remaining here in this shitty little hotel. Marion tries to show him that by not staying to talk and by planning to go back to Phoenix. So, since he isn't going to grow up, yet still desires a woman, he'll have to indulge the physical manifestation of his emotional issue by indulging sociopathic behavior as a shortcut to getting what he desires. If he can't have Marion, then he'll fantasize. So when he takes the painting down, we see a hole cut in the drywall where Norman can stick his face. And behind that, entering into the cabin next door, is a peephole. He leans over, wide-eyed, and takes a voyeuristic look into the next cabin over, cabin one. The first thing he sees is Marion in a state of partial undress. Now, this is 1960, so we're not going to get an explicit representation of him jacking off. We just see a close-up of the intense excitement in his eye as he watches. 
Marion, of course, isn't shown nude back in 1960, so she's partially undressed, and then the scene cuts to her wearing a robe and heading into the bathroom. The insinuation is that she's about to take a shower. Once she's dressed and has the robe on, Norman puts the painting back on the wall. That's when he leaves the motel and goes back up to the house on the hill. He sits alone in the kitchen. Meanwhile, Marion is in her room, writing numbers on a piece of paper. And notice what he's doing. He can't distance himself from his emotional desires, so he creates physical space between him and Marion. It's the physical manifestation of an emotional issue. Meanwhile, Marion is in her room, writing numbers on a piece of paper. We see calculations of how much she spent and the difference she'll have to pay back. So, not only is she going to own up to this, she's going to pay the man back. She's fully shed her want for her need, and is now acting in a manner that says she's brought unity from the psychological split, or disunity, that occurred when she stole the cash and left town. Indulging the emotional need in favor of maturity has made her whole again. It's brought unity. The only part of the process left for her is to go back to the familiar world from which she came. This is when she goes in the bathroom, takes off her robe, and gets in the shower. What's often forgotten here is the beautiful symbolic or metaphorical rendering of the idea that through the lesson she learned from Norman and her decision to go home, face the music, and pay back the money, she's cleansed herself of the problem. Remember the soap in the gas station bathroom? That's what the shower represents here as well, among other things. If she cleanses herself, she's symbolically reborn. And guess what else? Did you happen to notice what resource she has now, in abundance, and is using to cleanse herself of the emotional issues she's overcome? Water. And not just water. Shower faucets deliver water like rain from above. Her arid desert of a life now has abundant rainfall to offer plentiful growth due to emotional change. She learned she can't steal resources, a.k.a. cash, to solve issues. This time, the water is pleasant, and it shows, unlike when it blinded her in the car. That's when we see the bathroom door open behind the transparent shower curtain. A dark figure appears in the doorway, but Marion is enjoying the shower so much she isn't paying attention. The figure, which looks like a silhouette, or shadow, slowly approaches the shower curtain, pauses, and then rips the curtain back to reveal an older woman in a long dress holding a large kitchen knife in the air above her head, the blade pointed downward toward Marion in the shower. We don't get a good look at her face. That's when Marion turns, sees the woman, and screams. The older woman stabs Marion to death in the shower and quickly exits. Marion slides down the tile wall and then falls over the edge of the tub, tearing down the shower curtain along the way. She ends up lying over the edge of the tub 
half of her body on the floor outside the shower, face on the tile floor, and her lower half still in the shower. And this part I love. Now that she's dead, not only is the $40,000 never being returned, but the emotional lesson she learned in order to change is also lost. Both of those things were represented by water, and now they're both gone. In a figurative sense, you could say both the lesson and the money went down the drain. So that's what Hitchcock shows us, the water spiraling down the tub drain. And what's truly amazing is that he doesn't just show us that. After depicting the water going down the drain, that shot transitions into the camera rotating around Marion's eye in the same way until it stops and shows us she's perfectly still. The camera is staring into one of her eyes and showing us she's dead. We understand the lesson she learned is all for naught. The camera then immediately moves from her eye, panning across the room to the newspaper with the cash hidden inside it. That's when the camera pans from the newspaper to the nearest window, where we see the house up on the hill. In the distance, Norman is heard calling out, Mother! Oh God, Mother! Blood! Blood! Of course, after seeing an older woman murder Marion, we understand Norma Bates, Norman's mother, is Marion's killer. So Norman runs down the hill from the house to the motel. He storms into the cabin, sees the bathroom door open, and hurries to the doorway to look inside. He sees the carnage and quickly turns away from it, leaning his back against the wall outside the bathroom doorway and simultaneously throwing a hand to his mouth in disbelief. When he throws that left hand over his mouth, his left elbow hits the lower of the two framed pictures of identical perched birds I mentioned earlier that represent him and Marion. That elbow knocks that one picture off the wall, and it hits the floor, signifying that one of those two birds has fallen off its perch. And we know when birds fall off their perch, it's because they just died. Now, the picture he knocks down is the same one that was facing Marion earlier during their conversation in the cabin. Since Norman just knocked down the one representing Marion, it suggests he was the one who really killed her. And when we look at his face at this moment, we see the other picture, which featured the bird pointing at him earlier to represent the fact it was him, is directly over his shoulder, and now facing him once again. Of course, if you kill somebody, it was often referred to in the past as knocking someone off. So, Norman knocks this thing off the wall, and it insinuates that he was the killer. But Hitchcock also uses another device to tell us what really happened. Marion cleansed herself through action related to emotional change and willingness to accept the consequences of her wrongdoing. The shower water represented that. The person who killed her took that from her, symbolically turning off the water and also her ability to cleanse herself. So whomever physically turns off the water will reveal himself as the true killer and also go on to clean up after the mess 
because Marion is unable to cleanse it. That person, of course, is Norman Bates. He turns off the water in the shower. If that isn't enough, he then drags the body out onto the shower curtain on the cabin floor. Right afterward, he looks down and sees blood all over his hands. Of course, it's common to suggest someone has blood on their hands if they're responsible for another's death. He proceeds to mop the bathroom clean and put Marion's dead body in the trunk of her car, wrapped in the shower curtain. The license plate on the car is NFB 418. Though we're told the initials NFB have no relevance in the film, I think it's awfully strange the person who just got murdered had a car with Norman's initials on it, as well as the three numbers on the right side of the plate, 418, adding up to unlucky 13. There's no way to identify what the F would be in relation to Norman's middle name, but I think Hitchcock's story about using a crew member's plate due to convenience is a total load of shit. I think it's intentional. Anyhow, Norman packs her suitcase and collects all of her things. He hangs the bird picture back on the wall and then puts all of her items in the car's trunk. Now, normally in a film narrative, the halfway point is where the protagonist becomes fully invested in the journey. It's the moment when something happens that says there's no turning back now. It can be a positive or negative value, a high or a low, but it has to happen because it's a springboard for them to change. But our protagonist, Marion, isn't going to go back home and make everything right again. We should have seen this coming when she offered us that accelerated character arc I mentioned. She changed far too early in the script, and now we know why. But we're like, what the fuck? You can't kill the protagonist. Who do we follow now? Of course, on the surface, it seems as though Mother killed Marion, and so, as Norman is cleaning up, strangely, we begin to identify with him as the protagonist because, seemingly, he wasn't the killer. He's just stuck in this emotional issue that causes him to be loyal to his mother. But just like Marion committed a crime and learned her lesson, we hope Norman doesn't get caught because we want to see him seek redemption by learning his lesson as well, growing up, and getting away from the horrible influence of his ill mother. Now, of course, we witnessed evolution swarm all over Marion, applying the pressure. That's now going to happen to Norman, because he's redirecting light. The suspense will increase. So he tries to walk out of the cabin with the mop bucket, and the car's headlights pass over him quickly. The car is just passing out on the road, but he drops the bucket right away and has this paranoid look plastered on his face. The moving headlights symbolize the redirection of light he's engaging in the murder cover-up. Now, take notice of that moment of suspense and how it's inferior to the staggered or stacked approach I talked about earlier. When the headlights cross Norman, a question is asked that leaves us in suspense, which is something like, oh no, who is pulling up in this car? We desperately want to know if it's an antagonistic force that's going to interfere with Norman's plight to do the dirty work in covering up his mentally ill mother's murderous actions. He's doing it 
because he loves his mother, and she's all he has in this world. So we don't want him to get caught. But as soon as the headlights hit Norman, they just as quickly pass and never return. So it's the equivalent of a jump scare in the sense that it's really effective in short bursts, but it doesn't have a cumulative effect that adds up throughout the movie. You get the reaction right after the action. The audience isn't left in limbo, in that void I mentioned, wondering what's going to happen. So the paranoia is short-lived. On the other hand, if you have a situation like Marion had earlier, where she never got to see the reactions of her co-workers, her boss, the rich guy, or anyone else after she stole the money, and also had to anticipate Sam's response to her crime, the paranoia lingers. You keep wondering what will happen. You live in that limbo between the action and reaction. Marion just kept worrying and looking over her shoulder. It continued with the cop, the car dealer, and the mechanic. So, anyhow, as Norman drives off to dispose of the car, along with Marion's belongings, and the $40,000 he doesn't realize was inside the newspaper, we're about to get another one of those short-lived but intense moments of suspense. We know from Norman's emotional state that he's going to conceal his problems beneath the surface that he shows the world. And since water is a prominent resource in this film, both for Norman and Marion as protagonists, he'll submerge the car. Norman pushes Marion's car into a swamp and nervously watches it sink. It goes down most of the way, but suddenly stops. And as the audience, your heart drops. You desperately want this car to sink. You're on the edge of your seat. And it's then, Hitchcock really solidifies Norman Bates as the protagonist in the wake of Marion's exit. You know you're on his side when you can't stop hoping for the car to sink. The car equates to the truth. Norman wants to bury the truth, so to speak. That's what he always does. We empathize, though, because his mother is the evil one. But just as suddenly as the car fails to sink, it finally does go fully underwater. The suspense is incredibly effective, but it doesn't translate into a long-term payoff. Here's the thing, though. Norman ends this scene watching the water come after the car submerges. He's satisfied with the result, evidenced by a bit of a smile. Okay, so Norman redirected all sorts of light in manipulating this circumstance of covering up Marion's murder for his mentally ill mother. When you do that, you set off an alarm called Society, which is evolution's watchdog. People start looking for the missing person, and for various reasons, especially in the case of a crime. So when you redirect this light, it becomes inauthentic and needs to be corrected. The people who have an interest in the missing person, Marion, will serve the purpose of evolution swarming. The reason evolution swarms is that it needs to make those corrections to the redirected or inauthentic light sources. That means, as a criminal, when you commit the crime, there's no swarm because the reaction doesn't come until after your action. Once you redirect light, though, it comes looking for you full force in an effort to bring the truth to the surface and suppress your light source in prison because such manipulative 
destructive actions contribute to societal breakdown. If you inhibit movement, you inhibit the ability to redirect light. Norman wants to escape that fate, but a swarm is coming. In the same way Marion had to constantly worry about what people were thinking and doing after she stole the money, Norman suffers the same fate after covering up Marion's murder. With this new protagonist and a new crime having been committed, he'll have to desperately keep trying to redirect light to avoid the truth coming to the surface, not only about Marion's murder, but also his emotional issue. That's the thing he's really hiding. That's what led to this result. And what's interesting is that, even though our original protagonist is gone, we still get the onslaught of antagonistic forces that generally arrive right after the midpoint of a film. Once the protagonist is fully committed at the midpoint, the antagonists become relentless because that's what will force the required emotional change that leads to success or not. In tragedy, the change doesn't come. And that's essentially what this story is by the end. Earlier, Marion said, in reference to Norman suggesting we're all in our own private traps, that sometimes we deliberately put ourselves in that situation. That's Norman Bates. That's who he is. He isn't going to change. He'll keep engaging denial and redirecting light. That leads to an endgame where the truth will be forced to the surface by physical means, specifically action by his antagonists, rather than through emotional change. His want will still be shed for his need, but it will be forced by the antagonists rather than done of his own volition. So before we move into the onslaught of antagonistic forces rendering heightened suspense, let's take a look back to something that has relevance moving forward. The painting on the parlor wall, Norman removed to watch Marion undress, and the one to the left of it. They have meaning in this tale. So, the painting Norman removed, which depicts two older men in the process of molesting a woman they're seemingly about to rape, was something that drew a lot of attention because Hitchcock, in a trailer for the film, gives a guided visual tour of the motel and the house, which includes him pointing at that piece and saying, quote, This picture has great significance because... End quote. So he trails off. He's not going to tell us. In typical Hitchcock fashion, he's going to leave us in suspense, in that void. We exist in that prolonged limbo until we find the answer. So, many sources identify this scene, depicted in the painting, as something called Susanna and the Elders. It comes from the book of Daniel, and the story behind it suggests that two older men were watching a young woman bathe when they became overwhelmed by desire due to this sinful activity and thereby took physical action to assault and rape the woman to fulfill their desires fueled by the voyeuristic pursuit of watching her get naked and bathe in nearby water. Of course, that painting hangs over the hole Norman uses to watch Marion undress and bathe, causing him great excitement and a desire to act upon his physical desires 
as a result of the voyeurism. But he knows Mother wouldn't approve. She's already identified Marion as a problem in their argument. So instead of acting on his physical desires, Norman goes back up to the house and sits alone at the kitchen table. He's trying to keep himself from becoming those men in the painting by way of withholding his sinful behavior. But Mother knows, and since she obviously doesn't want sex with the young woman, and her desire is to make Marion go away because she's a bad influence on her son, making him think of sex, and related things that would be considered disloyal to the relationship with Mother, she needs to get Marion out of the way. She's a threat to Norman leaving Mother. She's trying to change his mind about staying at the hotel. Marion has been trying to teach Norman a lesson that she's already learned, one that's in the process of taking her away from the shitty motel of a life and emotionally maturing. But Mother can't have that. She can't let Norman mature emotionally because then the truth would come to the surface. And the secret must be kept. Mother can't be left alone at the motel. After all, a boy's best friend is his mother. Now, the one theme residing in the painting that resonates with me, above and beyond that which I just mentioned, is that we see these two men, incredibly desirous of this young woman they've just watched in secret from a distance, and have now approached to ravage due to their overwhelming desire, fueled by the inclination to watch her in the first place when they shouldn't have. It's wrong. In the same way sexually assaulting her is wrong. So when we look at the painting and we see this nude, helpless young woman reaching for the sky as though only God can help her or save her from this evil, it creates a dichotomous perspective in the same way we feel when we see Norman peering through the peephole. In Susanna and the Elders, we identify with Susanna desperately wanting to be saved from the sexual wrath of these voyeuristic men who have been stalking her. Simultaneously, when Norman's eye goes up to the peephole and Hitchcock shows his eye rather than what he's viewing, we want to see what he sees, meaning Marion undressing, even though we know this voyeurism is wrong. What it's showing us is that the shadow, or split psyche, resides in all of us, waiting to come to the surface at any moment due to a contradiction between our desires and the behavior which society demands to uphold civility. Our desires cause us to want to see Marion undressing, or even be with her, but social responsibility dictates she deserves the respect of privacy and control of her own body. If you choose the polite, societal behavior, the world becomes a better place. But if you choose the antisocial route, the breakdown of social norms leads to criminality. So this choice that Norman has to watch Marion undress or not is a moral consideration. He knows it's wrong, but still wants to do it and does. We agree that it's wrong, but still want him to do it and are happy that he does. What we learn from that is giving in to our primal desires, rather than embracing emotional maturity, 
leads to a psychological split in which our morals become corrupted. That seems to be the theme of the Susanna and the Elders scene in the painting as well. We identify with the fact that what the men are doing is wrong and empathize with the young woman helplessly reaching to the sky for God's assistance in stopping this sinful behavior. But we also understand the voyeurism of watching this woman undress to bathe overwhelmed their desires, and that's why this happened. It says that beneath the facade of civilization, we are all the shadow. On any given day, in any situation involving our desires, we could go off the rails. And we all have. Most of us don't murder women in cheap motel rooms, sexually assault them as they attempt to bathe, or even steal $40,000 from a client at work. But if anything, we all understand what it means to be overcome by our desires and make choices that are far less than virtuous and perhaps even sociopathic. And it's so simply and easily proven by our propensity to want to see what Norman sees when he looks through the people. First, Hitchcock shows us his eye, and we're thinking, come on, man, we need to see what he's seeing. And then we get that. It satisfies us, and we're left to realize perhaps we aren't nearly as civil as we thought. We are not simply virtuous social creatures. We present that to the world because this social agreement or contract makes it a better place for everybody. But beneath those niceties and morals lies a darker, more primal place in our souls. That's the shadow, ever-present, lurking, waiting, calling, begging us with desire. Now, this painting is hung to the right of the next one we're about to talk about. In the same way, the painting of the lush waterway at Marion's work was hung to the right of the one depicting the arid desert. Notice the difference between those two paintings from left to right was growth. So we want to find the equivalent of that in relation to the two paintings next to each other in the parlor. That will allow us greater understanding of the circumstances and themes at hand. So the painting on the left in the parlor 